Greetings, all you commanders, eagles, and angels. This is Rainbird, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Tyron Rama's True History, History of Nisera and Our Galactic Origins on Radio Station 2. So thank you for joining us today. Uh, Cheryl is usually our greeter and meditator for Saturdays, and she is with family today celebrating a great nephew's first birthday. And I'm happy to be here to call into the show. I hear that calling drum. So what I'd like you all to do is take a few gentle breaths. Breathe in through your nose, out through your mouth. And go into that heart space. Take this slow, gentle breath. And... um to go into our heart space, I want you to gather with your guides and guardians, your spirit teams, your angels, your healing teams, your ancestors. And there's a council fire, and it's in the center. So let's gather around that council fire in that virtual way we know how to do. As I call in the seven sacred directions in the Cherokee tradition, which is different, it goes around the same as the Mayan one. <laughs> so here you go. Spirit keepers of the East, come look this way. We give gratitude for this new beginning, this rising sun, this new beginning of the Aquarian age where we remember who we are and what we came here to do. We give thanks for that clarity of mind and that openness of heart to learn and to grow. And we welcome you, Eagle, Condor, and Hawk, you high-flying ones. Thank you for your gifts of insight and that ability to look at our lives with a benevolent eye. Give thanks for this new day, this opportunity for beginner's mind to truly experience the joy the humbleness of starting anew. We invite divine masculinity, that solar energy and power of protection to be with us as we begin this journey. And I would like to do the tone for the East. It is awe for purification. So please join with me as I do this tone. Oh, 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 
now let us turn to the north. And I'd like to do the tone at the beginning. I just forgot. I do that a lot. <laughs> so let's tone O for the north. And it's for innocence. Please join me. Oh. Welcome, all you spirit keepers of the north. We give gratitude for all the ceremonies and the teachings of you elders, you white-haired ones. Those teachings that sustain us. And we're grateful for all the white-furred ones and the feathered ones, the snowy owl and the hare. The, the hare that lives at Rama's place, that white-furred one, and the polar bear, all those ones who live in that place of the cold, hard truth, teaching us to embrace and be grateful for the truth. And we give thanks for buffalo. Buffalo people, for your medicine and your abundance and gratitude. We give thanks to the tall standing nation for your teachings of longevity and endurance and how to stand in our power without breaking. We have that one visiting us now. <laughs> we are grateful to you, the winds of change, for empowering us to resist complacency. Thank you for joining us here today. Now let us turn to the West. As we tone E for awareness. E. Spirit keepers of the West, come look this way. We're grateful to you, Bear, for your medicine of going within, for discernment and for healing. We're grateful for you, Big Cat, Jaguar, Panther, Cougar, Pashat. For showing us how to live in two worlds, the intangible, invisible world, and the physical world. And we give thanks for Divine Feminine, that lunar energy, 
for your gifts of life, death, and rebirth. We're grateful for that twilight, that sacred time and place between the worlds. Be with us on our journey. Give us the strength to look deeply within our hearts, welcoming our hurts and fears to sit with us in order to be transformed. We give thanks to Otter for your playfulness and your women's medicine. Waldo. Face the South as we tone for the South. Please tone with me. The tone for the South is eh, and it's for relationship. Spirit Keepers of the South. Come, look this way. We give gratitude for the medicine plants that keep us strong in body and mind. We give thanks to Coyote and Rabbit, you tricksters. This is your favorite day, April the 1st. <laughs> Thank you for reminding us to laugh at ourselves and to not take our ego so seriously. And for that balance, of the irreverence with the sacredness. We give thanks to Porcupine for your gifts of innocence, trust, and faith in ourselves and in every being of the planetary family. We're so grateful for you, stone people who carry the library of creation. And they carry also those healing energies as gemstones. So thank you for our physical fitness and each body's expression of the divine. Welcome. Wado. of the above direction. Come, look this way. All you spirit keepers of the sky nation above, we give gratitude to you, you starry medicine bowl, for the campfires of our ancestors lighting the dark sky. Thank you, Sister Sun and Brother Moon, you cloud and rain beings for our lives, for keeping us company on our earth walks. We give thanks for dream time, for that ability to travel in our spirit bodies, to experience our true nature, so we don't forget who we are. Many gratitudes to swan, dolphin, lizard, dragonfly, you beautiful guardians and messengers of the dream time. Come join us now. Wado. Now 
us put us our hands on the earth as we call him. All you spirit keepers of the earth, come look this way. Pachamama, Gaia, Mother Earth, thank you for our lives. Thank you for all the children of the earth blanket, you creepy crawlies, you winged ones, you finned ones, the four-legged ones, six-legged ones, the pollinators, the regenerators, to keep the world alive. Many gratitudes for the diversity of life, and that interconnectedness of life to the web of life and the equality of each member of the planetary family. Thank you, Mother, for teaching us how to take care of you, to honor all life forms, and to walk gently upon, upon you with love and respect. Wado. Now we're going to call in the within direction, and there's a tone for that as well. So let's tone... Ooh, this is for carrying. Welcome that inner space, that sacred space. All you spirit keepers within, come, look this way. Medicine ancestors, personal ancestors, thank you for the wise choices you made in your lifetimes to sustain and nurture us, to pass down the wisdom and knowledge so we can better live our lives as sacred human beings. Thank you to the next seven generations for reminding us to make wise choices with intention and respect, to pass down the wisdom gained, and to create beauty and balance upon the earth. Wado, homotakuyasin. I am another you, you are another me, and the wind is changed, are with us here in North Carolina. I can tell you that. It took power out right away about two hours ago, and I don't expect it back anytime soon. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so let's just stay where that, that drum beat took us, and, and as I change my hat and spend a few minutes doing the housekeeping. As we are a listener-supported radio program, it's all of us that make it happen. And this week, we need $316.25 to reach our commitment with BBS Radio. And um, so here's how we make that, that 
donation to our account at BBS Radio. This is, I believe, due at the beginning of the week, like Tuesday or Wednesday. So we like to keep up with it. We're grateful for your contributions and make sure that happens. Um, you'll find our, our prices a little higher as we are catching up with February, February one week at a time. And that explains why it's just a little bit more. We're, we're going to knock it out this way and make sure it happens that way. So lots of gratitude for all your contributions. We're grateful that you join us each week and we're such a privilege and a pleasure to join together the way we do with these sessions on BBS radio. And we're grateful for all that Don and Doug and TJ do at the BBS radio to make sure everything happens in a good way. So here's how we do it. Go into your heart space, see what is yours to give, and then go to bbsradio.com. And there on the homepage, on, you'll see selections, and that's the where you need to go to find out where the uh, radio shows are on each day. That's the menu. And as you click on Saturday, you are on radio station two, you'll find this program listed on Saturday at the one, at wait a minute. At the two, wait a minute, Central Time. At the 3.30 hour, I'll get it right. At the 3.30 hour Central Time, it is listed as the true history, Hershey, and Rosera and our galactic origins with Tara and Rama. Click on that icon. That takes you directly to our account where you can make a donation using your bank card in any amount. So thank you for taking that action, and thank you for your generosity. And the other two programs we access on Thursday and Friday on Radio Station 1. So you click on Radio Station 1, you look at the 8 o'clock hour, and on Thursday you'll find a night at the round table, no, a night, yeah, a night at the round table with the panel. And on Fridays, the uh, hard news on Friday nights with Tara and Rama at the 8 o'clock hour. And as you click on those icons there, um, it just takes you directly to our account, and you can make that donation right there that way. So, so much gratitude for you taking that action. We are so grateful for all of you in all the ways that you show up in your lives. And this is a good way to show up. So, uh, yes, so much gratitude for you. And we're also assisting Tara and Rama with their needs. This week, they need to pay E.T., <laughs> their mechanic for a job that he did more than a month ago. He is needing requiring that uh, uh, that money, and it's it's our job to bring it forward. That's how it happens. And uh, it, what they need is four hundred ninety six dollars to cover that expense, and that also um, takes care of the spare tire. They need to buy a new tire and rim for their as a spare, and so that's. That buys some peace of mind for Rama to be traveling out and about that he does every day. So the sooner the better. We we need to get this one done and make a commitment to it. They have one bill that needs to be paid on Tuesday. It's one hundred and fifty four dollars and one cent, and that's the Verizon bill, and that's due Tuesday. And then they need money for living expenses. They don't have any food right now. <laughs> And so fasting is good for a while, but let's uh, let's make sure that they have juice to fast with, water, everything, everything they need. they got water at home, but 
let's take care of Tara and Raman with their their needs for their physical bodies this way. So as you they're requiring two hundred and fifty for this week to do to buy all the things that they need. And so so much gratitude for your attention to this matter and and the other two bills that need to be paid. So what is this four, five, six, seven, eight, nine? About nine hundred dollars altogether will cover it. A couple bucks more. <laughs> but yeah, it, I think no, I think it comes out exactly to nine hundred dollars and one cent. So yeah, as you can assist, we are so grateful. And here's how you do it. You want to go to the web address to link to Rama's PayPal account. That's one way. There's two ways. I'll give you this way first. So rainbowroundtable.net. Go there. Use that site. Look at everything that's there. You will enjoy it. But near the bottom of that list, as you click on the menu grid, is the donate link. Click on that, and that takes you directly to the Rainbow Roundtable PayPal site. And uh, you can make your donation there in any amount and with using your bank card. And then the second way of doing it to access the friends option is to go to paypal.com and put in Rama's email there um, as the person you want to give to. And the person that you give to is where the little heart is. If you click on the heart, that's accessing the friends option. This is the email you want to put there. It's, uh, Rama's email at PayPal is Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 9999, at, um, excuse me, com, And then as you do it that way and, and, and use your bank card to pay that way, then that's how that works. Um, if you have any trouble doing it, I don't think you will, but anyway, that's how it works, and that just eliminates the commercial charges, and your money goes a little further, maybe to maybe to reach that one penny we need. <laughs> so thanks. 13 thank yous and honey in the heart. Thank you for taking that action. And here's what you need to do after you make a donation. You need to let Rama know that you sent something in that email address, Koran, K-O-R-A-N, 999, at net. And, um, yeah, and as you need it, the physical address for Rama, mailing address, is Ram D. Berkowitz, R-A-M-D Berkowitz, B-E-R-K-O-W-I-T-Z, Post Office Box 280-280, and that is in Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567 is the zip. I'll say it again. Santa Cruz, New Mexico, 87567. So there you have it, all the information. And we're so grateful that you're here and you're, you're joining us today and contributing. So 13 thank yous, honey in the heart, long life, no evil. And I'm passing this talking stick and... It looks like it's full of tricksters. They, 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 apparently, the fairies in, are celebrating April Fool's Day, so no telling who all is going to show up on this stick. But I'm seeing gnomes, and, and I'm seeing the little people, the menahunis, and the dwarves, and the hobbits, and the elves are there, and 
lots of angels and unicorns and dragons. So greetings, Karen Rama. Here comes his talking stick. Greetings, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. We are so grateful. Yes, we are. And, um, uh, yes, let's uh, bring some magic in now so that we can pay Don and Dog, pay the bill, and pay E.T. I just love it. I mean, E.T. Auto Repair, that's a real name of a mechanic shop, and it's E.T. is his is his name. Everybody calls him E.T. Yeah. It's just hysterical. And, uh, yes, there's all kinds of starships showing up everywhere. Oh, it's nonstop yes. now. But Rama wants to play something right at the top. I was just looking at something here before I go on. Let me see. Uh, this is uh, Simone this afternoon. And she's listed... One, two, five, I mean, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Twelve heads of state that have been prosecuted. Nicolas Sarkozy, France. Silvio Berlusconi, Italy. Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva. He was falsely prosecuted. But, um, and he, he was thrown in jail and he got out and he knows all about Masara law and it'll all come out in the wash <laughs> uh, Gerhard did you say who that was from where that was from mm. Ger- I don't know um, I'm not sure but anyway then Ehud Olmert Alberto Fujiyamori is that Japan uh, Peru I think so. Are you positive? Well, anyway, we don't want to say something that's not correct. But Jean Agnes, Lee Myung Bak, Park Gwen Hay, or would he, that I know is from South Korea, Jacob Zuma, Christina Fernandez de Kirchner, not sure what that is, down there in South America. Antonia Saka. Okay, so that being said, uh, uh, the the Department of Justice policy in the United States right now is that a sitting president, and any sitting president, as they're sitting, cannot be indicted. And there's somebody called Comigan on that, and that really boggles the mind. And so this is why, you know, I had a friend call up and she said incredulously, is he, is Mr. Drum still able to be running for president? And the answer is absolutely yes. As Michael Cohen said today that he was petrified of the situation and made it very clear he will not be jailed. He will not be, I don't think he'll be cuffed. Um, Although Trump himself predicted it and that he would be cuffed behind, he wanted to be cuffed behind his 
back. It was, they don't do that anymore. Yeah, they do. They do? Oh. Yes, they okay. do. Okay, okay. For the common folk, of course. <laughs> I've seen uh, regular ordinary common folk just in the front. Yeah. But anyway, that's... Uh, but they will take his fingerprints, and they'll get... Mug shots. Yeah, all that stuff. Mugs, shots. But anyway, all I know is that something else is brewing, and it's... It is. It's huge. You want to say a little more about that, Ronald? It's about what Aurora Ray is talking about, which is there are so many galactic forces here... And the sun is just doing its thing with X-class flares. And I don't know when the big one's going to happen, but it's (laughs) very intense. And it's a good thing because we're being uplifted. And I sat with 13 deer and four crows today. And it changes all the time. You're popular. What can I say? And uh, do you recognize repeat deer? I think so. Yeah. And the crow, they know you forever. The crows know me. Yeah. They follow me from up here to Santa Fe. Really? And then they join with other crows. Oh my God. Yeah, it's a trip. <laughs> anyway, you need gas to the tank so Robert can get there to Santa Fe. Is. Uh, and I know that the abundance is coming and. You know, it, 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 it multiplies, you know, hundreds of times, thousands of times, millions of times, billions of times, trillions of times. What was her name that used to call that one out? Karuna Mai. Karuna And that brings another thing, um, Robin LaPlante has a special message from Lady Master Ma'at. And Lady Master Ma'at is Mother Sekhmet's future self, meaning Mother, the whole principle of Mother, Divine Mother, coming through all of us. And it's not that to do with gender. It has to do with um, the teachings of Sekhmet. I want to repeat, there is no violence going on with the mother segment. Uh, it's, it's sometimes misinterpreted. And of course, you know, you know, we want to threaten some naughty kids, but Rama always has this funny little thing where he opens his mouth and, you know, and I ask what's going on with the, the naughty ones and he, he opens his mouth and he's got something in his other hand and he drops it into his mouth like mother's going to have him for dinner. Uh, it's a metaphor and we just got to really be careful because it's misunderstood by many. So I just want to correct that. So let's listen. How about that, Rama? Let's listen to Aurora Ray. Aurora, it's um, an AI voice, so I don't know what to say about that, but here we go. Oh, turn everything up. Yeah. No, that. Turn that up. Okay. No, not there. Uh, yeah, that. But over here, too. Yeah. And up there. Is that all the way up? Okay. Here we go. The Pleiadian Message. Dearest, beloved. 
beloved souls of light, our Pleiadians, friends, and family of the light forces of the universe want the world to know that we will never lose anyone from our own family, from the light. They have prepared for their mission since a very long time ago. They have trained in the missions they are going through today. The Pleiadians have been around since the time of the Great Atlantis. They are a collective of extraterrestrial beings from our stellar neighborhood. The Pleiadians say, We are here because you are drawing us. The Pleiadians have been assisting this planet for a long time now. I'm really happy that you read this to spread the Pleiadian message to those who need it. I hope that my efforts result in you and me, and other people, and the whole planet, accomplishing the goal we know we should all strive for. Peace and love throughout the universe. The Pleiadian message provides us with information that will help humanity to understand the problems of the Earth at this time. Their intergalactic perspective on our actions here is clearly seen in the macrocosm and gives us the guidelines we need to create peace on Earth. It is with great joy today that I am sharing this powerful and fascinating message from the Pleiadian Light Forces. Dear sisters and brothers of planet Earth, we are Pleiadians. We have been making a great effort, as have each of you as well, to send as much love as possible. This is not the same as simply stating that we are sending all of you our love. No, it is very different. And we want you to notice this. Love is being sent through us from the great central sun. It is a frequency of light that comes from a source of infinite love and compassion, and it flows through us and through all of you. As this loving frequency enters your field, it enters all of your energy bodies simultaneously at once and infuses you with its life force our mission is to take care of the earth and to prepare for the shift of this world into the fifth dimension. To do that, we need help from you. And you are here because in one way or another, you know it's time to serve this cause. We are now working to repair the disturbance to the earth's atmosphere, its magnetic field, its ecology and genetic inheritance. That is why we need to take care of animals today and show our respect for them which has an impact on all of nature, not only animals, the world is in dire straits. We, the Pleiadians, wish to intervene in this situation and assist planet Earth in the rebuilding process. We, the Pleiades and others, are here to assist in this transition so that what was done can be undone. This is why there are so many changes taking place. Pleiadian light work is not something to fear. We are here to implement the changes that are required for humanity's ascension. The Pleiadian Lightwork Program is not only about Earth changes. It is about bringing your inner self to the forefront, which will be necessary to face the storms of change. This is our message to you, which you have chosen to take seriously in order to transform your low vibrational energies into higher vibrations that carry these energies away from your planet to other star systems that will need them in order for us to ascend in consciousness. It is so important for you to have access to our wisdom about the transformation process on your home planet. We're working hard to clear out all of the low vibrational thought forms that are manifest in this part of the galaxy. Take time each day to connect to our star group wheel. Hold hands with your Pleiadian brother or sister 
and feel the energies of love that are being projected towards you. This is where we come in, for we are still here to help your transition to sweeten the bitter pill that has been given to you. What you must understand is that mankind has chosen this type of destruction because, although it stemmed from an act of hate, it was also chosen by the dark forces on Earth for this to be brought about. The age of manipulation has reached far and wide and may, unfortunately, be continuing now with the political arena. We are working now on removing all the negative influences within the scientific, political, religious, educational system, social institutions, and media. We are removing all these negative energies at this time. They are almost gone now. We are currently present with you here on Earth so that we can help you to break free of your genetic and karmic family patterns of abuse by removing these patterns from your energy field. These programming changes will occur within yourself as well as within all of us as our codings change through the cleansing process of transmutation that occurs during this time of transformation. Our mission is to assist humanity on its return journey. To that end, we aim to create the awakening in the consciousness of the people on the earth that will assist in activating their higher spiritual abilities. We have the highest interest in this world and we want to bring the truth to everyone. This is where the vision for this planet is. We need your help in these transitions. They're happening faster and faster, and we're going to be doing it very shortly. So keep your heart and keep your mind open, and you'll be able to see what's really going on here. As you are all reading this, you are in transition with us and are becoming part of our planet's energy grid. The coming times will be dedicated to celebrating your transformation into gaining a collective fifth dimensional consciousness. This celebration will undoubtedly be the most phenomenal undertaking that has ever existed on this planet. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho. This is a message to humanity from Aurora Ray. Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. Okay, let's keep that one going, everyone. Oh. We are going to play our Professor Richard Wolf, Emeritus. Oh, first. I got to get that, yeah. Okay, well, we're ready for it to start now. Oh. You want to play him first? You want to play Joe Dispenza there first? Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, do Joe Dispenza. Tell us the, what this is the topic here. Uh, this is Dr. Joe Dispenza, the mind-body connection. And what does it say there? Um, he... Um, Go ahead. Dr. Joe Dispense is an expert in teaching people how to heal their mind through his incredible techniques. Dr. Joe is an expert in the mind, body, and heart connection. He has mastered the convergence of neuroscience, epigenetics, and quantum physics. 
Dr. Joe Dispenza is teaching the world how to empower and heal our mind through meditation and mindfulness. His studies have proven that when well-practiced, these tools can put us on the path to understanding and breaking deep-rooted bad habits and even heal illness. As a New York Times best-selling author, Dr. Joe has written, You are the placebo, making your mind matter, which explores our ability to heal without drugs or surgery, but rather by thought alone. And he is a long-time transcendental meditation teacher. <laughs> and one of our, one of our um, friends... Um, was telling us last night on the conference call that she and some other of our friends got to meet him. And uh, it's all true what you're going to hear right now. And uh, let's listen. Let's just listen. This is 35 minutes. Here we go. And they told me if I didn't have the surgery, I would never walk again. So I decided against the surgery. I was on the biking portion of the race and a four-wheel drive Bronco caught me from behind and catapulted me out of my bike. Oh my God. I had very, very strong authorities telling me, you're never going to walk again. It was my son who would be on the operating table. I was back on my feet in nine and a half weeks. I was back training again at 12 weeks. Come on. They told me that I would have to wear this body cast for a year. Well, gosh, I put it on once and took it off and said, there's just no way I'm going to wear this. And so I just made a deal with myself. If I'm ever able to walk again, I'll spend the rest of my life studying the mind-body connection and mind over matter. Welcome back to Max Out with Ed Milet. Super excited to bring this gentleman to my left here today because if you take his IQ and you take mine and you average them together, you may actually get an average IQ out of the two of us here. So this is Dr. Joe Dispenza, and Joe is, I think he's a peak performance expert is what I would really call you. I think you help people reach their peak and their ability to perform in their life, but he's really an expert at the mind, body, spirit sort of connection and helping you really be a happier version of yourself. And so we're going to talk about all the details of that today with you. So, Joe, thank you for being here. You're today. welcome, man. Happy to be with you. That's wonderful. And we are at Bulletproof Labs, by the way, in Santa Monica, California, which is one of the most impressive places I have ever been in in my life in terms of the cutting edge of human performance as well. And so check out Bulletproof Labs when you get an opportunity to do that. So let's max out our time here together all today. Right, let's though, go. Okay? So you say all kinds of things that I'm fascinated with, but I think you're fascinating because you've become this expert in a field that's very unique really to you and the way you explain things. Um, people always want to know how to perform better, how their brain works. Mm-hmm. And I think you show them how to do it, but also why it works. And I'm fascinated by that. So, But you didn't start out in this industry, right? So before we go to all the great stuff, how the heck did you become you? Like I read <laughs> about you. You you were actually like, you're a chiropractor prior, correct? Yeah, I started out as a, so, as a chiropractor. So, so tell everybody about you just a little bit. Well, uh, let's see. Uh, I uh, got started on this. I think most of the time when uh, we wake up, we need a wake-up call. And I was in uh, Palm Springs, California. I was in a triathlon. I was on a biking portion of the race, and uh, I was making a turn, and I was passing two cyclists on the corner. 
and uh, there was a cadet, a police officer, kind of pointing at me, waving on to make the turn, like this. Okay. And he had his back to the oncoming traffic. So when I made the turn, a four-wheel drive Bronco going about 55 miles an hour uh, caught me from behind and catapulted me out of my bike. Oh, my gosh. Anyway, when you land that hard on your rump uh, or on your back, uh, the force of that compression takes the columns of the vertebrae and compresses them. So I had uh, broken six vertebrae in oh my, my spine. Goodness. And I had bone fragments on my spinal cord. And the very top segment, the eighth thoracic vertebrae, I broke T8, T9, T10, T11, T12, and L1. And T8 took the compressive force, and I flexed. And so when I flexed, it compressed that vertebrae more than 60%. And the arch where the spinal cord passes through broke like a pretzel. So I had uh, multiple compression fractures of my thoracic spine. I had... A bone fragments on my cord because when you compress a volume of something, the volume has to go somewhere. So it went back on the cord, and the neural arch of the eighth thoracic vertebrae was uh, was compressing the cord as well. Oh so anyway, um, a typical procedure for something like that is uh, called the Harrington rod surgery, and they cut off the back parts of your verte- vertebrae. It's called a laminectomy. In my case, it would be from the base of my neck to the base of my spine. And uh, then they screw in these stainless steel rods. And the action of screwing into the, the bone causes a cantilever. It kind of pulls the column off the cord in some cases oh and opens up the, the nerve supply. Uh, and then they take bone fragments from your hip and they, they paste it over the top and they mm-hmm. hope for the best. And so I had four opinions uh, from four leading surgeons in Southern California. And it was unanimous that uh, that I needed that procedure. Now, I was in a lot of pain. I had some neurological problems. And they told me if I didn't have the surgery, I would never walk again. Uh, so I decided against the surgery. Mm-hmm. And I thought I didn't want to live uh, handicapped. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be in a wheelchair. And I didn't want to be addicted mm-hmm. uh, to pain medication. So I thought I might as well take a chance here. So I didn't really know what I was doing I was at say, the time. say the chance on what? Did you yeah. know what the alternative was? Well, I think I think that... I believed that this voice kept coming up in my mm-hmm. head saying the power that made the body heals the body. Mm-hmm. And and I thought, well, God, this power is an intelligence. And intelligence is consciousness. Consciousness is awareness. Awareness is paying attention. It must be paying attention to me. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Did you think this way prior to that incident? Yeah, to some degree. I think, I think that most of us are philosophical to some degree. You mm-hmm. know, we have a philosophy about life. So do I. Mm-hmm. But when you're initiated... That means yes. you have to initiate that philosophy. So Love that. I had to take what I knew mm-hmm. and weigh it against what I didn't know. And I think one of the worst places we, are, we wind up as human beings is indecision. Mm-hmm. And so I had very, very strong authorities telling me, yeah. you're never going to walk again. You're gonna, you have a head injury. I don't know why you're deciding mm-hmm. against the surgery. If it was my son, it would be on the operating table. Anyway, I checked out of the hospital, and I began the process. I wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't doing anything. Uh, I was laying face down, and I said, I'm not going to let any thought slip by my awareness that I don't want to experience. And if this intelligence is truly a consciousness, I have to be present with it. And so what I did was I just start started reconstructing my spine and my mind, vertebrae by vertebrae. And then, you know, you'd start, I'd start off doing that. And the next thing you know, I'd start thinking about, should I sell my home? Should I sell my practice? Mm-hmm. And I realized that the template, the design that I wasn't, was mm-hmm. creating wasn't complete. So I'd stop 
start all over again, yeah. get frustrated, then it would get harder. And that sounds like me when I began meditating. Yes, the same thing. Yeah, Yeah. because meditation requires being present, and that's Mm -hmm. a skill. Mm -hmm. You got to practice it. So um, I didn't have a teacher at the time. I was just going off my intuition, and it would take me three hours to go through the whole entire process just to complete it. And I'd start all over because I wanted it to be a a complete uh, model. So six and a half weeks of just a dark night of the soul. Because I think when we're traumatized or we're under stress, we tend to focus on what we don't want to have happen and right. what we do want to have happen. And I think in survival, we're always preparing for the worst case scenario. Hmm. So it was a it was a battle that I couldn't get my mind to do what I wanted to do. At the end of six and a half weeks, one day, I went through the whole entire thing without breaking my focus. And I swear it was like hitting a golf ball right in the sweet spot. It just it just clicked, and mm-hmm. I clicked. And from that moment on. My body started to heal. That's I, incredible. I started to have less pain. My neurological symptoms were, were diminishing. And the moment I started to correlate the changes that were happening in my body with what I was doing inside of me, mm. I started doing it with more passion and more enthusiasm. Anyway, I was back on my feet in uh, nine and a half weeks. Mm. I was back training again at uh, 12 weeks. Come on. I was back in my practice. And... Um, you know, they told me that I would have to wear this body cast for a year, six months to a year. And, uh, well, gosh, I put it on once and took it off and said, there's just no way I'm going to wear this. And so I just made a deal with myself. And the deal was uh, in those lonely nights where I couldn't sleep, if, uh, if I'm ever able to walk again, I'll spend the rest of my life studying the mind-body connection and mind over matter. And pretty much that's what I've been doing. That's amazing. That. So that's the – see, I'm a layman. So I start out introducing you as a peak performance person because I see everything through performance, I guess, mm-hmm. right? But that's incredible because the, the sophisticated version is that you're this – you've studied this convergence of like neuroscience, quantum physics, epigenetics, sort of the convergence of that, right? Mm-hmm. What would you say you'd do? In other words, if someone said to you – because I know we talk a lot about healing – what would you say? Someone says, what do you do? What would your answer be to that? I get that question every yeah, so day, I, every yeah. week when I'm on a plane. Yeah. Someone sits next to me. Right. They go, so what do you do? <laughs> and then I wind up talking to them for four hours. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I, I teach people really a way to live a better life and to, to heal themselves of mm-hmm. past scars, to provide the tools for them to realize that they're more than they really perceive themselves to be. And and I believe that your personality creates your personal reality. Mm-hmm. And Can you elaborate on that? I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. So your personality is made up of how you think, how you act, and how you feel. Mm-hmm. So the present personality who's watching this show has created the present personal reality called their life. It means then if you want to change your life, your personal reality... Mm-hmm. That means fundamentally you have to change your personality. Mm-hmm. That means you have to start thinking about what you've been thinking about and change it. You have to begin to become aware of your unconscious habits and behaviors and modify them. Mm-hmm. And then you have to look at certain emotions that keep you anchored to the past mm-hmm. and decide if those emotions belong in your future. Mm-hmm. And I think after all these years, Ed, I think that most people try to create a new personal reality as the same personality and it doesn't work. You know, you literally have to become someone else. Mm. So the process then, most people, they're thinking the same thoughts, they're making the same choices, Mm. they're demonstrating the same behaviors, they're creating the same experiences that stamp the same networks of neurons into the same patterns, all for the familiar feeling that they call themselves. And if you keep doing that over and over again, 
There's a principle in neuroscience that says that nerve cells that fire together wire together. Mm-hmm. So people begin to hardwire their brain into very finite signature, into these automatic programs. Mm-hmm. Turns out by the time we're 35 years old, we become a set of memorized behaviors, emotional reactions, beliefs, perceptions, unconscious attitudes that function just like a computer program. So when people want to change, they're using 5% of their conscious mind and they mm-hmm. can think positively all they want, mm-hmm. but the programs are running subconsciously telling yeah. them that they're negative. So so the only way to do that then is to get into the operating system and getting into the operating system of, of that where those programs exist requires then people beginning to go do some inward work. Mm-hmm. If you sit down and you disconnect from your outer world, you close your eyes, we play some music in the background, you sit your body down mm-hmm. and not smelling anything or tasting anything or mm-hmm. experiencing anything or feeling anything and you're not thinking about or anticipating the future or remembering the familiar past that moment that elegant moment where you fall into the present moment is where the magic happens mm. and so after looking at enough brain scans in the process of studying the uh, transformation yeah i call that getting beyond yourself because yeah. when you disconnect from your present personal reality mm-hmm. and personality now you're ready to create something else and okay. so what thoughts do you want to fire and wire in your brain what behaviors do you want to demonstrate and the act of rehearsing the behavior mm-hmm. uh, begins to install the neurological hardware in your brain okay. primes it to look like the experience has already yes. happened yep let's and, step back for a second i want to stay on that i want everyone to be with us so couple things you said because you said a ton there right and so this is i want everybody to catch a couple things here the, the, a basic thing a, a base model is that people don't think about what they think about enough in other words just taking a second to think about what you actually think about is a breakthrough experience just something that simple yeah. right and we have you can correct me but we have somewhere around eighty thousand thoughts a day is that about right yeah. and at some point 70 percent of them i just want everybody to understand this are the same thoughts on 90 percent of them yeah. So 90% of those thoughts are the same thoughts on a daily basis. And we wonder why, if we really are what we think about, why our lives continue to sort of perpetuate themselves over and over again. You got it. Okay. You got it. And so we have these patterns. You've talked about beginning to consciously choose and decide what these thoughts and behaviors are that you would like. So is there a way specifically, maybe one technique you give today outside of some of the seminars and books that we're going to talk Mm -hmm. about in a minute, but how do you break that pattern and how do you become conscious of getting new thoughts that serve you that create that person that you want to be look it's really simple okay um your brain is organized to reflect everything you know in your life your brain is a record of the past it's an artifact Mm -hmm. of everything you've learned and experienced at this uh, moment feelings and emotions are the end product of past experiences and we can remember experiences better because we remember how they feel so most people wake up in the morning and they start remembering all their problems and Mm -hmm. those problems are connected to certain people and certain things at certain times and places the moment they start thinking about those problems they're thinking in the past those problems have an emotion associated with them Mm -hmm. and the moment they start feeling those emotions The body is the unconscious mind, doesn't know the difference between an experience that's creating an emotion and the emotion the person's fabricating by thought alone. Now, thoughts are the language of the brain and feelings are the language of the body. And how you think and how you feel creates your state of being. Mm -hmm. So most people's entire state of being when they start their day is already in the past. Mm -hmm. So you have a choice. The choice is you're either defined by a vision of the future Mm -hmm or you're defined by the memories of the past. Mm. And when you decide 
to say, okay, I'm going to change. And you decide one thing. I'm not going to eat this food. I'm going to wake up earlier. Uh, I'm going to do something aerobic. I'm not going to have mm-hmm. sugar after 6 o'clock. Whatever it is, yep. the person, whatever choice the person makes, the moment you make a choice to do something differently, and the hardest part about change is not making the same choice as you did the day before, mm-hmm. get ready because it's going to feel uncomfortable. Right. It's going to feel unfamiliar. There's going to be some uncertainty and unpredictability, and that's the moment the game is on. So then most people, their their body has been conditioned emotionally to be the mind. Yeah. So now the, so the, the body says, wow, uh, I'd rather hang on to my guilt mm-hmm. than take a chance in possibility. I'd rather live in fear yes. than trust in the unknown. So, yeah. so once the person feels uncomfortable, the body goes, whoa, wait a second, uh, we're out of the program here. Mm-hmm. And body starts influencing the mind. That's right. So it says start tomorrow. You'll never change. Right. You don't have the money to do this. You're not good enough. Your mother told you you were this. Yeah. Your father's fault. It's your ex's fault. Mm-hmm. You know, all of the voices that mm-hmm. come up. Now, here's the deal. If you respond to those voices, those same thoughts as if they're true. By the way, they're always going on behind right. the scenes of your awareness. But right. now they're amplified because you're outside your comfort yeah. zone. You believe in that thought. That thought's going to lead to the same choice, which is going to lead to the same behavior, which is going to create the same experience and produce the same emotion. And the person's going to say, this feels right. No, 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 that feels familiar. Going from the old self to the new self is a neurological, it's a biological, it's a chemical, it's a hormonal, it's a genetic death of the old self. Mm -hmm. And people will say to me, in that void, in that unknown, Mm -hmm. I can't predict my future. And I'll say to them, the best way to predict your future is to create it. Not from the known, but from the unknown. Love it. So close your eyes now and think about that vision. Mm. Once you start thinking about that vision of your future, you're activating the creative centers in your brain. Mm -hmm. And naturally... Mm-hmm. You begin to think about putting yourself in the scene. Yes. And the act of doing that when you're truly passionate and truly present, the moment you're defined by that vision, when the thought in your mind becomes the experience, mm-hmm. you begin to feel the emotion of the event before it's made manifest. Yes. Now you're giving your body mm-hmm. a sampling, a taste I of love the it. future. And now, if a thought and a feeling create a new state of being, you're combining a clear intention with an elevated emotion, mm-hmm. and now you're beginning to change your biology, and you're seeing a whole new landscape that you could never see before, because you're no longer viewing your future through the lens of the past. I love this. Now, this, this requires, then, something really specific, because most people will wait for their, their, their wealth to feel abundance. They'll right. wait for their success to feel empowered. They'll wait for their new relationship yeah. to feel loved. They'll, They'll get all these things when. Yes. Yeah, right. so, so, so think about that. The absence of getting those things. Okay, this is going to sound a little nuts, but the fastest and easiest way to make passive online income on Amazon is to never sell physical products. I never have. And Amazon's consistently paid me 20K a month. My business partner causes people to live in lack their entire life. That's right. And so they're waiting for something outside of them to change how they feel inside exactly. of them. And if they're not creating a new life, mm-hmm. then they're not pr- applying the proper principles. Then they keep all their manifestations, all their dreams at arm's length. Let's think about this. If yeah. you get up feeling gratitude, if you yeah. get up feeling empowered, if you get up feeling whole, 
if you get a feeling unlimited, mm-hmm. yeah. why would you why would you worry about whether it was going to come or not? You would feel like it already happened. Right. How do you do that when you mm. are stepping into the, you know, if you give us one strategy, one thought, one technique that keeps us. Is it just for me, candidly, for me, it's just always been because you're you're explaining to me on a much more deep level things I've understood through my own experience, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone that's listening to this has had an experience where these formulas, these concepts, and these ideas have worked for you. They have. You've all had an experience like this. For me, it's just being conscious of it. Yeah. For me, it's it's literally, for me, taking control of it and being conscious of it. How would well, you answer well, that? Well, I absolutely agree with you, Ed. Okay. You're absolutely right. Okay. We're wired right. to create. This okay. isn't something that you have to try to do. Right. You just have to get beyond the memory of your past right. and all the associations to create a new future. Now, theoretically, that sounds sounds really easily, but everybody's done it at least once That's in right. their life. What That's happened? Right. You get a wild idea. Yeah. You get a crazy idea and you think, what would it be like to be happy? What mm-hmm. would it be like to be in love? What would it be like to be rich? Whatever mm-hmm. it is. Yes. And you all of a sudden, you ask that question mm-hmm. and you turn on the creative center in your brain. That's right. It turns on. Yes. And then now the frontal lobe is, is, the, is the boss. It's the mm-hmm. CEO. It's the symphony leader. And the frontal lobe, as an executive, has connections to all other parts of the brain. Mm-hmm. Now, when you ask that question, it's got to answer it. So it's got to look out over the landscape and see what kind of raw materials do I have? Mm-hmm. Well, you only have a few things, knowledge you've learned and experiences you've had. So it begins to call up different networks of neurons, and it begins to seamlessly piece them together. And you get a vision in your mind that's called intent. Mm-hmm. And if you're passionate, mm-hmm. you start to feel the feelings of when it happens. Mm-hmm. Now, you're giving your body that energetic boost. Mm-hmm. Now, everybody's done this. The moment you've said that, no one can talk you out of it. No person, That's right. no thing, no experience. It's You're possessed by it. Mm-hmm. So then what happens next? You start writing down yeah. all the choices you need to make, okay. all the things you got to do, okay. all the goals and experiences you want in your future. And every mm-hmm. time you write one of those goals or experiences mm-hmm. down, you start to feel more of those emotions. And now... Mm-hmm. You're basically assembling mm-hmm. more of your future. Now, the astute person does something really amazing. They start learning more information. You want to be wealthy? Mm-hmm. Study wealthy people. Mm-hmm. You want to be healthy? Study healthy people. Mm-hmm. You, as you begin to gain more knowledge, you're adding more stitches into mm-hmm. the three-dimensional tapestry, mm-hmm. and you got more raw materials mm-hmm. to dream in new ways. Now, here's the part that, that is the most important. Mm-hmm. Take out a piece of paper and say, what thoughts... Do I have to stop thinking? You know, I can't. I'll start tomorrow. Mm-hmm. I'm too hard. I don't feel like it. I have a mm-hmm. headache. Mm-hmm. I got to go to sleep. I'm tired. Mm-hmm. List those thoughts yep. and become so conscious yes. of those thoughts that you would never let one of those thoughts slip by your awareness unchecked by you. Can I say something about that? Yeah. I want to jump in on that. One of the powers of writing those thoughts down is you completely eliminate and weaken their influence over you. They become minimized when you write them. They lose their power over you when you grab control of them by writing them down. It's a significantly powerful exercise is to write down those thoughts. Yeah, from a neuroscientific standpoint, what's called metacognition, because the moment you can observe the thought yeah. and become conscious of it, you're no longer the program. Your consciousness observing the program, and you begin to literally objectify your subjective self, and now you're pulling out. So then write down the choices you have to stop making. Mm -hmm. Look at the things you have to stop doing. Do you complain? Do you make excuses? Do you blame other people? Mm -hmm. What do you do? List those things and be really honest with yourself. What experiences do you have to stay away from from certain people at certain times? Mm -hmm. Stay away from them Mm -hmm. so that you are not in the environment that triggers Mm -hmm. it. And now here's the most important point. Okay. Write down those emotions that keep you anchored to the past because those emotions 
are literally residue from the past chemically. So then the moment you start feeling suffering, the moment you start feeling guilt, the moment you start feeling unworthy, the moment you start feeling despair, or the moment you start feeling any of those emotions, you're back in your past. Yes. And you can't see the future. Mm-hmm. You're, 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 you're thinking within those emotional mm-hmm. states. And we've looked at enough brain stands to say that when you think within a certain emotion, you're going to make your brain worse. Our thoughts are physical. Mm-hmm. What are thoughts when they happen in your body? The power of this. Great. The stronger the emotion that you feel mm-hmm. from any condition in your environment, the more you pay attention to the cause. So the higher the threshold of the emotion, the more the brain narrows its focus on whatever it is in the environment that does it. And the brain takes a snapshot, and that's called a memory. So now people think neurologically within the circuits of the past experience, Mm -hmm. and they feel chemically within the boundaries of those emotions. Mm -hmm. Then you say to the person, well, what happened? Mm -hmm. The person say, this person did this to me, that person did that, then this happened. And the latest research on memory says that 50% of what you talk about in the past isn't even the truth. That you, you, you don't have the same brain then. So you make stuff up, which means now you're reliving a past that you didn't even have just to embellish it, to produce the emotion, just to reaffirm your limited, limited state. People are hearing this and thinking, I would like more of this. I'd like the details. And we're doing cliff notes here, right? And so uh, you're learning, but you could be immersed in some of these things too. How does someone find you? That you, uh, how do they? This man travels all over the world. He does programs all over the world. People get healed physically, emotionally, spiritually. How do they find you? How do they interact with you and find out about your books, your programs, and things <clears throat> you can do to help them? Sure. Um, my website is just drjoedispenza.com. Uh, I changed, we'll put it up on the screen for everybody, too. I, I changed the format of the events uh, this year because I did 23 workshops, progressive workshops that initiate people into the work last year. Mm-hmm. And now they're an online course, you know, okay. so they can study online okay. uh, and they can practice all the, the, the meditations. They, they have a ton of resources with, uh, uh, with all the science and information mm-hmm. and it'll prepare them mm-hmm. for our week long events. And now okay. I don't, I'm not interested in keynotes. I'm not interested in conferences. I've, I've outgrown all that. Mm-hmm. I want to be with doers. And I think that this is a time in history where it's not enough to know. I think this is a time in history to know how, right? And so um, we teach these workshops all over the world. I just came from Sardinia. We had a beautiful event with a lot of people there. And, boy, we saw some pretty amazing things. I want to encourage all of you to just get engaged with him. I just, it's just going to help you. It's going to change your life. It's going to improve your life. You can feel that as we're talking here today. Not one utterance, not one second has been a waste of your time. And engaging with him will only be a benefit to your time on a, on a gigantic, life-altering type level. Can you talk about just a couple more things? Sure. I just want to give him the gift of it. You've studied a lot about sort of the heart-brain connection. Mm-hmm. Can you just talk a little bit about that? I just think this is fascinating. Well, when we live addicted to the hormones of stress, and stress is when your brain and body are out of homeostasis. Stress is when you're out of balance. Mm. The stress response is what your body innately does to return itself back to order. Mm-hmm. So. You're driving down the road and someone cuts you off, you jam on the brake, you almost hit them, you get that rush of adrenaline, you're aroused, you're awakened from that experience. Uh, there's a rush of chemistry that takes place and you're in emergency mode. Mm. You know, you know, you, you may get angry, you may say a few things, but you know, most people just get back on and, they, yeah. and, the, and the body returns back to balance. You know, you may talk about it to a coworker yeah. here and there. So that's a, all organisms are designed for short-term stress, you mm-hmm. know. Uh, but what we as human beings do is something very different. We, when we 
we, we react to something, uh, the rush of those chemicals become addictive. Now, we begin to use the problems and people in our lives mm. to reaffirm the addiction to those emotions. We need the bad job, the poor mm. career. Yes. I need to watch the news because it works us up yes. into that state. So we become like an addict yes. that needs the rush of those chemicals. Now, when the brain is in emergency and it's living in this state, what happens naturally is we begin to pay attention to whatever the stressor is. Now, where you place your attention is where you place your energy. So the stronger the emotion you have to your ex or to your job or to the news, the more you're giving your power away to that person or thing. So good. So now as your stress is created from a lack of control, you can't predict the future, you can't control it, or you have the perception of something getting worse. So when those chemicals are beginning to become aroused, this is what happens. You start shifting your attention from one problem to one person, to one thing, to another place, to another problem. Now, each one of those elements you have a circuit in your brain for. Mm. So imagine looking at the brain mm. when you're doing that. You're, it's like a lightning storm. It's just going off. And if you were to measure brain waves when that happen, mm. happens, the brain is very incoherent. It's out of sync. And when the brain's incoherent, you're incoherent. At the same exact time, if you're sitting across the table from a coworker and you're smiling and you're thinking, God, I'd love to throttle him, <laughs> and, and you're arousing yourself in that state, don't you know that your heart is racing because it's perceiving a, a predator? So now as the heart starts to race, it becomes incoherent. And then when your heart becomes incoherent, you don't trust yourself. When your heart doesn't be, is no longer coherent, you no longer make choices that are going to be in your best interest, right? Mm-hmm. It's no longer the guidepost. So then is it possible then to train the brain to become more coherent? Is it possible to train the heart to become more coherent? And we've done extensive studies. Mm-hmm. And I, you can't tell me you're too old for this. You can't tell me you're too sick for this. You can't tell me you're too out of shape, too overweight, too underweight. You have a difficult past. You can't tell me that you haven't meditated before. Yeah. It doesn't matter. This is fun to me. Like learning this is fun to me, but I want them to know about you a little bit. So I want to step out of the heavy now and be to the light before we finish up. Okay. When your business booms, Nexus looms. Your Nexus footprint changes along with your. Because you're a little bit dorky too. I am. Just so you know, I like dorks. (laughs) What do you do for fun outside of this? Tell them about you because I want them all to Mm. connect with you. And I I want them. So here's. I have people on my show, some of the, I bring some of the most impressive people in the world on, right? Mm-hmm. Clearly this dialogue right here, most people have never heard almost any of this. You're one of the few people in the world who possess the ability to not only know these things, but you can communicate mm-hmm. them in sure. a way that's understandable. That in and sure. of itself is incredibly rare, right? This heavy stuff. I also don't want people to think you're different than them. Sure. Right? Because you're not. I'm not different than them. We're yeah. both people that we both struggle with things. We both have things that we have to work on, et cetera, et cetera. What do you do for fun outside? It's like, are you going to drink some wine with me when this is done with, with the folks over here? So I run uh, wine tours uh, you do. all over the world. I'm, okay. I'm, uh, I've, I've been drinking wine since I was five years old. My, my since grandf- you were five years old? Yeah, my grandfather was a okay. winemaker and uh, okay. spent a lot of time tasting a lot of wines. Okay. He sit me down and make me taste wine. So I love wine. Uh, I love to cook for groups of people. You do. I cook really well. Um, 
my boy, I have two boys, uh, and they surf, and so I get out there with them you and do. surf a little bit. Uh, you love to laugh too, because we're off camera. You're every seven or eight minutes, you were laughing about something. So there's there's that element yeah, too, right? Um, I'm a pretty normal guy. Uh, I I do like to take time for myself. I think yeah. that's really important. I think when you invest in yourself. You invest in the future. Mm. I like being around super creative people. Mm. Uh, I come from a family of artists. Uh, mm. All my kids can draw really well. My parents were artists. My brother's a great artist. Really? And so I love design. I love uh, architecture. I love beauty. I love mm. to. I've remodeled one home four times. Have you really? Just because I do. You struggle with things. I mean, like. I, sometimes I think people see me, and I don't think that life's about struggle. I mean, neither one of us do. I think you can live in a blissful state all the time. Mm-hmm. I think you'd be blissfully dissatisfied too. But I still have things that life still has. If there weren't things in life that made me have to feel like I had to grow or get better, then there'd be no purpose to being here. Sure. So you have those things as well, of don't course, you? Of course, of yeah. course. I mean, we're, we're growing as a company yeah. uh, in a lot of ways, and so um, I have to balance. Um, Joe Dispenza and his personal life yeah. with managing a, a, a big uh, team of people sure. uh, and um, running that. events and then being able to walk on stage and, and for a week uh, to connect with people and to advance the And I understand the kind of energy that takes too. Yeah, you got to be so, in the right state and the yeah, right energy. Yeah, so I think, it's, I think it's not about reacting. I mean, I think mm-hmm. everybody reacts. I, it's how long you react. I think mm. that's the key. And um, so I, I, I do my best, Ed, to not see the challenges in my life. I don't take them personally because I know that most people are running a program anyway. I, I always mm. see that as what the challenge brings and how I react emotionally so then I can take care of that, that in my inner work. So then when I'm no longer reacting to the problem, then I'm no longer giving my power to it. So, Oof. so for me personally, um, I'm initiated. I call mm. it an initiation. Love it. Uh, but I don't, I do my best to not be a victim around mm. it. I do my best, uh, to really meet it from a greater level of mind. And certainly somebody has faced a similar problem as me. <laughs> right. And if I look long enough, I'm going to find the answer. And then, yeah. and then taking that knowledge and information and applying mm. it and personalizing and demonstrating it. You have to modify your behaviors in some way. And when you do, you have the experience. And the experience mm. produces the emotion. You begin to embody the truth of that philosophy. And mm. now you're wearing it, right? And yes. so reproducing it enough times allows you to begin to master the philosophy. So I have a think tank of people that uh, are just not part of my company or my organization uh, that are friends that would be mm. like you, that we mm. sit around and have a glass of wine, we mm. just cook together, and we say, okay, let's unravel this thought. And let's see how far we can go. So I, I do enjoy uh, doing that with with unlimited minds. I love. I, I um. Here's what's special about you. And by the way, our time flew. We're, we're out of time. I feel like we were here for like three minutes, right? And I want to tell you something. That the reason I think you're such a happy person. I think the lessons that can be learned from you are immense. And that's why I want them to get involved with what I call your programs, your technology, your thinking. But what's unique about you, and just getting to meet you today, right? I've read about you. I've, I've watched your stuff. But to get to meet you today is happy people find their giftedness in life or their purpose and they live their life using that gift and using it for purpose. And that's what you do. Like you're, this, this is joy for you. In other words, this is fun for you. This does make you happy. And so I think that's one of the keys in life. And I, I just think having met you, I just want to tell you, just acknowledge one thing about you. Um, you're a healer. You're not just a healer. I know that you teach people how to heal themselves, but you're a healer. You're a giver. You're generous. You're warm. You're kind. And typically people that are so brilliant and you are brilliant, 
um, sometimes have an error and edge about them that in some way they're superior. And there's just none of that air about you. I feel like we're kindred spirits, like we're like we're brothers. I bet you make everybody feel that way. If we're off camera, I'm yeah. going to. I'll hit you in the gut. And You've done that. Few. He did it like three times. I almost whacked him back, but I didn't want to hurt him. <laughs> but, but really, the truth is, is that, that I, I mean, honestly, I mean, uh, God, I, I work so hard every day in overcoming yeah. my ego mm. that uh, I learned really quickly to build it up the next day. I'd have mm. to work hard at it the next day again. So I think it's a lesson that, that you learn as you, as you mature and, uh, uh, I just uh, do my best to see potential in people. And if you see potential in people, you, you don't get stuck on the small side. I love that. I feel the same exact way. I gotta, I'll be honest with you. I feel like you're, I, sometimes I interview somebody. I'm like, how are we going to fill 45 minutes or an hour? Then there are very few people, but they're wonderful when they happen where I go, this flew by. I felt like we did five minutes in an hour. I really do feel like we just scratched the surface and I actually know that we have. So that's why I want you to get more involved with Joe. Dr. Joe Dispenza, his programs, read his books, get engaged with him. And I want to thank you for today. Yeah, I welcome. learned things today <laughs> and the things that I will never forget a few of the things that you shared. So thank you so much. You're welcome, I appreciate thank that so you. much. Yeah. Everybody out there, I hope you enjoyed today's program. I know you did. I know that this is one of those programs you're going to play over and over. And this is one of these things you just listen to in the car and you go, I got it. You want to go replay this and listen to it again and take some notes. And so if you enjoyed today's program, remember two things. We run the two-minute drill on social media. Any post that I make, any post that I make, as long as you make a comment within the first two minutes, we select a daily winner. You'll get my books, my gear, coaching calls with me, introductions to some of the guests on my program. And then if you enjoyed the program, make a comment on YouTube. And most importantly, if you're on iTunes, leave a review so that more people around the world get access to the program. God bless you and max out, everybody. everyone the power is within okay Rob is gonna navigate this little board and we're gonna have a little listen to our professor emeritus Richard Wolf called economic update and the the guest is gonna say it all in terms of what's necessary to change this hologram we've been in for a while here rather long while and so this is called democracy at work economic update and here we go about 30 minutes Welcome, friends, to another edition of Economic Update, a weekly program devoted to the economic dimensions of our lives and those of our children. I'm your host, Richard Wolf. Today's program is going to look at the interaction between dying empires, particularly the British and the American, on the one hand, and the climate crisis on the other. We're also going to look at a new report from the Secret Service of the United States about mass shootings. We're going to delve into an effort by fast food restaurants in California to buy their way out of paying higher wages. And we're going to then talk about the so-called debt ceiling crisis 
uh, playing out in Washington. After that, we'll have an interview with a very important independent news uh, journalist and host, Aaron Mate. So let's jump right in. The British Empire started to decline at the beginning of the 20th century and spent the entire century declining. So it's far beyond the United States, whose decline is much more recent in terms of its beginning to go down as an offset, you might say, to its rise in the previous century. But one of the things that we can see already is how the declines of empires play out in terms of how they deal with the crises of their time. We clearly have a crisis of our climate, of our planet, of what we have done to that planet, and what it is doing as a result. And so it's instructive to see what has happened with an empire whose decline is further along than ours, Great Britain, the United Kingdom. So, for example, last month, Minister Graham Stewart, he's the Minister for the Environment in Britain, got exposed taking campaign contributions from fossil fuel companies and supporting renewing coal mining in England and so on. You know, it, it's, it's pathetic. It happens too often. But at a time when the climate crisis is severe and Britain is already a declining far along declining empire, it's particularly painful to watch fake concern expressed with the climate while the reality is the opposite. And if that weren't enough, on the 25th of January, the New York Times ran a remarkable editorial talking about the decline of the United Kingdom across the board in its health care, in its living conditions, in its mass attitudes towards issues. It was a remarkable thing for the New York Times to do and tells you how stark the decline in Britain has gone. Of course, the New York Times, being a U.S. publication, doesn't see the parallel signs of decline here in the United States. So let me offer you one as an example. There have been recent reports that a, a stunning sum, $1 trillion, was spent in recent years to make a transition from a carbon to a non-carbon energy production system in the world. Out of the trillion dollars that were spent, and that is impressive, over half the amount was spent by the People's Republic of China. Coming a distant second was the United States. And the United Kingdom, nowhere at all. That's what it means when an empire is declining, if you're just willing to look at the accumulating signs. I want to turn next to a recent report by the United States Secret Service, probably best known as being the people who guard the president of the United States. They did a special report on mass shootings. That's right. 
No longer are mass shootings just a matter for the tabloids and the sensational reporters, but it's also beginning to worry the United States government, as well it should, since we are an outlier when it comes to the sheer number and deadliness of our mass shootings. And I don't have to remind people that recent weeks have been full of them. Here are the two most interesting findings of the U.S. Secret Service report. Number one, 72% of these shooters experienced a major financial stressor. That's what the report calls them. A major financial setback in the previous uh, time just before they began shooting. And 100% had family stressors, that is, deaths, emotional upsets, divorces, and all kinds of family stressors. Those were the two big items jumping out of the report producing mass shootings. I want to stress that in the mass media and in our politicians' empty words about prayer and so on, Every one of these shooters is dealt with as an individual, as if something peculiar about him or her life explains what they did. What is never dealt with are the social conditions that produce so many, the pressures on the job, in the home. And those pressures are not intrinsic. That's why no other country has the level of mass shootings we do, not even close. And you know something? The pressures on our families, the pressures on us at work are extreme, and they have become more so. The inflation jacks up the pressure to keep up, which, of course, we can't. Yeah, you might do something about mass shooters if you stopped blaming the individual for the event and started looking at how the society could be changed. Giving workers higher wages, more time off, a different way of living the work-life balance might be a better way to deal with these mass shootings than the way we've been using since the increase in them suggests that the way we've been dealing with it is a big fat failure. I turn next to California. California established a commission, and the commission was to look into the conditions of workers in the fast food industry, exactly to look at the conditions which the U.S. Secret Service says are part of why shooters shoot. But now the fast food companies got together and chipped in to fund a referendum about all of this that will at least postpone for another year this commission, whose number one goal was to look into what it would mean to raise the wages of fast food workers in stages to a target of $23 per hour. I want to list the companies that each gave over a million dollars to get this referendum passed 
to stall off paying fast food workers a decent wage. Here's the ones that contributed a million. Chipotle, Starbucks, Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, In-N-Out Burger, and Kentucky Fried Chicken. Yeah. Please keep in mind that when you buy from any of them, a part of the money you turn over is used to persuade you to support a referendum that postpones a decent wage for workers just like you. Your funding. Because believe me, the million that they contribute, they're going to raise their prices to get that million back from the very people they squeeze. I wouldn't be surprised if these companies spend more to block all of these efforts than it would cost them not to do it and just pay the workers what you should have been paying them all along. I come finally to the debt ceiling theatrics. Why do I say theatrics? Well, let me explain briefly. The United States government spends money. You know that. It spends money on the Defense Department. It spends money on Ukraine. It spends money on Social Security checks and a whole host of other things. How does it get that money? Answer, it taxes. It taxes corporations and the rich on the one hand and the mass of people on the other. But often it faces the following weird quality of our political system. Corporations and the rich, like the mass of us, want the government to do things for us. Government helps corporations a hundred different ways. Government serves us in a hundred different ways. So we get service, they get service. They don't want to pay taxes. We don't either. They're much better at getting out of taxes than we are. So we kind of get stuck with taxes. They have, as I've told you many times, all kinds of ways to minimize, to avoid taxes altogether. What happens if the government can't tax, but the government is demanded to provide services? What do our politicians do when the corporations want services and the rich want services and the rest of us want services, but none of us wants to pay taxes? The politicians could stand up and explain that this doesn't work, but they don't. We don't have courageous politicians. We have the other kind. And you know what they've done? They've solved the problem by borrowing. That's right. If you don't tax people, but you don't want to cut back the services they want, if you want to please them by giving services and please them by not taxing, the solution is to borrow the money and to grow it and to borrow more and more. The accumulation of debts of our government means that our United States government today owes, get ready, national debt, it's called, $32 trillion. The total output of goods and services in the United States each year now is $22 trillion. Our debt as a nation is more than the total output of goods and services in any year. That's how fat it's become. But here's the worst part, friends. Who do you think the government borrows from when the politicians solve their awkward problem by borrowing? They go back to the rich and the corporations and they borrow it 
from them. If you think you don't understand it, let me do it again. Corporations and the rich are very good at getting out of paying taxes. So if the government's going to meet everyone's need for services, it has to borrow. You know who it borrows from? Corporations and the rich. Mm-hmm. They end up giving their money to the government, not as taxes, end of story, but instead as a loan, which the government has to pay back to them, plus interest every year while the debt sits there. That's why corporations and the rich, after giving lip service to the debt and we shouldn't grow the debt, are secretly very happy. They're making money instead of paying taxes. That's a simple, easy choice, isn't it? Too bad the mass of American people don't have that choice because we don't lend to the government because we don't have the money. Oh, that's the real story behind the theater. Many times we bumped up against the debt ceiling every time we've just raised the ceiling. That's what will happen this time. Meanwhile, it's theater in which our politicians try very hard not to explain to the rest of us what is going on here. It's a very simple hustle. No more, no less. We've come to the end of the first part of today's show. Please stay with us. We will be right back with journalist and podcast host Aaron Mate. Before we move on, I want to remind everyone, Economic Update is produced by Democracy at Work, a small donor-funded nonprofit media organization celebrating 10 years of producing critical system analysis and visions of a more equitable and democratic world through a variety of media. Like this series, Ask Prof. Wolf, which is a collection of my responses to questions from Democracy at Work supporters. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, go to patreon.com slash democracy at work or our website, democracyatwork.info. And sign up to support the work we do and submit your question. I try to get to as many as I can, and I thank you for getting involved. You can also learn more about all the work we produce. Sign up for our mailing list, follow us on social media, and join our growing community of supporters who make all of this possible and for whom we are very grateful. So thank you, and please stay with us. We will be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the second half of today's economic update. I am very pleased and proud to bring to our microphones and cameras Aaron Mate. He is a journalist, a podcaster, if that word exists. Uh, he hosts Pushback with Aaron Mate on the Gray Zone. He co-hosts Useful Idiots with Katie, ha- ha- uh, sorry, Katie Halper, who you may remember has been on this program as well. And he writes at mate.substack.com. In 2019, he was awarded the Izzy Award in honor of I.F. Stone, a person I grew up as a young person learning a lot from, for his outstanding achievement in independent media and for his coverage of Russiagate for The Nation magazine. So first of all, Aaron Mate, welcome and thank you for your time. Great to be here. All right. You're a critic of U.S. mass media 
and I would like to sort of pick your brain if I could uh, to tell us to start with what are the dominant themes of the mass media as you see them now that represent what you're focusing on your critique of and I wanted to start with the place of the U.S. in the world today how would you characterize for us mass media treatment and what's wrong with it if you look at how the role of the u.s and the world is covered in u.s establishment media i think a fundamental problem is that it's presumed that we have the right to be the rulers and we have the right to tell other governments what to do that we have the right to impose sanctions that are designed to cripple entire economies and make people suffer and our motives in doing so aren't questioned. So we talk about wanting to spread democracy around the world. And I think it's taken for granted, if you read establishment media accounts, that not only do we have the right to do all these policies, but that our motives are are pure. And I just don't accept that as a journalist. As a journalist, we're supposed to be skeptical of power, especially power within our own societies, because that's the power that we're responsible for. And I don't see U.S. media doing that. All right, good. Next question about the same same issue of mass media. The 20th century was full of the story of a great struggle between capitalism and socialism, often characterized as a great struggle between the United States and Russia or the Soviet Union then. Well, the Soviet Union is gone. Here we are again fighting Russia. What is it about the struggle between capitalism and socialism that the mass media keeps saying, and what's the problem there? The U.S. is a hegemonic power. It has hundreds of military bases around the world. As you covered, its corporations control you know, a huge proportion of the world's wealth. And so when you're a hegemon, you need enemies constantly to justify your hegemony, uh, your military bases, your interventions, um, all the money that is spent on war, on weapons of war. And so the, you know, the Soviet Union played that purpose during the Cold War and it was also used to justify undermining any alternative to the U.S. led system. So for example, even in countries like Vietnam or Nicaragua, where you had, uh, governments arising from the, you know, the will of the population, the U.S. tried to destroy those societies by blaming the Soviet Union as being behind everything. And we're seeing a similar playbook today that Russia is used as a boogeyman whenever the U.S. wants to try to control a country and, and destabilize it. And so that's the function that Russia plays in the current U.S. imagination. Yeah, and I think it's going to be provocative for many people that the, the, the closest we've come to war and even perhaps nuclear war with Russia was not – when it was a socialist country, whatever exactly that means, it's actually when it became capitalist, like us, that the war began to heat up and become a greater threat. It ought to make people wonder, as you quite rightly put it, what the reality was back then, whether it was we need an enemy or it was a genuine problem with socialism. And what about the militant labor movement? The last couple of years in this country have seen a kind of resurgence, reawakening, whatever you want to call it, of workers fighting for unions, making strikes, and so on. How do you see the mass media coping with, making sense of all of that? I think there's been a class war going on for decades, as as you cover better than anyone else. And I think 
unions are obviously a very big threat to that. Just recently, there were reports saying that union membership in the U.S. is at record lows, despite the individual gains at some places like Amazon and Starbucks. And I think a mass media that is controlled by the same corporations that have every interest in uh, breaking worker power and, and keeping unions down has been pretty much on board with that agenda. You have some exceptions. You have some good reporters at corporate outlets that cover workers' issues seriously. But overall, I mean, just look at how much effort is made to propagandize us into being convinced that we need to spend our resources on war, uh, funding billions of dollars for a proxy war in Ukraine. And one outcome of all these foreign adventures is that the argument is made that we don't have the money to take care of our people at home. So we still don't have health care, even as we're authorizing just endless blank checks for foreign ad- Maybe rebooted up there. Oh, it'll bring it all the way back to the beginning. Well, see where it's at, and then you can. Okay. Pull it forward. We'll try. Mm-hmm. There. Hit that button in the middle. Mm-hmm. Oh. Wait. Gotta make sure the sound is on. Yeah, but I'm trying to get it to where it was. Yeah, but you got to make sure the sound is on. Yeah. <clears throat> Back with Aaron Mate on the Gray Zone. He co-hosts Useful Idiots with Katie ha- ha- uh, Sorry, Katie Halper, who you met. Union is gone. Here we are again fighting Russia. What is it about the struggle between capitalism and socialism that the mass media keeps saying, and what's the problem there? The U.S. is a hegemonic power. It has hundreds of military bases around the world. As you covered, its corporations control you know a huge proportion of the world's wealth. And so, when you're a hegemon, you need enemies constantly to justify your hegemony, uh, your military bases, your interventions, um, all the money that is spent on war, on weapons of war. And so the, you know, the Soviet Union played that purpose during the Cold War and it was also used to justify undermining any alternative to the U.S. led system. So for example, even in countries like Vietnam or Nicaragua, where you had uh, governments arising from the, you know, the will of the population. The U.S. tried to destroy those societies by blaming the Soviet Union as being behind everything. And we're seeing a similar playbook today, that Russia is used as a boogeyman whenever the U.S. wants to try to control a country and, and destabilize it. And so that's the function that Russia plays in the current U.S. imagination. Yeah, and I think it's going to be provocative for many people. 
that the, the, the closest we've come to war and even perhaps nuclear war with Russia was not when it was a socialist country, whatever exactly that means. It's actually when it became capitalist like us that the war began to heat up and become a greater threat. It ought to make people wonder, as you quite rightly put it, what the reality was back then, whether it was we need an enemy or it was a genuine problem with socialism. And what about the militant labor movement? The last couple of years in this country have seen a kind of resurgence, reawakening, whatever you want to call it, of workers fighting for unions, making strikes, and so on. How do you see the mass media coping with, making sense of all of that? I think there's been a class war going on for decades, as, as you cover better than anyone else. And I think unions are obviously a very big threat to that. Just recently, there were reports saying that union membership in the U.S. is at record lows, despite the individual gains at some places like Amazon and Starbucks. And I think a mass media that is controlled by the same corporations that have every interest in uh, breaking worker power and, and keeping unions down has been pretty much on board with that agenda. You have some exceptions. You have some good reporters at corporate outlets that cover workers' issues seriously. But overall, I mean, just look at how much effort is made to propagandize us into being convinced that we need to spend our resources on war, uh, funding billions of dollars for a proxy war in Ukraine. And one outcome of all these foreign adventures is that the argument is made that we don't have the money to take care of our people at home. So we still don't have health care, even as we're authorizing just endless blank checks for foreign adventures like the current proxy war in Ukraine. Tell me where is independent media? You're in the thick of it. You participate. You're a part of it. Is it working? Is it reaching an audience? Is it performing the function you yourself have described is its purpose? I think recent years have been very exciting for independent media. Um, after years of being lied to, I think more and more people are done with establishment media outlets. Uh, the Iraq war, which so many major outlets bought into, and we all know just no one doubts anymore that that was based on lies and the media failed to do its job in pushing back on those lies and in fact became stenographers for those lies. And you can take that to virtually every other war. Uh, Russiagate was a major fixation of the U.S. media where we were told endlessly that Trump was installed by Vladimir Putin and that he was a Russian agent being blackmailed with secret tapes. And that has all collapsed as well. And eventually, after so many humiliations and failures, people start to get fed up. And I think in recent years, we've seen a, an explosion in independent voices and people craving perspectives that are outside of the constraints of the establishment. And so I think it's a very good time to be in independent media, and I'm very happy to be a part of it. I would say the same thing for us. We are amazed at our growth. We've been here now for 10 years. Uh, and we never dreamed we'd have the size of audience that we now have, uh, our ability to, to function and to grow. It's, it's extraordinary. I kind of pinch myself a little bit every so often to make sure that this isn't a fantasy of mine. Uh, what about the reaction of the corporate media? What about the reaction of the mainstream? 
they must be seeing this too. Do you have a sense, do you experience an effort to silence, to, to marginalize, to exclude uh, the kind of media you're talking about? I think there's an effort to basically pretend that independent voices who don't drink the Kool-Aid just don't exist. And I, I experienced this throughout Russiagate where you had this dynamic where Every single day you'd have some new development and that would lead the establishment media to declare that Trump is finished. They're going to find the smoking gun of collusion. And I took the trouble of actually reading the available evidence and showing that what was there was not what was being claimed. And throughout that period, I was just ignored. I was insulted by, you know, some, some, uh, people in the established media, but my claims were never actually weighed and, there was never any attempt at serious intellectual debate, which is what should happen in any minimally honest journalistic culture. You have people with different perspectives and you have a debate. Well, when someone dissents from the prevailing orthodoxy, uh, the answer is to ignore them, uh, to try to censor them or to dismiss them. In the case of you know uh, covering uh, the issue of Russia critically, that gets you dismissed as being an agent of Vladimir Putin or something like that. But I think most people who aren't you know, card-carrying McCarthyites can see through that. Tell me, do you think it's a reasonable parallel the way that the Ukraine issue is being covered now? Do I think it's a parallel? Yes, and in terms of your experience with Russiagate and the work you... Is there another Aaron Mate uh, probably working in the wings somewhere around this Ukraine issue who is going to replicate kind of what happened to you? Well, I mean, I'm trying to replicate what happened to me because I'm also trying with Russiagate because I'm also trying to offer factual coverage of the Ukraine proxy war, which I think is the most dangerous issue in the world. And I think it's actually the outgrowth of the very dynamics of Russiagate, because part of the problem with Russiagate, as I was warning about pretty tirelessly for a long time, is that it was normalizing this culture inside liberal politics in the U.S., that we should be stoking war with Russia, that we should be looking down on diplomacy with Russia, that in accusing Russia of brainwashing millions of Americans into voting for Hillary, uh, into voting for Donald Trump and not voting for Hillary, that that was pushing an agenda that uh, treats Russia as this nefarious power that we can't negotiate with. And that's very dangerous when you're talking about the world's other top nuclear power. And so I think you can draw a direct line uh, between Russiagate and the Ukraine war. And I've been trying to point out some of the many facts that get overlooked in discussions of the Ukraine war. Uh, the fact that the war, as horrible as it is, it didn't begin when Russia invaded. There's been a war going on in Ukraine since 2014, when there was a U.S.-backed coup that overthrew the government of Viktor Yanukovych. And that set off a civil war inside Ukraine in which rebels backed by Russia rose up against the new coup government. And the coup government was backed by the U.S., and rather than exactly. pursuing peace and respecting a peace deal that was reached in 2015 under something called the Minsk Accords, the U.S. has basically sided with Ukraine's far right in undermining peace and undermining any prospect of peace inside Ukraine. And I think put us on this path. And that, that coincides with a U.S. record of trying to bring Ukraine into NATO, which U.S. officials have long warned internally would be a very dangerous step. And also building up advanced weaponry on Russia's borders. So, for example, tearing up arms control treaties so that the U.S. can install missile sites in Poland and Romania. And all these issues are in the background of Russia's war in Ukraine, and they're just not discussed. And by not discussing them, 
we foreclose any possibility of diplomacy because for diplomacy to happen, these issues have to be addressed. Yeah, it's almost as though you have in Washington people with what the French would call an idée fixe, you know, a, a fixed idea of how the world works, and they're going to pursue their aggressive agenda without any regard for the fact that the world is changing all the time. And if you ignore all of that, you're going to be running a policy that takes you right into a stone wall. I watched the, the, the competition between the United States and the People's Republic of China with a mentality, whether the Trump administration's trade wars and tariff wars or the Biden administration's basically continuing it for lack of a knowledge of what to do. It never works. The, the gap between Russia and China, between China and the United States keeps narrowing. The Chinese outmaneuver us at every turn. The, the question isn't asked what's going on. It's a continual kind of hostility. If we keep the Seventh Fleet in the South China Sea, somehow we're going to fix all of this. It's bizarre. I wish we had much more time. I have more questions for you. I hope you're right about what's happening to us in Indy Media, and I hope it extends to a more politically diverse America than we've had so far. But I wanted, above all, to thank you for the work you normally do and for being with us today. Thank you very much, Aaron Mate. Thanks for having me. And to all of you, as always, I look forward to speaking. Oops. Yeah, just stop. Okay, well, he's to speaking with us again. Till next time. Just reminding everybody, remember that it's not Putin, it's not Russia, it's a deep state operation making it up as they go. But he nailed the, the problem, too. The United States as empire tearing up all kinds of agreements so they can... You know, do whatever they, whatever. All right. So this is really uh, wonderful stuff here. This is going to be um, another dose of Joe Dispenza, I think. Yes, but also Greg Braden. This works so fast. It's scary. Works like magic. Greg Braden, Joe Dispenza, and Bruce Lipton. Oh, my goodness. Sit out and listen good. This is a triple <laughs> dose of good stuff, everybody. get. So, um, uh, let's see. You'll get expert advice on how to develop heart-brain connection. Get beyond yourself. Stop being a victim. Understand, understand, overstand your potential. Develop a greater sense of consciousness. Study your brain and much more. All right, so this is an hour and 20 minutes. Let's get started. Here we go. So we're talking about this union, this marriage between our heart and our brains. A very, very different way to think about things uh, in the West. Very different from what we are traditionally invited to consider. Uh, when I was in school, I was taught that the brain is the master organ in the body. And when I am working with indigenous people, often I'm taught that the heart is the master organ in the body. And I want to just say to you that both of those are valid in some circumstances, but the truth is they're both incomplete. Because what we now know is that while the brain 
our brain releases the chemistry into our bodies for rejuvenation and healing and hormonal balance and all these other things, our brain receives many of the instructions that tell it what to do from the heart. And we are the ones that create the instructions through our thoughts, feelings, emotions, beliefs that we are creating in our hearts. Because now, as you remember, the studies are showing our heart has the ability to think on its own to remember and to feel on its own. Hey, it's Evan Carmichael, and I make these videos because of my first business. I quit on my business partner. I struggled to keep going. I was making 300 bucks a month and felt like a complete failure. And the thing that saved me, that pulled me up, was studying the stories of famous entrepreneurs. I got the motivation from them. I also got the strategies of what to do next so that I can go off and achieve my dreams. And quite honestly, I still need the stories today myself to continue my motivation to take it to the next level. So today, let's learn from Greg Braden, Joe Dispenza, Bruce Lipton, and more. Enjoy. We're having a new sense of what this heart-brain connection is all about. And as I mentioned before, we've been conditioned to use them independently, one or the other. So I'm acknowledging that I know this is a very different way to think about our heart and our brain, to think about them as two organs that support a single common neural network. And just in case there's any question in your mind, that network, it is about the nerves. It's about the spinal cord between the heart and the brain and the vagus nerve between the heart and the brain. And this conversation between the heart and the brain, it fascinates me. Uh, it's a big conversation that's happening in every moment of every day. But the thing is, most of the conversation is in fact coming from our heart to our brain. That's where the thickest nerve bundle is to support that conversation. There is a lesser conversation from the brain through the, the spinal cord back into the heart. So while it's possible, the brain doesn't say too much to the heart. The heart has a lot to say to the brain. So we've explored many of the potentials that come from awakening this marriage, this union between the heart and the brain. And there are others. We're just barely scratching the surface. But what I'd like to do now is share with you a technique, a technique so that you can tap these potentials in your life when you choose to do so. What scientists know is that every moment of every day, as I mentioned, there's this conversation. It's a conversation between the heart and the brain. The heart is speaking to the brain, and the quality of the conversation that comes from the heart and the brain tells the brain what chemistry to release into the body. So, for example, when we're feeling emotions that we would typically consider negative, uh, and I don't like to uh, characterize emotions as negative or positive, but I'm doing this so that you, you get a sense for what we're doing here. When we have emotions such as anger, hate, jealousy, rage, what you're seeing on your screen is an actual printout of the quality of the signal from the heart to the brain. And you can see it's very chaotic. It's a very jagged signal. It's a rough signal. And it's that chaotic, jagged, rough signal that signals chaotic chemistry in your brain. This is the kind of chemistry that tells us that we need high amounts of adrenaline, high amounts of cortisol, the stress hormones, to respond to something quickly in life. That's a good thing for a few moments. You don't want to live your life day in and day out like this. If you can create a feeling in your heart of 0.1 hertz, then that feeling is going to harmonize your heart and your brain. Now, in indigenous traditions that I've been with, they have techniques to do this. There are a vast and myriad number of applications for the one technique that we're going to do right now. And this technique is the doorway 
for all the potentials that we have just listed. By achieving heart-brain coherence, it opens the door and we get to choose. It's like once we're in this place, now we can do this, 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 or this. We can do subconscious. We can go into intuition. We can simply use this technique before we go to bed at night to begin to sleep and trigger a healing within our bodies. We can do it first thing in the morning. We can do it before our yoga. We can do it before our martial arts. We can do it before our qigong, our healing practice, any of these things, because everything goes better with heart-brain coherence. And that's all we're doing is we're optimizing the conversation between the heart and the brain, between your heart and your brain. So how do we do this? Three steps. The first step is to simply shift your awareness from your mind into your heart. And what I've found is in the Western traditions for many people, that's easier said than done. I'll ask people, are you in your heart? And they'll say, yep, I'm in my heart. But what they are really doing is they're still in their brain thinking about what it would be like if they're in their heart. This is where the indigenous traditions come in. Our ancestors told us, and when I spend time with my indigenous friends, I say, how do you guys do this? And they say, it helps if you can gently touch your heart center physically in a way that's comfortable for you. In the Mayan traditions, you see an open palm right on the heart. In many of the Middle Eastern traditions, you see the same thing. Uh, In the Buddhist traditions, you see a prayer mudra that physically touches the sternum. The key is, any of those things creates a gentle touch, a physical sensation right over the heart center, and your awareness will always go to the place where you feel the sensation. That's the key. So if you can create a touch over your heart, your awareness will go there. First step. Second step, very simple. Slow your breathing a little bit slower than typical. Maybe five seconds inhale, five seconds exhale. Here's why that's powerful. Because the only time you would ever slow your breathing and breathe in that way is when you feel safe. When you feel that you're in a place that's safe and you're not threatened and you're not vigilant of your surroundings. So you're telling your body you're in a place that's safe. Slow your breathing. Third step, and this is the key, is to begin to feel the feeling that creates 0.1 hertz. Feel the feeling that sets up the coherence between your heart and your brain. How do we do that? I gave it away earlier. I've already mentioned it. Scientists have found at the Institute of Heart Math, their researchers have found that there are four key words that work almost 100% of the time for everyone. Appreciation for anything or anyone. Gratitude for anything or anyone. Care and compassion. If you can feel one or some combination of those feelings in your heart while you're breathing as if your breath is coming from your heart, touching your heart center, now you're setting up this communication between the heart and the brain. Now you are triggering those neurons to begin to reach out and find other neurons to strengthen this connection. And that's why I mentioned before, it takes about 72 hours, three days to build these networks. So that means the more you do what we're about to do right now, the stronger this connection becomes in your life. Rule number two. Oh. Okay. If you ever wanted to know what $21,000 is like in a single month, this is what it looks like. 
got a knock at the door and got a package in the mail. Ann and I just got this package. That's my name, Matthew Stillman, right there. So made $4,500 last week, my first week in the program. So I just got the envelope as an open. First video I've ever made. Sorry, everybody. Rule number two is get beyond yourself with Joe Dispenza. What do you tell people who struggle with that assertion of will that that needs to be there to overcome the addiction to being yourself? Right. Like, the, you know, if there's someone who just who believes what you're saying, like, yeah, yeah, I get it. But they're still finding themselves not quite stepping up to the plate to put that phone down, to go through that meditation. The first thing to break the habit of being themselves. But because they're addicted, they just don't have that will. Like, what do you what do you say to them? I to say, come them? to a week long. <laughs> we'll take care of you in a week. Right. I mean, we'll take care of you. You know, I mean, there's so many times the husbands get dragged to these events with their wives, you know, and they're sitting there like, you know, by the third day, I'm their best friend, man. Their heart's <laughs> wide open. They're, I mean, they're healed. I mean, crazy stuff happens. And and look, I mean. It's a movement now. I mean, I'm waking up in my dream. I, I, I honestly, Aubrey, never thought that I would witness what I'm witnessing in this lifetime. And there's a new consciousness emerging. There's something happening where people are latching on to their own empowerment, latching on to their own unlimitedness. And it's becoming very contagious. So the person... You know, I, I used to golf a lot with my friends and I, I used to say to them, I mean, I'm a decent golfer, but I'd say to them, I'm just not good enough to get upset. Just, I'm really not, but I'm going to have a lot of fun mm -hmm. and, and I'm going to play. And the more fun I have, the better I play. I watched, you know, you, you duff a shot and then you start getting angry and frustrated. It's the same thing. Yeah. That's your game is going to, you're going to, you're going to make the same mistake on the next swing because your emotion is keeping you in your past. Mm -hmm. So you got to make a choice to self-regulate or not. And the ones that get right back on that have ice water in their veins that can settle down and refocus again. Yeah. Those are the ones that execute really well. So the person who can't get beyond themselves, it's just a matter of practicing. How many balls do you have to hit? How many punches do you have to throw? How many kicks do you have to throw? Till all of a sudden you start looking forward to doing it. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah, I can tell you this because I've been doing it for a very long time. Some days are easier than others, but I'm not going to give up. I'm just not. I mean, if I'm going to carve out some time, then I'm all in. I'm not, I'm not going to shut my cell phone off. I'm going to can disconnect from it. It's all going to be there when I get back. What I'm going to do is I'm going to make my inner world more real than my outer world. And step by step, I mean, you can't get impatient doing this. You can't get frustrated doing this. You can't get resentful doing this. You can't force it or control it doing it. I've seen what happens in the brain. You're going to make your brain worse. So sooner or later, you start figuring out that isn't it. And all of a sudden, you start following the instructions. And you start going, wow, that was really easy. What was I doing up to this point? Everything but the formula. You were doing everything else but the formula, doing it your way, mm -hmm. analytical mind telling you to quit, it's too hard, you'll never get it. Yeah, those are the exact things that are standing in the way between you and your future. And every time you become conscious that you do that and you settle back down, that's a victory. 
Every time your body wants to get up and check an email or check the cell phone or check, get up and get a cup of coffee and you settle it down, you're telling the body it's no longer the mind that you're the mind. Every time it wants to go back to the past and romance some trauma just to reaffirm some emotional state and you become conscious of that and you say where I place my attention is where I place my energy and I'm siphoning energy out of the present moment into the past and you become conscious of it and return back to the present moment, that's a victory. And every time you start thinking about the staff meeting at 6 o'clock or 5 o'clock in the afternoon and that's the known and you stop and you return back to the present moment, you're disinvesting your attention and energy out of that future and you're making room for the unknown in your life and that's a victory and when your will gets greater than the program because most people lose their free will to programs because they are they are on that wheel where they are you could take their yesterday and lift it up and set it on their tomorrow because they're in the habit of doing everything in a routine way so then when they lose their free will to a program and their body which is a habit has become the mind. Now their body's dragging them into a predictable future and they've lost their free will to a program. And you sit down and you, your body is telling, I'm going to die in this meditation. I'm going to suffocate. It's going to end. I can't. And you just keep settling it back down. Every time you do that, it's a victory. Rule number three is stop being a victim. Bruce Lipton. You're talking. If you are over 50 and struggle with high glucose levels, then listen up. People are getting their blood sugar under 100 by adding just one ingredient to a glass of water. You're talking about a lot of people are victims in the world. Why do you think so many people center their identity with being a victim? And why do you think they hold on to it so tightly when they know they could reprogram their beliefs and start living in accordance with a harmonious life and being the creator and manifester as opposed to the victim who is powerless. Yeah. Well, I think the biggest thing, some people say, oh, yeah, you can change your life. And then they find it's very difficult. It's very hard. I go, why? Because they don't know how to push the damn record button. Uh, you know, uh, and well, so many of them are talking to themselves. I'm going to make Bruce, you do better. You just do better about this. You do better. And I go. Okay, let's stop for a second. Who am I asking to do better? Oh, my subconscious. I go, oh, there's nobody in there. <laughs> Who are you talking to? Nobody. I go, well, that's a big waste of time, man, because uh, that's not where change comes from. They don't know how to push that button. If you don't know how to push the button, it's frustrating. And it says, oh, it takes so, it's so much hard work to change. It's not easy. It takes time. These are belief systems. Why? Because they try and it doesn't work. I go, that's because they didn't know how to push the record button. So mm. most people say, yeah, I can change, but it's not working. They said think positive, and I thought positive, and it didn't work. It's not working, yeah. No, because the idea was you can think all you want, but the problem is while you're thinking, you're actually playing the negative program. <laughs> so you can, thinking about being positive is actually creating the negative problem because you're not paying attention when you're thinking about being positive. So there's the whole issue. People have a feeling that they can change, but they have no effort. They don't want to get in the game because they feel it's, you know, it's just too much time. It doesn't work. And I tried it and it didn't work. And then they give up and then life just goes on. It's seamless. You, you don't see it. It's just the way you've been living it <laughs> ever since seven years old. You've been just living this program. If someone had only said, you know what, I'm a victim, I've got, too much going on. I don't have time to do these new program things we're talking about. The record button seems like too much work. It's 
It's exhausting. I've tried and started and stopped so many times with health, money, relationships, whatever it might be, and I'm a failure at all these things. If you could only give people a five-minute thing to do every day, you said just focus on this five minutes a day. <laughs> well, that's, to, that's get you, to get you started. To get you started. Well, the get the get you know. started is this. If you like, like the first time that I really started to be aware that my my subconscious was controlling me was uh, when I was in my car, stopped at a red light, and I realized I was going to be late. And then all of a sudden I started berating myself. Well, you can't do things right. You're not. Oh, good you enough. idiots! You're such a yeah. idiot. You forget these things. It was that moment that I said, "Wait, I'm listening to what these words are. I'm actually stopping. I'm not just saying the words. I'm saying the words, but I'm actually listening." I said, "Well, how many positive things did I just say? Zero. Uh oh, <laughs> there's a problem right there." And I started to realize we have to stop and be conscious just long enough. To listen to these things, they flow through just continuously. You got to stop and just tune in and say, "What am I thinking? Why?" Because you start to realize that most of your thoughts are negative, and this is not good enough. That won't work. Blah blah blah. And I said, "But that's a creative voice you're talking about right there. Mm-hmm. That voice is creating, and everything you just said is now part of your creation. So what if you stopped? What if you just uh, said, wait?" That what I did is I just covered up the clock on my car so I didn't have to see how late I was going to be and I got there on the right time. <laughs> it's like, why? Because I didn't focus on, you know, all the steps between here and the destination. I just said, I got to get there. Boom, I was there. That's how it worked. Okay. So what can a person do? I think the first time is just for them to wake up long enough to hear, are, are you giving yourself positive vision of a future? Or you already cancel the future with with negative things that you can bring up any number of negative things. It's not going to happen because of X. Fill in X. You can put anything in there. It's not going to happen. I go until you understand. Oh my God! I am not thinking a positive thought in this process. Well, then I'm not. If I'm not thinking a positive pro- thought, then I don't want those other thoughts to manifest. <laughs> and that was a wake up call. Uh, should we? Is there a place where we should where negative thinking is a positive? If you're like me, then you probably remember the 1970s TV show The Six Million Dollar Man. In the opening credits of the show, a test pilot named Steve Austin gets into a crash that leaves. Can't say it. Because it's yeah. a delusion. It's a delusion. It's not the reality. And negative thinking, besides manifesting it as a reality, mm-hmm. it's only and now you are manifesting. Well, that was when do you want to stop manifesting? When you stop long enough to correct yourself. No, I don't want to think that. No, let me think something positive. Let, let me assure you something. A while back, I would have been what loosely called manic depressive. I'd be happy most of the time, and then something would go wrong, and then the next thing would go wrong, and I, and I would go in a spiral, and then it got worse, and I'd get down and be totally depressed, you know, giving myself self-talk bad criticism, not smart enough, not good enough, whatever. And I was uh, uh, engaged. In, this was like a repetitive process. I, you know, once it starts, it's like, oh, here we go. You know, it's going to go. And I was in my lab doing something, and it required so much work to get this done. And, and then there was the part where I prepared the experiment, then I'm going to run the experiment. It takes like two hours to prepare, and then I start to run it. And if you mess up a little bit, the whole thing goes to mm-hmm. 
And I, so I did it the first time, went to crap, and I was like, oh, God, I've got to spend two more hours putting it all back together again, weigh out all the stuff, do everything, get it ready. I ruined it the second time. Third time really put me off because now I've spent over six hours of the day not, <laughs> repeating experiments that never worked. And I got real mad at myself, and I went into that, you idiot, you can't do anything right, and it was cool. I was alone in the room. And I hear a voice just right out in front of me somewhere, right out there. And that voice says, don't you have anything better to do than to listen to this? Wow. And I, for a moment, I was stunned. Like, I'm the only one in the room. You know, it was my higher self mm. looking at me, going through this and saying, don't you have anything better? And I said, I laughed. That's kind of funny. I said, sure. I'd rather go see a movie. And there was a newspaper. <laughs> I picked it up, found a movie, went to the movie, came out. Clear. No more depression. Gone. Okay? The next time I started to go down, I, I remembered that, don't I have anything better to do? I started to laugh. Immediately changed. Just went and did something else. Stopped. It was a choice. I could continue going back and forth with that. Or what the choice was, do something else. And I did it. Guess what? After a number of times, not too many, I never got depressed again because this really? made a habit that if I would start in that direction, the habit was go do something else. And that has been now a valid part of my whole life. I carry nothing forward on this anymore. Uh, and, and this was like the freedom because it said, oh, my God, I used to get so depressed hearing how bad I was <laughs> talking to myself about how bad I was. And now it's like it doesn't exist anymore. Also, to make sure you're actually taking action after watching this video, I've designed a special free worksheet just for this video. The worksheet will highlight all of the lessons learned in this video, as well as pull out our three favorite learnings and quotes that will inspire you to actually do something. The worksheet will also give you space to write down what your key takeaways are and your specific plan of action to make sure you're getting results. If you want the worksheet designed specifically for this video, absolutely for free, there's a link in the description below. Go click on it and start building the momentum in your life and your business. I'll see you there. Rule number four is understand your potential with Greg Braden. As far as younger generations, I really think there are a lot of people who want this change. They want a better world to live in and believe in. Yeah. Uh, but they're often met with peers who don't see the same that way or maybe family members that Absolutely. don't agree. Can you give them any advice to maybe continue their empowered way of thinking so that they don't give up? Yeah, you know, this uh, this is the year 2016. And uh, March of this year was my 30th anniversary of offering this material in one form or another. And and my path has been to marry the best science of the modern world with the understandings of ancient and indigenous people. It's not science, but it's practical wisdom and marry those together. Uh, and I, uh, I brought a consultant in for a period of, of time to follow me to the different programs because I want to know who I was speaking to. And they prepared these beautiful hardbound uh, reports of charts and graphs and pie charts of demographics who my audience was. And we were speaking to young people, their parents and their grandparents. Three generations were coming. The young people often would come to me and say this, and this is directly to, to your question. They'd say, Greg, in this room with these people, everything that you have just said and everything we're talking about makes perfect sense. When I go to school, nobody thinks this way. And I, I understand that because I live that in my life as well. And 
what I, I've come to understand, and this is what, what I can say to young people, is every one of us in our own lives, we have to develop what I call the, the, the spiritual anchor, the rock, the soul compass. And it has nothing to do with religion. When I say the spiritual anchor, it's the spiritual anchor is when we know who we are in relationship to ourselves. We know who we are in relationship to the earth, to one another, to our past, to our future. We know how we are empowered and what our potential is. And once you know that, we then can live our truth in a world, whether other people support it or not. When we depend on other people for that support, that's where we give our power away. And that's where many of us come from. Uh, I'll just say to the young people listening, um, I come from a very difficult family background, dysfunctional alcoholic family, full of criticism, uh, instilling self-doubt uh, in, in the young people. Uh, I have a younger brother. Uh, we came from the same family and we had the same criticisms. Um, I didn't believe what my father told me about my inability uh, in life. And my younger brother, he did believe it. He embraced much of it. And it's so interesting. Uh, two different people, the same family, same background, interpreting the information differently. And, and I attribute my ability to, uh, to, to let that criticism roll off of me in my, the blessing I had very early on. I knew who I was and I understood, uh, my place in this world at an early age. Not everyone has that, uh, but I began looking at an early age. You know, it takes a lot of work to explore the potential within every one of us. And there was a very famous author and prophet in the early in the 20th century. His name is Khalil Gibran. Uh, and I began reading Khalil Gibran when I was eight years old. And Khalil Gibran, there is one sentence that has been my soul compass. It has been with me. I think of it every day. I apply it in every situation, every relationship, every job, every commitment. What he said is work is love made visible. It takes a lot of work to know who we are in this world and to demonstrate for ourselves our potential. That is our love made visible. That is us loving ourselves in a way that empowers us to be in this world in a healthy, a healthy way where we thrive in the presence of all of the changes. So my invitation for any young people is uh, love yourself. And your love made visible is you taking the time to understand your potential and who you really are. The good news is we have that information now. New discoveries, new science, indigenous wisdom married together. I think we owe it to ourselves to bring it all to bear in our lives today. Rule number five is develop a greater sense of consciousness with Joe Dispenza. I remember I worked with a Siberian mystic. And we did what could have been like an acting exercise. And she wanted me to go through every emotion and just select it. Okay, now feel sad. Now feel happy. Now feel surprised. Now feel depressed. Overwhelmed with joy. And I would do it, but there was some part of me that says, you can't do this. You can't select your emotions. Your emotions are determined by the outside world. And I think I was afraid to actually admit that I really could do it. Because then if I could really do it, well, then 
I had all of this responsibility to actually do this. I had to take responsibility for everything I feel. I could no longer blame anything out there in the world for how I was feeling. This was all on me. Sure. So is that where you see the the biggest resistance to doing this work? Is it the resistance to accepting that responsibility, forgiving yourself for not knowing this before and not being able to blame anything? Or where is the resistance to just jumping in and giving it a try? Mm, I... I um... I think my, my view about that has changed a lot in the last, uh, uh, couple of years. Uh, when you see a person who is blind because of a stroke and is told they'll never heal from that stroke, I mean, after two weeks, if it doesn't heal, you normally have to live with it and loses her job, uh, can't drive, uh, you know, she's clinically blind. Uh, I'm not the person. Uh, that is going to tell her you can absolutely heal this. She has to come to that understanding on her own. Mm-hmm. So people, uh, many times when they gather knowledge and information, uh, the information causes them to become conscious of what they were once unconscious to. And when you have a greater level of consciousness, you see possibilities. And in a sense, you're energized by information. You're, you're enlightened. You're filled with light in some way and you see possibilities that you haven't seen before. Now, getting beyond the analytical mind is one of the main purposes of meditation. Yeah. And I can tell you that the analytical mind is always going to talk us out of possibility because it is fascinated on trying to predict what's going to happen next. So if you can predict your future, then you're laying a known on an unknown. And this is a habit we have because the brain is an anticipation machine. So there's many different obstacles and resistance, resistances that come with a persistent disbelief that has been programmed over and over again. I mean, I don't watch television, but I've watched it because of what's happening in the world. And I am so insulted by television commercials. I, I, I can't believe people would sit there and allow that information to program them, some drug to make them feel a certain way, some look, some whatever. You don't think that has profound effects on programming a person into limitation? When I wrote the book, You Are the Placebo, I was so angry at myself for two weeks. I was so frustrated with myself because I bought the program. People, people believe they, people believe they need a flu shot because they don't believe their bodies in the body's innate capacity to heal. Four days teaching people how to elevate their state. Increased immunoglobulin A in our research by 50%. Immunoglobulin A is your body's primary defense against bacteria and viruses. It's better than the flu shot. It's better than a flu shot. But that's not the information that people get. So there's a, a layer of programming that's happening. And the beauty behind all of this is nobody's buying information any longer. I love it. Hmm. And I'm I'm not prone to believe that guy in that tube telling me the way it is. And nobody should. And more and more people, then, as they start to wake up to information, there's a change in energy because change in consciousness requires a change in energy. And now a greater energy causes systems 
that were once stable to become unstable, to become chaotic. And chaos is just unpredictable order. It's novelty. It's newness. It's an unraveling of systems. So hang on. This is a really profound time because it's got to break. And when it breaks, something better come out of it. And it's not going to be governments and politicians and and religious figures and whatever leading the way. There, there is no one leader. Everybody's got to lead. Mm. Just like those birds that move in one direction or those fish that are all in a school and they're moving together. Give the appearance of something bigger to predators. You study that principle in biology. It's called emergence. You think that there's one leader that everybody's following. Everybody's leading. And there's a stigma we have in our minds that if you lead with too much passion in your life, you're going to lose your life. Whether you're Martin Luther King or William Wallace or Joan of Arc or Abraham Lincoln, you're going to get it. And that stigma is branded in people's minds for a reason. But this is a time in history to not die for the truth. This is time in history to live for the truth. And if you're working on your anger and frustration, and I'm working on my fear and anxiety and my judgment, and I'm taking care of me, and you emerge in that heart of yours, and I emerge in that heart, we are going to be like-minded. We're going to be connected by that invisible field. This is Ergo. They automatically enhance your hearing wherever you are. Ours comes with buttons on the back, so you can fiddle around to your... Now everybody's leading and you just can't take out everybody now. So we can't, we can't wait for anybody else to take care of us. And rule number six, the last one before some very special bonus clips, is study your brain with Bruce Luther. I really want to focus on something called an urban myth. And this particular urban myth is the belief that we only operate off of 10% of our brain. So we've all heard that, yes, we're only using 10% of our brain. Boy, if we could use all the rest of it, we'd be super smart. But hey, that's all we use. Firstly, where did that number come from, 10%? A long time ago, when putting the body together through an understanding of histology and the cells that make up organs, a study of the brain revealed one very important fact. And that is only 10% of the brain was made up of neurons. 90% of the cells in the brain were not neurons, but they were called supporting or connective tissue and given the name glial cells. Well, what's really interesting about that is in the neuron principle, the neuron doctrine, it was believed that the neurons were the functional cells of the brain and the glial cells were more or less just support. Well, then by definition, right away, it says then you're only using 10% of your brain because that's all that the neurons comprise in the brain, 10%. For a long time, the glial cells, again, were thought to be just like connective tissue support uh, physically and nutritionally, the neurons. But over the last number of decades, what we started to find is this. There was a misunderstanding about glial cells. That glial cells are a lot more important in neural function than just physical support. Glial cells can inhibit or activate neurons. Glial cells connect to neurons. Glial cells can control the activity of neurons. So all of a sudden, these glial cells, which were looked at as just passive cells in the brain, turn out to be actually quite functional in integrating the nature of how the brain works. And a way of looking at it in a simple analogy, consider that the neurons are nouns in a sentence and that the glial cells are the verbs and the adjectives and the adverbs, the modifiers of all the nouns. So the glial cells 
create a, uh, a fulfillment of a picture. So neurons are like a stick figure. And when you add the glial cells, you fill out the nature of the whole human. So glial cells become a very functional, integrated part of all neuronal activity. So the concept of the neuron doctrine that said only neurons are involved with uh, functioning in the nervous system. It turns out the glial cells are as well. So now we're not dealing with 10% of the brain. We're dealing with 100% of the brain. Yes, you have access to 100% of your brain all of the time. But does that mean that we actually use the whole brain all of the time? And the answer is no. Because what we start to find out is when we start to live in patterns and in habits, that what happens is we just activate certain neuronal pathways that are habitual pathways. And as a result, these are the pathways that have preference in our everyday life. But if you can engage whole brain activity, you can enhance your consciousness and your awareness and your ability to control your life. So basically it says that we can become whole brain when we start to think holistically instead of just playing recurrent programs that play over and over again and activate the same pathways. So the relevance is that once we start to engage in whole brain activity, we enhance our ability as humans on this planet. And now we're beginning to find out there are many different ways to engage and activate the whole brain. Some of them involve simple exercises such as something called brain gym. And brain gym is a very interesting exercise of the body and the nervous system integration in this way. My right hand is controlled by my left hemisphere. My left hand is controlled by my right hemisphere. But here's an interesting story. If my right hand, controlled by my left hemisphere, crosses the midline, then it simultaneously gets picked up by the other hemisphere because now it's in that territory as well. So when you cross your arms and when you cross your legs, what you're doing is causing the right and the left hemispheres to work together in harmony. When we are activating brain uh, synchronization, where right and left hemispheres are engaged together simultaneously, it activates something like super learning. With both hemispheres working together, we have much more superior characteristics of neural function. However, after age seven and eight, we start to express what is called brain dominance, meaning during the day, we don't have synchronization of both hemispheres. During the day, it's like a wave form. Sometimes we're more in the left hemisphere, sometimes we're more in the right, then it comes back to the left and back to the right, so that we're cycling through one hemisphere at a time. This is called brain dominance, where one hemisphere is dominant over the other hemisphere. Well, the relevance about that is integrating our lives is very difficult in brain dominance for a simple reason. As been suggested, our left hemisphere is based on logic and details. Our right hemisphere is actually associated with emotions and wholeness. And the, this becomes very important because if you're only looking with your left hemisphere, then all the logic things make sense, but there's no emotional component to it. And reverse, if you're in the right hemisphere, you get emotionally tied up, but the logic drops out. Well, this happens to us ever since the time we were eight through our adult life. If you can get both hemispheres to be in sync, hemi-sync, then... Tired of diets and exercise plans that promise the world but deliver nothing? You're not alone. Discover the breakthrough that's changing the game for thousands. 
then you're engaging logic and emotions at the same time. That opens up a window for super learning opportunities where you can download information very, very quickly and very fast, but it also opens up a whole wide range of thinking that includes an emotional component as well as an intellectual component, which is necessary to fulfill a whole picture. So if you're operating from brain dominance, you're actually shutting off one component of your nervous system at that time. So if you do an exercise like brain gym where you're involved with crossing your arms and your legs, uh, when you do that, you start to integrate both. Very interestingly, when we have hemi-sync, we're much more calm, collected, and able to really uh, express neurological functions that are very fully supporting of ourselves. And this is why it's very interesting when you go home and relax at night, sometimes you find yourself with your ankles crossed over each other just sitting in your chair. Without even knowing what you're doing, by crossing your ankles, you're actually engaging a whole brain process. So if you're stressed, for example, during the day, or you just want to relax when you go home at night, crossing your arms and legs actually engages both hemispheres, which calms the system down, but engages a whole brain process. So you become much more effective in your relaxed state. So if you're having a tough moment during the day, just take a moment and cross your arms and legs, hold them together, and just wait for about three or four minutes, and you'll start to feel a calmness overcome. And in this calmness, your neurological functions will be totally enhanced. When we start to operate from patterns that are replayed every day, we start to express very specific pathways that are reused over and over and over again. And as a result, we actually shut down a large amount of functioning of the brain and just go through the habit, the patterns that replay themselves over and over again. So basically, what you really have to understand is this, we can use 100% of the brain, but if we play the same patterns over and over again, we don't need to use 100% of the brain. So, um, simple point, I'd just like to suggest that once you start to recognize that you can have hemi-sync, where you can get right and left hemispheres to engage together and stay conscious, you are using 100% of your brain activity. And when you do that, you'll also find that your life is easier, more harmonious, and healthier. Because when you're using your full nervous system, it will support your life and enhance your growth. And this becomes important. So don't get stuck that I'm only using 10% of my brain. That story is false. You can use 100% and it's available to us. And basically all you have to understand is this. Stay conscious, stay mindful, and stop playing the same patterns over and over again because that opens up an opportunity to create new behavior when you stop playing the programs. I want to explain something to you that not many people really understand. I want to talk about the law of attraction. Do you know that the law of attraction is always working? It's like the law of gravity. If I let this go, it's going to go down. It's never going to go back up. It's going to go down. That is the law of gravity. Anything heavier than Earth is attracted towards the center of the world. Well, the law of attraction is always working. Now, how does it work? Well, I use a diagram to explain the mind. Now let this circle represent your mind. And let this little circle here represent your body. Now I want you to think of this for a moment. Your body is a molecular structure. This is a massive energy and a very high speed of vibration. If you looked at your body through a microscope, you'd see that energy dancing right before your eyes. 
Here's something that'll keep you thinking for the next 20 years. When you move out of it, the body does not stop moving. If you go to a funeral parlor and pick up the remains and look at it, you will see it moving. And if it wasn't moving, how would it ever change to dust? You move into your body and you will move up. And it's how you use your mind that's going to dictate the vibration you're in. Now stay with me. You have an imaginary line right across here, and that separates the conscious mind from the subconscious mind. Now the subconscious mind has been programmed. When you were a little baby, this is the way it was. So just like this, subconscious mind wide open and everything that was going on around it went right in there. And all the energy that went in there when you were just a little baby formed something called a paradigm. Now a paradigm is information. It's a multitude of habits. You are the product of your environment. But prior to that, you were the product of a genetic strain that goes back for generations. Now, I'm going to say that the paradigm is X-type energy. Now, you've got the ability here on a conscious level to think. And you can think anything you want to think. And as you think, you build ideas. There's a power that's flowing into your consciousness. It never stops. It flows to and through you. You can actually photograph this power leaving you. It flows to and through you. Now, as it flows in, you will start thinking, and you'll probably think X-type thoughts. Therefore, you're going to be in an X-type vibration. And that will produce X-type results. Now, it's the results you want to change. And it's... Is this thing on? If you're an entrepreneur, sales professional, or you're involved in marketing or selling in any way, check this out. You're going to love it. And to change the results, you're going to have to change what you attract. You see, the thoughts that you think control the vibration that you're in. Vibration is nothing but an idea. It's a law of the universe. Everything vibrates. Nothing rests. We live in an ocean of motion. And it's the thoughts that you're thinking that you impress upon your subconscious mind that control the vibration the body's in. And that dictates how you act, but it also dictates what you attract. You attract energy that's in harmony with you. You attract people that are in harmony with you. You see, everything operates on frequencies. There's an infinite number of frequencies. But you and I operate on a frequency just like a radio station does. And the only music you can attract is the music that is tuned in to the vibration you're in. Now, it's the paradigm that has been controlling the vibration. You can change your thinking, but that doesn't do anything. You've got to change the paradigm. And if you don't change the paradigm, nothing happens. Now, talking about paradigms is another subject. We'll do that at another time. But it's the thoughts that you think that control the vibration you're in, and that dictates what you attract. So if you keep attracting what you don't want, understand this. It's the paradigm that's causing the problem. You can think a Y-type thought, which is totally different than the X-type conditioning. It isn't going to go anywhere. Because when you go to get emotionally involved, and this is the emotional mind, when you go to get emotionally involved with that Y-type thought, the paradigm will kick it up. You know why? It's so uncomfortable. That's stepping out of the box. That's doing things different. And we don't like to do things different because it causes a lot of discomfort. But understand this. 
The paradigm and the thinking control the vibration you're in. And the vibration you're in is going to dictate what you attract. People that are in a poverty consciousness will continue to attract lack and limitation. It has nothing to do with this, what's going on here. This is your educated mind, and you can gather all kinds of information. Have you ever wondered why some people have such an educated mind? They have degrees coming right off the end of their business card, but it doesn't show up in their results. Why? Paradigm. The law of attraction. You've got to change this. You've got to change the vibration you're in, and your whole world changes. Listen. In 1961, a man gave me this book. And he said, do exactly what I tell you. He was giving me Y-type ideas. It caused an enormous amount of discomfort. But I did exactly what he said. And you know something? My income went from $4,000 to $175,000 a year. And then I took it over a million. It took me nine and a half years to figure out what happened. This is what I'm showing you. Watch this over and over and over again. There's a number of lessons in here. Just give yourself permission to want the things that you want. And unless you believe that you're worthy, unless that you b- practice love, you're never going to think that you deserve the things that you want. Right. So tell the story. Okay. So I'm probably going to stop mean, it's hysterically. It's, I'll, I'll, shorten it. I'll shorten it. So the, the bottom line is, is that so in 1990, I was a senior in college at Dartmouth and my parents came to visit from Western Michigan and we went to this place called Simon Pierce, which is a famous glass blowing mill. And as we walked into the restaurant, I had an experience that you may be able to relate to. And that is I walked in and I immediately saw this painting hanging on the wall and it was about the size of a door, only horizontal. And it was a Vermont landscape. And I was drawn into it immediately. Like I was no longer in that restaurant. I was standing in that field. I could feel that breeze. I had never, ever had an experience like that with a painting. Have you ever had an experience like that with art? No. I mean, not like that. Not like that. I mean, yeah, my sense was that this is very atypical for you. Very. So I kind of lost it. The, 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 The restaurant was quiet. And then... I leaned back and suddenly kind of back in the moment, I'm like, I'm going to own this painting someday. It just, that was what was right there. And I looked at the price and it said like $3,000. I'm like, not today. And I went back and I sat down and that was it. But the painting never left my mind. You see, there's something called the Zygonark effect. I I always say it wrong, Mm -hmm. but it's like, there's a checklist in your brain that when you have a moment where you're like, this is important your brain puts it on a checklist. Yeah, there's like a notch. Yes, a notch happens. And now your brain as part of the filter in the brain is always going to be kind of scanning the subconscious to let anything into your mind related to that incident. It can be positive, by the way, like with the painting, or this is how trauma happens too. Mm. Like you have this high intensity emotional experience that notches something in your brain and now your brain kicks in to remember. So, uh Bottom line is, uh, I always thought about that painting. Years go by. Whenever somebody would say Vermont, I'd think of the painting. I don't know why. I can't explain it. Never wanted a painting before. I was not an art student. It's <laughs> going to law it's school. It's not like you're out like, collecting art. No, 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 yes. no, no. Yeah. And so I, you know, fast forward the story 10 years and my, uh, Chris and I are, are engaged and we're going to go up to Vermont to see the leaves. 
And immediately I'm like, we got to go to Simon Pierce. I got to show you the painting. So we pull up to the mill and we walk in and right in front, there is boom, a painting by the same artist, Gail Shepard. And I'm like, oh my God, it's here. And we race all around the place and it's gone. And the funny thing was, and this is the way your brain works. Chris was more disappointed than I was. I literally turned to him and said, it's okay, dude. Like, it'd be weird if we're still here after 10 years. Mm -hmm. I'm going to track this thing down. I actually said to him, you know what's going to happen, Chris? I'm going to be able to buy this like 40 years from now. It's going to be hanging in the corporate lobby of some building. And I'm going to have to track down the owner and pay like quadruple the money they paid. But I'm going to own this damn thing. I have a mission, yes. So a couple years pass and... um it's my birthday. I think I was turning 30. And Chris says, uh, Chris gets a couple people to give money. And he said I could buy anything I wanted with it. So I had, a, I had, what, 500 bucks. Now, I'm pregnant at the time with our first kid. I should have bought a crib or stools. But for whatever reason, the Zygonark effect takes over. And I'm like, the painting. So I call the mill. And I get this guy on the phone. I'm like, uh, you know, I want to buy a Kale Shepherd piece. And I said, could you send me Polaroids? And he's like, sure. And I tell him the budget and he goes, I'll, I'll send you Polaroids of some of her smaller things. Mm-hmm. And she's like blowing up in the meantime, right? Yeah. She's a very, very successful Vermont landscape artist. And so I, <laughs> I, I, I say to him, you know, by the way, there's this one painting and I describe the painting I'd seen over 10 years ago. And he said, well, that was way before my time, but I bet Gail will know. And I'm like, Gail, you know, Gail. He's like, of course I know Gail. She like lives in, in down the road. Here's her number. So for two days, I paced around the apartment with 500 bucks in my pocket, driving Chris crazy. Cause I felt like, what am I going to say to her? And I must be a weirdo. I've been stalking this lady. I've been thinking about her for 10 years. I can't afford a painting. You know, what, who am I to buy a painting? Like what the hell? So finally, Chris is like, would you call her? I'm going to call her. You're driving me crazy. Uh-huh. So I call her. And I start talking a mile a minute and she was amazing. And then um, I said, by the way, there was this one painting. And I go and I explain this painting. There's a stand of poplar trees down the center and a big mountainscape behind it and this beautiful blue Vermont sky and geese flying in formation overhead. And I could hear her thinking on the other end of the line. And she said, you know, Mel, I've done so many large scale uh, paintings over the years, I'd hate to mistake the one you're talking about. But I'll tell you what, what if my husband and I meet you and Chris at the mill at Simon Pierce and we'll walk all around and have lunch and I'll tell you the stories behind every painting. And if you don't see what you like there, I'll take you back to my studio, which is a couple miles down the river. And you can look at everything I'm working on. And if you don't see anything you like there, then you can go through all my slides and see if you can find that painting that you saw 10 years ago. And I said, deal. So a month passes, we go up to the mill, I walk in, we meet each other, she's amazing, she's like twice our age, just incredibly cool lady. She's walking around, as we're walking around looking at these paintings, Rich, I've got, I'm like eight months pregnant, I'm realizing these are 10 times the amount of money that I have. Mm-hmm. I can't afford this. Like, I don't, I don't have this kind of money. And I'm getting like more and more into that imposter syndrome. What am I doing mode? Oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. I'm meeting somebody I idolize. I don't deserve to be here. Right, wasting her time because she thinks she's going to get a payday out of this. Correct. We sit down and she goes, now that you're sitting down, I have something to tell you. 
Um, she said, there's only been two times in my career as an artist that I've done two studies of the same piece. And your painting is one of them. It's one of a pair. She knew all along. She knew all along. She was playing games with you about not knowing which painting. Yeah. And she said, the sister piece to the one that you saw all those years ago is sitting in my studio right now where it's been for the past 11 years. I start sobbing. Everybody's like totally emotional. Her husband's like, you should have seen her when you, when she was on the phone with you. It was like she saw a ghost. So we get in the car and we drive to the mill. And when we walk in, there in the center of this massive kind of barn studio space is an easel with a painting taped up with painter's tape on it. And it was the sister to my painting. There were slight differences, not as much movement in the grass, but it was one of the most extraordinary experiences of my life. It was as if time suspended and I was standing before that painting in 1990 saying it would be mine. And there I was 11 years later standing in front of it. And then I realized, oh my God, I can't afford this. And Chris walks over and he's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, just promise me someday, like promise me that I don't need a a jewelry. I don't need a car. Like just promise me you will buy me this thing. And he kind of leans over and goes, hey, Gail, how much for the big one? And she said, "Um, Mel can have it for 500 bucks because clearly when I was making it 11 years ago, I was making it for her. And so it hangs in my kitchen. It's on the back of the book. Um, this is the galley, though, right? Yeah. So wait, is it in the... Is it in I the, think so, yeah. Yeah. And um, it's a reminder every day that your mind is designed to help you get what you want. I never stop believing that I could make it happen. And when you tell your mind what's important to you, there is extraordinary science that proves that your mind has a live and ever-changing filter, a a live network that changes how it views the world, what it lets in, what it blocks out. And if you program your mind correctly, and if you're clear about what you want to create, your mind will help you get what you want. You need to create an environment of excellence. Excellence. Most people's environments are not excellent. The people around you, the the videos that you watch, the things that are on your wall, the voices that are in your head, you have these moments that are bold, that are courageous, that make you feel unstoppable and you can do anything. And then you fall back down because the environment is the thing that's keeping you small. It takes a giant effort to overcome your environment. You definitely can. It's definitely possible. Tons of people are doing it. But it takes that giant effort to say, I don't want to stay stuck here. Most people stay stuck. Most people make minimal, minimal, minimal improvements in their life year over year. And if you don't want to stay where you are right now, fast forward to one year from today, you don't want to stay stuck. You want to be in a different place. 
could actually be physically moving, but a different place in terms of your finances, in terms of your purpose, in terms of how much you're giving and caring and sharing and the life that you want to build. You want to be somewhere totally different. Like today, this is not acceptable anymore. I, I accept that this is where I am right now, but where I end up is not going to be the same spot as where I am right now, right? If that's your commitment, the biggest shift that will help you get from where you are now to where you want to be is creating that environment of excellence. What's the fastest way to learn a language? What's the fastest way to learn Japanese? Well, it's to go to Japan. Sure, you can read some books and, and you can hire a tutor. And the, the more intense it becomes, the more you're actually living it, the faster you're going to pick it up. So if you want to develop the mindset of the high achiever, if you want to become that person, the people that you look up to, the, the whoever of the world, like I want to be the next whoever, perfect, that person, the more you hang around with them, the more it's going to rub off on you how they think. Because how they think, how they act, how they behave, how they see the world is very different than how you see it right now and how the people around you definitely see the world right now. So how do you do it? How do you start to become it? Well, I look at what I'm doing. And this was one of my biggest challenges when I was getting started. And honestly, still in. Like, I, I think the biggest problem in the world is a lack of belief. I'm trying to solve the world's biggest problem. People don't believe in themselves enough. I don't. You don't. Oprah doesn't. People don't believe in themselves enough for the next level. So how do you start to believe in yourself more? The thing that helped me the most was to have these successful people around me constantly. And so I want to share a few tactics that I think can really help you that has really helped me as being the shy, introverted kid who never wanted to be in front of a, a camera and was making 300 bucks a month and <laughs> quit on my business partner and thought life was over, right, to, to now here. And it's taken me 20 years to get here. So hopefully we can shorten that path for you if you actually follow some of the advice in this video. So step number one, how do we create that environment of excellence? What you feed into your brain really, really, really matters. So figure out how you love to learn. For me, it's videos. I like to see things. I need to be visual. If that's you, then you need to have a way to have those videos coming into your life every day. It could be part of your morning routine. That's why I make this channel. Part of your morning routine. Subscribe to the channel every morning, every weekday. We got a new video out there for you to give you the shot of Express that'll help you. But if it's not my channel, it's some other channel, one of my other channels, subscribe to the channels that make you feel bold, powerful, unstoppable, give you hope, give you belief in yourself. And then watch that video every day or listen to that podcast every day or read that book every day. The trick is it can't be the same book or this, the, the one video because that one video on repeat is going to lose its effectiveness, right? You know what? You, you watch a video, it gets you all fired up, and then you watch it again the next day and it's not as, oh, what happened? I don't feel as good. You watch it the next day and the feeling's gone. So you can't just read the same book over and over, watch the same video over and over and over again. The key is to find a consistent source. So if you love this channel or you love this video, I'm making other videos just like this that you can subscribe to. If you like an author, go find their other books or go find the people that inspire them so that you can read something every day. If you like a podcast, go find other podcasts like them so you have something every day. So you you are manipulating what comes in your head with intention now. 
with intention. So you're not just scrolling through things like I am going to watch one of these videos every day to slowly shift myself forward because it'll happen. If you love Elon Musk and you watch Elon Musk every day, what will happen is slowly day by day, you will start to think like Elon Musk. It will happen. He will pull you forward. You will start to see the big difference in how he thinks versus how the people around you think versus how you think right now. And he will give you more courage and more boldness and more a sense of hope and purpose that you can do it too. You'll start to think more like him. So be careful who you pick. And maybe you don't like Elon Musk. Maybe you like Kanye West or Oprah Winfrey or whoever. But the more you're around that person, the more you will start to think like that. So you want to put that as part of your daily routine that every day, because yesterday was a different day. You might have been fired up, bold, motivated, great. But today's, today's a new day. The motivation you had yesterday is nowhere near what it is right now when you wake up. Right? You get the best day of all time. You wake up the next day and it's gone. So how do you keep the consistency? The routine. Tell yourself, I'm going to watch a video even when I don't want to, even when I feel low energy, even when, right, all the excuses we come up with, I'm going to watch a video to get myself into the state I need to get into because I want to follow, I want to follow my dreams. I don't want to be stuck here anymore. Uh, Tied to that is then subscribe to the channels that make you feel that way. So do an audit of all of the channels you follow on YouTube, of all the people you follow on Instagram, anywhere you're spending time on social. Do an audit of who makes you actually feel more bold and who makes you just waste time or who makes you feel bad about yourself. There's some people you probably follow who when you look at their stuff, it actually makes you feel worse about yourself. Unfollow those people immediately, right? They don't care about you, so why are you caring about that? And then the people who make you feel better Follow them, subscribe to them so that when you happen to be on the platform, when you happen to be throwing, going through YouTube or Instagram, you see them and it makes you remember why you're doing what you do. So the first part of it is a habit where we are designing our routines around this, that I'm going to watch a video every day with my heroes so that they pull me forward, right? We're putting it into our calendar. The second part of it is I'm also going to subscribe to channels and people that inspire me so that when I happen to be on the platforms, I'm feeding myself with things that inspire me and lift me up instead of waste my time or put me down. Okay. So that habit, that environment really, really matters. The second part of environment to create our environment of excellence, right, is the physical environment. So this office inspires me. This office, this was all with intent. The people on the wall behind me, we got Steve Jobs, AP Janini, my parents, Howard Schultz, Kanye West, the trophies, uh, you know, the YouTube stuff, the, the, the getting, get my hands wrong here. This side, you know, the art, <laughs> the art that people drew, my book, uh, my neck brace from when I broke my neck, like all, even the colors on the wall, all of this, it inspires me. This inspires me. When I walk into this office, I, I want to believe more in myself. I see Steve Jobs staring me down. I see my parents staring me down. It's like a reminder of what I want to do because I wake up and I, and I don't have, you know, the, the, the most energy. I don't feel super bold and like, let's go take on the day, right? I, I don't have that as soon as I wake up. But we manufacture it through the habits and routines, but also the actual physical environment. And the beauty about this is you only have to set it up once. You know, I set this up once and then I walk in and every day I'm being hit with these messages and reminders of the person that I want to be. So whether that's a mood board you put up for yourself, whether it's people that inspire you, 
you have to look at the thing and it inspires you to want to push a little harder. It inspires you to want to believe in yourself more. It inspires you to want to go off and take some kind of action today. The physical environment matters a lot and you can control that. So think about think about your office, think about your bedroom, think about your car, think about where you're spending significant time and how much of that has actually been done with intent. How much of your physical environment has been created with intent to make you believe in yourself more? It matters a lot. And then the third thing, really quick, is the actual, your outfit, the clothes that you wear, how you show up for yourself. When I put this on, I remind myself that I'm a superhero going to work. That might sound really dumb or cheesy, but you know what? It works for me. I am a superhero going to work. I'm not fighting crime. I'm fighting lack of belief. <laughs> I want people to believe in themselves more and I'm going to work. Uh, when I see, there was a, a Green Arrow show I used to watch. And when they were in their, their base, in their lair, they always put their outfits on a mannequin, right? So they're when they're off fighting crime, they're in their uniforms. But then when they come back to their base, they, they're in normal clothes, but they put their outfits on a mannequin. So I went and got myself a mannequin. It's, it's just you can't see it but it's just sitting here off camera i got a mannequin and it's got my hoodie on it as a reminder that i'm a superhero going to work every day and again that might sound really cheesy or dumb or corny but i like it it works for me and putting this on every day instead of just showing up in my pajamas i just i work from home you know we've got 30 something people on the team uh, i i don't see my team physically that often most people work from home i could just show up every day in my pajamas but putting this on reminds me that I'm a superhero with a mission. <laughs> Whether you want to adopt that or not is up to you. But but how you present yourself for yourself, not just for the camera. I'm not putting this on just for the camera. I'm putting this on because this is what I put on. This is for me. I could make a video in my pajamas. That's fine. But I'm making this for me. I wear this for me. What do you need to do for you? Not just because there's some expectations. When your expectations of yourself become higher than what you think other people's expectations are for you, that's when the game starts to change. When I'm wearing something just because of how I think you guys will perceive me or, or some speech I'm doing or some meeting, I'm, I'm only living up to that person's standards or what I think their standards are. And said, no, I'm doing this for me. I wear this for me. I show up like this even if I'm not making any kind of content. I only make content once a week, usually for YouTube. What are the? What am I doing the other days of the week? I'm still wearing this because I'm a superhero going to work and it's my reminder. This is how you start to create an environment of excellence, guys. Your environment is keeping you where you are. Your environment is keeping you stuck. And if you don't want to be stuck anymore, if you want to change your circumstances, if you don't want to be in the same spot you are right now, one year from today, you have to create an environment of excellence. How do we do that? Number one, we start feeding our mind with excellence from the videos and podcasts and books from people who inspire us. Number two, we change our physical environment. So that you walk into a room, you walk into your car, you walk into your bedroom or office or wherever you're spending time. And it pushes you forward to step into the person that you want to be. And then number three, the outfits, what you wear, how you present yourself, having a higher standard for yourself than what other people expect. That you are a superhero going to work every day because you are on a mission. You've got a great heart. You've got tons of ideas. I see it over and over and over and over and over again so much potential and just stuck just stuck because there's a lack of momentum 
that stems from having a really poor environment. If you can just change with intention that I am going to create an environment of excellence for myself that inspires me and pushes me forward to step into the person I want to believe that I can be, if you can do that every day, your entire life will change. Learning to create our minds the way we want is the basis of creating the world the way we want. There is a wonderful story in the yogic lore. On a certain day, a man took a walk. He went for a long walk. Accidentally, unawares, he walked into paradise. Fortunate, isn't he? <laughs> he just took a walk and he landed up in paradise. After this long walk, he felt little tired. So he thought, oh, I am tired. I wish I could rest somewhere. He looked around, there there was a nice tree, underneath which there was very cushiony grass. So it was inviting. He went and put his head down there and slept. After a few hours he woke up, well rested, and he thought, oh, I am well rested. But I'm feeling hungry, I wish I had something to eat. And he thought about all the nice things that he ever wanted to eat in his life. And instantly, all those things appeared in front of him. You need to understand, they have the services like that. Hungry people don't ask questions. Food came and he ate. Stomach became full. Then he thought, Oh, my stomach is full, I wish I had something to drink. All the nice things that he ever wanted to drink, he thought about it and all of them just appeared in front of him. Drinking people also don't ask questions, so he drank. Now with a little bit of alcohol in him, you know Charles Darwin told you, all of you are monkeys, your tail fell away, not me. Charles Darwin told you that you were all monkeys and your tail fell away and then you became human. Yes, definitely the tail fell away. But the monkey, in yoga, we always refer to an unestablished mind as markata, which means a monkey. Why we are referring to the mind as a monkey is, what are the qualities of a monkey? One thing about a monkey is, it's unnecessary moment. And another thing about the monkey is, if I say you're monkeying somebody, what does it mean? Imitation. Monkey and imitation have become synonymous. So these two essential qualities of a monkey are very much the qualities of an unestablished mind. Unnecessary moment, you don't have to learn it from the monkey, you can t teach it to the monkey. And imitation is full-time job of the mind. So when these two qualities are on, a mind is referred to as a monkey. So this monkey became active within him. He just looked around, thought, what the hell is happening here? I asked for food, food came. I asked for drink, drink came. There must be ghosts around here. And ghosts came. Oh, the ghosts have come, they're going to surround me and torture me, he thought. Immediately the ghost surrounded him and started torturing him. 
Then he started screaming in pain and said, Oh, they're going to kill me and he died. One day, my doctor talked to me about Dupixin. Just now he said he's a fortunate being. The problem is he was sitting under a kalpa vriksha or a wishing tree. He asked for food, food came. He asked for drink, drink came. He asked for ghost, ghost came. He asked for torture, torture came. He asked for death, death happened. Now don't go looking for these kalpavrukshas in the forest. You can barely find a tree these days. A well-established mind, a mind which is in a state of samyukti, is referred to as a kalpavriksha. If you organize your mind to a certain level of organization, it in turn organizes the whole system. Your body, your emotion, your energies, everything gets organized in that direction. Once all these four dimensions of you, your physical body, your mind, your emotion and the fundamental life energies are organized in one direction. Once you are like this, anything that you wish happens without even lifting a little finger actually. It would help to assist it with activity, but even without doing any activity, you can still manifest what you want. If you organize these four dimensions in one direction and keep it unwavering in that direction for a certain period of time. Right now the problem with your mind is, every moment it is changing its direction. It is like you want to travel somewhere and every two steps if you keep changing your direction, the question of you reaching the destination is very remote unless it happens by chance. So, organizing our minds and in turn organizing the whole system and these four basic dimensions of who you are right now in one direction, if you do this, you are a kalpavruksha yourself. Anything that you wish will happen. But right now, if you look at your lives, everything that you have wished for till now, if it happens, you have finished. Everything and everybody that you have desired for, if all of that lands up in your house today, could you live with that? Once we're empowered like this, it's very important that our physical action, emotional action, mental action and energy actions are controlled and properly directed. If it is not so, we become destructive, self-destructive. Right now, that is our problem. The technology which is supposed to make our life beautiful and easy has become the source of all the problem that we are destroying the very basis of our life which is the planet. So what should have been a boon? We are making a curse out of it. What has brought incredible levels of comfort and convenience to us in the last hundred years or so has also become a threat to our life simply because we are not conscious action, we are in a compulsive state of action. So organizing our minds fundamentally means moving from a compulsive state of activity to a conscious state of activity. You might have heard of people for whom they asked for something and beyond all expectations it came true, to, true for them. Generally this happens to people who are in faith. Now, Let's say you want to build a house. If you start thinking, 
oh, I want to build a house. To build a house, I need 50 lakhs, but I have only 50 rupees in my pocket. Not possible, not possible, not possible. The moment you say not possible, you are also saying I don't want it. So on one level, you're creating a desire that you want something. On another level, you're saying I don't want it. So in this conflict, it may not happen. Someone who has some faith in a god or in a temple or whatever, who is a simple-minded. Faith works only for those people who are simple-minded. Thinking people, people who are too much thinking, for them it never works. A childlike person who has a simple faith in his god or his temple or whatever, he goes to the temple and says, Shiva, I want a house. I don't know how. You must make it for me. Now in his mind, there are no negative thoughts. Will it happen? Will it not happen? Is it possible? Is it not possible? These things are completely removed by this simple act of faith. Now he believes Shiva will do it for him and it will happen. This changes everything we know about what really causes toenails to be thick, discolored and cracked. Most people have been brainwashed So is Shiva going to come and build your house? No, I want you to understand. God will not lift his little finger for you. What you refer to as God is the source of creation. As a creator, he has done a phenomenal job. There's no question about it. Could you think of a better creation than this? Is it in anybody's imagination to think anything better than what is there right now? So as a creator, he has done his job wonderfully well, but... If you want life to happen the way you want it, because right now, the very crux of your happiness and your well-being is this. If at all, if you're unhappy, <laughs> the only and only reason why you're unhappy is life is not happening the way you think it should happen. That's all it is. So if life is not happening the way you think it is, it should happen, you're unhappy. If life happens the way you think it should happen, you're happy. It's as simple as that. So if life has to happen the way you think it should happen, first of all, how you think, with how much focus you think, how much stability is there in your thought, and how much reverberance is there in the thought process will determine whether your thought will become a reality or is it just an empty thought. Or how you do not create any impediments for your thought by creating negative thought process. This possible, is something possible or not possible, is destroying humanity. What is possible and not possible is not your business, it's nature's business. Your business is just to strive for what you want. Because you made it this far in a video, I want to celebrate you. Most people start and don't finish. Most people never actually follow through. Most people say they want something, but they don't ever do the work to actually get it. But you are different. You are special. Believe Nation, you made it here all the way to the end, and I love you. So it's a special celebration if you put a hashtag believe down in the comments below on this video. I will showcase you and celebrate you somewhere on the screen in a future video because you are awesome. For a deeper dive into consciousness and awareness, check the video right there next to me. I think you'll love it. Continue to believe and I'll see you there. I have people say something to me all the time. You know, I, I don't have...
did Bruce Lipton ever show up? Uh, just a little bit. Maybe just for a short moment. That's yeah. okay. That was amazing. That was Satguru. Tell everybody who Satguru is, Rama. Oh, he's been on YouTube for many, many years, and he's a um, devotee of Lord Shiva. Ah. And, um... Well, I think we should do this one more because of the time. It's, mm. I, I just... Mm, maybe... Maybe not. Okay. I guess what we'll do is we'll read Meg Benedict's. But this was a... And, and... How about we do this one, Aurora Ray? I mean, we played it. It might be the same as... I don't know. Um, Let's see. I'm not sure. Okay, I'll read Meg Benedict's. That will be her own unique response. Meg Benedict. Zero degrees regime change. Yes, yes, and yes. Zero degree power pulses in the field while Pluto sits at zero degree as Aquarius. Pluto sends approximately 20 years in each astrological sign. The entire orbit lasts 248 years. Pluto energizes zero degrees Aquarius until June 11th. Oh, that's when the death ceiling has got its last stand. Oh, this is going to be real interesting. Then re-enters Aquarius on January 20th, 2024 to September 1st, 2024. Wow, right before the election, pretty much. And November 19th, after the election, 2024, holy cow, to March 9th, 2043. Wow. Last time Pluto was in Aquarius during 1778 to 1798. 20 years, this transit ignited the signing of the United States Constitution plus the American and French Revolution. Oh my. Pluto transforms whatever it touches in a death-rebirth cycle. During Pluto's transformative cycle, it will bring unprocessed feelings, beliefs, and experiences from the subconscious into conscious awareness. Pluto's job is dredging up what no longer is beneficial out of the shadows to be released and let go. As you know, we need to feel it to heal it. As we are aware of the imbalances, then we can start to take positive action in a new direction. As a condition becomes conscious, the light can enter and transmute hidden shadow. Conscious light is the universal transformer. What is Pluto's transit in Aquarius bringing to our awareness for transformation? Pluto questions corrupt hierarchies, 
initiating a regime change, a new society. Pluto is amplifying the Aquarian Renaissance, a new era of creative output, innovation, and conscious lifestyles. During Pluto's transit in Aquarius of community, the world will band together for humanitarian and spiritual causes. While Pluto holds space in zero-degree power, take advantage of this opportunity. Coming soon are two powerful eclipses. We enter the eclipse corridor with the first eclipse in the final degrees of 29 degrees 52 seconds Aries on April 20th coming up. This is a rare astronomical hybrid hybrid solar eclipse. This unusual cosmic event is a unique combination of a total and annular eclipse. As a result, the moon's shadow will fall on the earth, partially blocking the sun, the sun rays, and creating a beautiful ring of fire around the moon. According to space.com, during the 21st century, just seven out of 224 solar eclipses were hybrid. Just seven out of 224. Eclipses are times of alignment. Their goal is to remind us of our life purpose. During during this new moon eclipse, be ready to ignite your inner fire, which is Aries. Initial, prime initial fire, you know, and embrace a season of new possibilities. Eclipses are turbocharged gateway events. During eclipses, the veils dissolve, bringing the physical and spiritual realms together. Be open. Be receptive to new energies, new consciousness, new downloads of data that illuminates your destiny path and plan. A rare hybrid solar eclipse, a new moon on steroids, portends a profound turning point. This is the first eclipse on the Aries-Libra nodal axis since 2015. This solar eclipse inspires self-improvement, self-mastery of primal urges. In the sign of Aries, the eclipse will highlight matters related to courage, bravery, self-image, and independence. Mm. This eclipse gateway encourages finding a balance between caring for personal needs and others' needs. Join other light beings and visiting star seeds for the eclipse gateway activations. Travel to your soul's original home star and connect with your unique 
home star light. So then you can register if you want to do this. HTTP colon forward slash forward slash newearthcentral.com slash question mark small p is in Paul equal sign three five seven four nine one lovingly Meg oh. exquisite 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 so now what okay we're going to do a little bit of this we got a few more minutes so this is called this is Robin LaPlante's latest life is for living don't waste it conform conforming to what others think you should do rama all this stuff is cut off that's how it showed up no you have to fix the margins dear i'll see if i can read it live your life exactly how you were intended to live it no regrets the new moon of March <laughs> something oh, journey. Utilize this month's full moon to gather more illumination and clarity that you will... It's too much cut off, Rama. I have to print it again. Yeah, please do that. Yeah. Um, new moon solar eclipse later in the month. So we went through all this. Let me see if I can read this. I'm not sure. Maybe I'm just going to have to let it go. Let me just do, uh, instead, we'll do Tanya, Gabrielle, and Rama will reprint this, and I'll read it later. So, um, Tanya, Gabrielle, Happy April. Powerful master number 11, universal month. 4 plus 2 plus 0 plus 2 plus 3 equals an 11. 11, yeah, I'm, I'm a, yes, 4, 20, 23. 11 made up two ones symbolize, symbolizes double new beginnings shifts and a major call to always be present in the moment. April's 11 new beginnings energy is even more magnified by a total solar eclipse, new moon eclipse, in Aries on April 20th. Yay. Yes. New moons are always the start of, and 11 is a master number, as above, so below. Just add that new moons are always the start of a new lunar cycle aries is the first sign and a total solar eclipse in aries attracts electric exciting fresh starts yes we accept what's more the solar eclipse is exact at 29 degrees which adds up to an 11 this 11 months and 29-11 solar eclipse fire you up with the energy to launch new ventures. Try something completely new. Commit to making new plans. Journey to places you haven't been before. Exciting as it 
is. It can also be overwhelming and intense because we are dealing with very strong shifts in energy and they can appear in any part of your life. Take heart because the opportunities are as numerous as the intensity of change. April's 11 gateway means you have the courage to create your reality, to be completely there for every moment of life and show up how you want to show up, how you want to be. What you get hit by, excuse me, as you get hit by a challenging situation, immediately say, this is going to work out far better than I can imagine. It's going to be to my advantage. I completely trust in the divine timing. April's 11 frequency of heightened creativity, intuition, and new beginnings merges with Mercury retrograde in, in Taurus one day after the solar, the total solar eclipse. Expect a lot to shift in your lives this month. Step through the 11 gateway. Risk it all to be fully present now. At the light of master number 11, as the light of master number 11 reveals more and more truth, you are equally inspired to shine your light. Trust in your heart. This is where source lives. Trust that creator will always provide. Take every moment to learn, grow, create, have fun, explore and experience express yourself allow love the source of all creation on every dimension to guide you be at ease with life as it unfolds discover more highly credible details of April's wonderful star code in the premium wealth forecast love and blessings Tanya Gabrielle April 23rd, 2023 is a special 11 gateway act and it activates many advantages, especially as you know the precise forecast for each daily star code. And I believe that our brother Richard will have plenty to say about the stars. So we're going to take an early break, I think. Well, maybe I'll just read the last little bit of even though we played that at first. Okay, I'm going to just read this. You have come from the stars to make sure that Earth will become the brightest star for other civilizations. That is why hap- that is what happens as a planet's population moves from darkness to light. Their planet shines and is seen as a bright star throughout the galaxy. The Syrians are a group of star beings and their appearance is often associated with that of, this is different, okay, with that of the constellation Orion. They are said to be the highest level of being and it is said 
that up to 4% of the total population on Earth has some type of Syrian DNA. The Syrians are also said to be the ancestors of the Native Americans. They are considered wizards and masters of the time. A Syrian's entire being is made up of the past, present, and future. They live many lifetimes, from 1 to 11,000. They are immortal and ageless. The Syrians live for eons and are apparently able to transcend space and time. They hold great wisdom and power. Syrians are pure energy and exist in all dimensions, including the third dimension. Syrians have a shield that surrounds them. The shield is made of a violet-blue liquid. Syrians have the ability to shapeshift as well as the ability to teleport long distances. They also possess the ability to fly and in rare cases mm-hmm. the ability to shapeshift into animals. Syrians also have the ability to alter time, space, and dimension and to alter matter. The Syrian star seeds, also known as the Syrian High Council, that came to Earth to help humanity and have since committed having and have com- since committed themselves to the protection of the Earth. Syrians are often often described as tall, thin, and gaunt, making them appear otherworldly. They also have long, glowing blue hair. And their skin is usually described as being translucent or glowing. The Syrians are commonly seen in natural settings, such as deserts and forests. As entering the Earth's atmosphere, they sometimes use jet black spacecraft. They first became aware of Earth thousands of years ago. It was then that the Syrians began to observe humanity and protect it. At first, they were cautious and distrustful of humanity. After centuries of observation, however, they began to realize that humanity was not a threat. The Syrians, who originate from the planet Sirius, are the brightest stars in the night sky and have long fascinated humans. From mid-northern latitudes throughout the year, this star is easy to see without the aid of a telescope or binoculars. Today, astronomers say that Sirius is no ordinary star. It's a binary star system, meaning that it contains two stars or orbiting two stars orbiting each other. One star called Sirius B is significantly larger than Sirius A. The star at the center of our system, which you can see with the unaided eye. Sirius B has a mass more than 25 times that of the sun. Wow. Astronomers also estimate that Sirius B, the crystal people come from Sirius B. Yeah. And Obama in his higher being is from Andromeda, but he 
He's part of the Council of Nine. Uh, uh, on, is that on Sirius A or B? I think it's Sirius B. Sirius B. He's part of the Council of Nine on Sirius B. He's the ninth member. And he has been traveling from the time he was a young senator in Illinois all the way through this time, back and forth to Sirius. I guess we just don't hear about that, but that's been going on. And he's been participating in a greater uh, um, overlighting of the destiny or the future of where humanity is going and the earth uh, ascending with us. One star called Sirius B is significantly larger than Sirius A. The star at the center of our system, which you can see with the unaided eye. Sirius B has a mass more twenty-five time, more than 25 times that of the sun. Astronomers also estimate that Sirius B is a billion years old. Sirius is 10 times as bright as the moon, although the moon is 40 times closer to the earth. Sirius is the brightest star in the constellation Canis, Canis Major also known as the Great Dog. In Greek mythology, Canis Major is Zeus's dog mm-hmm. guarding him and his cattle. In Roman mythology, <clears throat> Canis Major is Arcus, the guardian of Zeus's cattle. In Arabic, the name is Al-Sir, the dog star. That's right. Wengsen... <laughs> W-E-N-X-N-G Wenxing means literary star in traditional Chinese. What a word. Okay, we're going to be done in a little while. We'll take a little extra moments here. In Indian astronomy, Sirius is known as Rohini, meaning rising. In Hindu mythology, Rohini is the wife of the sage Vish, Vishvarmitra. Sirius is also associated with the various deities. Sirius is Svarga, the heavenly kingdom, as well as the home of the souls. The Syrians taught humans many advanced sciences, including the sciences of math, physics, chemistry, biology, and medicine. They also helped humanity with the construction of various technologies, such as the laser, atomic science, modern communications, robotics, and artificial intelligence. The Syrian star seeds, also known as the light workers, are seeds that contain the blueprint of the Syrian system. Star seeds are given this blueprint as a gift to assist humans in awakening and transitioning into the fifth dimension. The Syrians call this the new earth. They are here to experience this beautiful planet in the process of becoming a paradise free from the tyranny and corruption that currently exists on earth. The Syrians are opening many doors for us by their ongoing fight against the cabal. They have revealed their presence to increase our understanding, understanding, overstanding of our cosmic family. The need for continued secrecy is diminishing because 
the Syrian's light will restore planetary freedom, abundance, and unity consciousness. Pets are often sent to chosen individuals to assist them, help them heal, and comfort them. Pets are sent to someone by the person's star family, which also enables them to monitor the individual's progress on Earth in conscious evolution. Cats originate originate from the Lyrans. Dogs come from Sirius. Mm-hmm. We love you dearly. We are here with you. We are your family of light. Aho, Aurora Ray, Ambassador of the Galactic Federation. And so we will take a break now. And then we'll be back with a look at the stars with our brother Richard and Musica and Tanya Gabrielle and uh, more with Tanya Gabrielle and uh, Kay Pacha. Correct. All right, now it's day for now, everybody. We'll see you very soon, 10 or 15. And Richard, this is Tara. Yes, what? I wanted to tell you that um, Kay Pacha is 33 minutes and Tanya Gabrielle is 13 minutes. That makes 46. Okay. Okay. Okay, here we go. April Fool's Day, so no fooling around. Right. That's right. We do everything opposite at my place. Right. Yeah. That's right. All right. Well, I don't know about your chart, but with my chart, you know, at this time of day, everything's on the on the right hand side. Oh. Yeah. And of course, if you go back, if you go back about six hours, and everything's overhead. Right? Oh. Go back another six hours, and everything's on the left side. So right? you need a nap in yeah. between each of those phases, I think. <laughs> well, again, you got you got call it twelve general general uh, positions here, you know. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so Pluto, we'll start with Pluto. Uh, one degree Aquarius. Right. Saturn, three degrees Pisces. Oh, by the way, Pluto is uh, square Mercury tonight and sextile Neptune. Right. Neptune's at 26 Pisces. And it's still square Mars, but not much. Mars is getting far enough into Cancer that the square to Neptune is going away. Mars is at four Cancer. All right, Sun's at 12, 13. Sun's at 13, Chiron's at 16. Jupiter's at 20. So that's your... That's your uh, motivator, the power motivator of the season. They're all working together. 
when the, and the sun comes up in the morning, Chiron's right behind it, and then Jupiter, and then Mercury's at 27, 28 Aries. And Mercury is square Pluto, and it's trying the moon tonight at 26 Leo. And the north node is moved to five Taurus. And then we got our, I guess I'm going to call it beneficial configuration with Venus conjunct Uranus. Venus is at 20 and Uranus is at 17 towards tonight. And it's not, I mean, basically you got, you just got the, Three squares. You got Pluto square, Mercury, and you got Neptune square, Mars, but not not real tough. And and the Sun's at thirteen, and so it's not square Mercury, uh, Mars anymore. Although it shows it on this chart, because I think they use ten degrees. For, uh, if it's within 10 degrees, they're gonna they're gonna call it a square, or they're gonna call it a trine. <coughs> but <clears throat> that's, uh, I mean, that's it. I mean, it takes. Let's see, it takes uh, three. It takes three hours after sunrise for Venus to rise in the morning time. And it takes another two and a half hours or so for Mars to rise. So that's, I mean, it's still, all the planets are still less than 180 degrees. Let's see, we've got uh, 27, 180 minus 27. Uh, 180, 160, 153. Okay, so the the angle the angle of the planets are in a 150 degree arc, and if you remember back a couple of months ago, we were 140 degree arc, but Mars is Mars is moving faster uh, than everything, but Let's see here. Mars is moving at three and three quarter degrees. No, a half a degree a day. Okay, Mars is moving half a degree a day. Mercury and Venus are moving still over one degree a day. The moon is slowed this week at 12 degrees a day. And then you know once once you get to Jupiter, that's like fourteen minutes a day, and then Saturn is six minutes a day, and Uranus is three minutes a day, and Neptune is two minutes a day, and Pluto is less than a minute a day so uh Mercury and Venus is still moving fast, and we are going to have a 
Mercury retrograde, I think, uh, within the month. Uh, Pluto is going to be the first one to go retrograde. So, enjoy your Leo moon. Tomorrow it'll be in Virgo. And uh, we'll see what's worth commenting on after Kaipaka. Okay. Good right. Chiron, 16, 16 Aries. Here we go. Conjunct Jupiter at 20 Aries. today uh, doing the Paley Report a little different. I'm staying inside. I'm not doing the aspects first instead. And I've got what? America. If you have ever contacted New Paradigm Astrology for a reading, for a workshop, to take a course, to, you know, get one of our videos out of the library, anything, you have contacted America. She's the surfer. (laughs) Right now, she's in Sumatra on a surfing, uh, you know, exploration, and uh, she sent back that video. I thought I'd put it out there because it's very apropos. It's very appropriate for what we need to be doing these days. We need to be balancing. We need to surf the wave. There's this wave of change. Uranus is change. Okay, the exact Venus conjunct Uranus is tomorrow. It's at the 17th degree of Taurus. I'm going to read to you the Sabian symbol, okay, for that. It is the eternal battle between swords and torches. Just to give you a little forethought. But I want to give you the other aspects that are happening first. Yeah? In addition between this Venus conjunct Uranus, which is tomorrow... We've also got, fortunately, Mars has been moving through Cancer now for a little bit, and it's coming into a trine with Saturn up there in Pisces. Two water signs, right? Pisces, Cancer. And Mars is down here like a boiling kettle of water. (laughs) I got a boiling kettle of water right there. (laughs) Creating some steam, stirring up emotions. But it's in this trine to Saturn and Pisces, which has to do with patience, maturity, right? And, and, and really, you know, bringing things up to a spiritual transcendent level and the learning and the understanding that can come. So this trine is very helpful. I, I mean, thank God it's going to offset some of the rebellious nature of this powerful Venus-Uranus conjunction. And so I want to be bringing that up into the report. And uh, uh, also, uh, on uh, this weekend, okay, later on this weekend, Mercury, which is now moving through hothead Aries, 
is going to slide into Taurus, okay? And it's going to, you know, it's going to do this on Monday, but what does it do when it gets into Taurus? Squares Pluto at zero degrees of Aquarius. So even then, you would think, okay, Mercury and Taurus is going to slow down a little bit, but with that square to Pluto, which is, you know, like I said, I mean, I talked about it last in last week's report, right? It was that we need to dive into these emotions, swim around in the chaos, and what? Get up, get out, and go. Not dilly-dally and get all pissed off and get all upset and get all violent and get all crazy. And but No, no, it's like, okay, feel the feelings and move on. And I know that that, was, that advice was not followed by all the people in Paris <laughs> or all the people in Israel or all the people in other places in the planet. That, you know, I mean, there are, you know, this, we're in a kettle. Uh, you know, a, a boiling kettle of water is Mars moving through Cancer, okay, for another four or five weeks or so. So, you know, get used to kind of... <laughs> and I'm going to talk about how you need to release that or else. Yeah, uh, this is this is very important. Now, uh, the, you know, it has to do with the uh, quality of... The tarot card, I used it for the thumbnail for this week. It is the Five of Swords, and it has to do with defeat and Saturn in Pisces, with Neptune in Pisces, has to do with defeat. And I'm going to come back to that defeat, because where did I get the Five of Swords? Number one, it's Venus in Aquarius. Yeah. And you can see it at the top and the bottom of the card. Venus and Aquarius. Venus is at the top. Aquarius is at the bottom. As well as the Sabian symbol for this week. And I'm going to start off with that like right now. Okay. Uh, but first, let me just finish the aspects. The moon. It was first quarter uh, yesterday, Tuesday. And it's full in uh, Libra to Aries next week, Wednesday. So... Not looking, uh, so that she's moving through cancer now. She's gonna move into Leo tomorrow. Spend a couple of days in Leo, move into Virgo over the weekend, right? And then come out into Libra for that full moon at the same time that the sun conjuncts Chiron. Next week, Wednesday, sun conjunct Chiron. That energy is building through this week. Let's give it a seven degree orb. Sun moves a degree every day. So it's approaching a healing crisis in the sign of fire, self-empowerment, take our power back. Sun Chiron, uh, getting stronger. Yeah. With Mercury square Pluto in the sign of Aquarius, revolution and rebellion. And don't forget that Pluto is just now moving into Aquarius for the rest of this year and all through 2024. Pluto is going back and forth five times over this cusp of Capricorn and Aquarius. And whenever Pluto changes signs, okay, 
Last time it was going into Capricorn, 2008, we had this financial crisis. So now it's moving into Aquarius, the sign of society, the collective consciousness. Okay, the, the world-needed nations, World Health Organization, World Economic Forum, World this, World that, World the other thing, right? World news. <laughs> so we are becoming more of a collective and there's a crisis, yes? And there's a revolution. There's a, a social, Aquarius is social, you know, revolution. And this is going to have to do with the climate. This is uh, Aquarius is the atmosphere. You know, this climate change that every so many people are talking about, which I could go into further, not today. But, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of shifts, a lot of changes. And there's a lot of, you know, revolution happening because Aquarius is the sign of truth. And that's what our mantra is about today, is the truth. It's using science, using technology, using our third eye to penetrate through all the BS and all the crap to get at the truth. The universal, cosmic, underlying truth of the big picture. So, this Venus-Uranus, I'm going to say, it's happening at three different levels. The first level is Aries, Taurus, Gemini, Cancer. This is the inner level, yes, of that inside myself, I need to change. And Venus is my values. Venus is my ability to love both myself, my body, this existence on planet Earth, and, and really come into an incarnation. Then it's also happening on the interpersonal level. Yeah? And this is Leo, Virgo, Libra, Scorpio. This is with my interpersonal relationships. Yes? Venus is the ruler of Libra. And this has to do then with the need to change and the aha moment of how I'm treating other people, of how I am being treated, of how I can change, how I can up the bar. Uranus and Aquarius always wants to raise the bar. This can be better. I see a new way. The, the, the future can be brighter if I do this and you do that and we do that. <laughs> you know, this is the big picture. Venus, Uranus, Venus, Aquarius, Pluto going into Aquarius, right? And then there's the third level. The inter, not the, not just the interpersonal, but then the social and cosmic level. Sagittarius, Capricorn, Aquarius, and Pisces. And this is where we look at you know, the media and what's going on worldwide to our brothers and sisters in foreign countries and foreign lands. And, and as, you know, this globalist uh, government, you know, starts to coalesce and starts to grow stronger in this whole movement, you know, to kind of, you know, unite all of these nations under one corporation... 
<laughs> right? You know, and is then just the general standard of living of the majority of human beings improving or not? And when the general population, okay, is not improving but declining, and there's more poverty and more homeless and more hungry and more, uh, you know, less jobs and higher inflation and things can't really, you know, things are not working for the majority of people. But the, you know, the elite, which is the shadow of Aquarius, there is revolution. This is where, you know, because Aquarius wants a level playing field. Yeah. Nobody gets there first. We are all together. We rise together. So when when there's you know great amounts of inequality, Aquarius, Uranus, and now Venus is you know Venus Uranus is a love of fairness, a love of level playing field, and radical revolutionary techniques or approaches in order to achieve it. So I want to read to you today here the Sabian symbol for the degree of that Venus-Uranus conjunction. Very familiar with this. It, it used to be my heaven <laughs> before I got my chart corrected. Uh, it is the 17th degree of Taurus. It is the symbolical battle between swords and torches. Swords and torches. The keynote is refusing to depend upon the past. The seeker turns warrior. Fighting anew the eternal great war. When Gautama having sought in vain for the answers to his questions among the teachers of tradition, sat under the Bodhi tree. He had to fight his own battle in his own way, even though it is an eternal fight. The spiritual light, like that window behind me, <laughs> the spiritual light within the greater soul must struggle against the ego will that only knows how to use the powers of this material and intellectual world. There is no possibility of escape. It is the energy that arises out of the present moment, the inescapable now that the daring individual has to use in this struggle. This symbol suggests the salvation is attained through the emergent individual's readiness to face all issues as if there were only two opposed sides. So teaches the Bhagavad Gita. This is the dharma of this stage of human evolution, 
a stage of, in big capital bold letters, <laughs> the polarization of values. We can see that there is a polarizing nature happening now. This is also seen in the Mayan calendar. I could go into that in a separate video with the Yugas and the Mayans, and I've just I've got a whole bunch of information here, but we are hitting this peak of polarization. And the vision that came to me actually was a cell. Just think of it when we have when you have a baby, the egg is fertilized, and what happens? These cells split. Right? So the one cell, you know, polarizes, right? Pulls itself apart, becomes two, and then splits. And then those two cells split. And those two cells split. And those are four, eight, blah, blah, blah. I mean, so this polarization is going to lead to a reorganization. And we live in a polarized, dualistic, third-dimensional reality where we evolve through polarization because it gives us an objective view. This has to do with relationship and partnership, right? We see things about ourselves through relationship and partnership that we don't see looking in the mirror. <laughs> That's for sure. <laughs> right? So, yes, on one hand, the polarization is very uncomfortable, right? And because, you know, we want to be spiritual and want to do the law of one and unity consciousness and, you know, uh, you know, connection and, da, 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 da. And, and, and then we go into this split. So it's really hard to see the polar opposite as united, as me, and not the other. But here's where we get into, of course, the Piscean, you know, paradox. That the, the paradox is that these, you know, apparent opposites coexist. You know, so it's like, you know, I've said it many times before, you know, uh, yes, there is evil uh, on one level. No, there's not evil. Uh, yes, we are one on one level. No, we are not one on another level. I mean, we, you know, there's there's the third dimension, but our consciousness expands up to the fourth and fifth dimension. And so we can, you know, what we just have to be able to do is not get lost in one or the other, because we are the connecting link between these dimensional realms. So we have to take, you know, we have to, you have to take this law of one, or we have to take our consciousness of oneness and unity and bring it down into this polarized reality. And so the ego lives in this polarized reality, okay? And this is what we're talking about with the eternal battle between the swords, which is the ego, and the torches, the spiritual light. So this this battle goes on and on and on and on. Yeah, you know, it's just like the soul and the ego, the soul and the ego, you know, and what's, you know, what comes out of that? Yeah. So it's really, it's happening, like I say, it's happening on a very inner level. So you may be feeling like, 
you know, it's time to change. And you may even be polarized within yourself in terms of I'm bitter about something, but I, you know, I maybe I need to learn something. Uh, you know, some one is, you know, getting me angry, but, you know, rather than fight, maybe I'm supposed to apologize. You know, someone, da, 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 da. Yeah, I mean, it's like, and then even deeper down within yourself, your relationship to spirit, your relationship to your own soul, you know, your ego, relationship to your infinite self. So we have a lot of us, and what Venus Uranus says that this week is for is... Sudden, unexpected enlightenment, aha moments, oh my God, now I see, why didn't I see that before, oh my God, I love you, oh my God, get out of here, (laughs) it's time to break free, I want to break free, (laughs) oh, I can't say break free without thinking of that Queen song, you know, with the sweeping, oh my God, anyway, the song for this week is Us and Them. And after all, we're only ordinary men. Yeah. <laughs> Powerful. Underwaters, man. Amazing. Anyway, where was I? So I, I, I want to talk about, you know, the, this swords, because the swords led me to the tarot card, the deck of swords, okay? And the, I mean, the suit. The four suits, the suit of swords, and I want to read to you this five of swords, this Venus in Aquarius, because it's uh, and I know it's it's a lot of reading, but it's so good. It's like I I just I want to read this whole thing, so I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to try to hold this up. So you can see it. Check this out. Yeah. On the card, the five of swords from an upside down, they, they form an upside down pentagram. The sinister symbol of black magic. The rose of the previous card, the four of swords, has completely disintegrated. And its 49 petals now mark the connective lines between the tips of the pentagram, the hilts of swords. This reversed pentagram, okay, signifies a precarious conflict, altercations, unfair blows, vileness, a curse, an aggressive phase of destructive thinking or inexplicable things that the mind does not want to decipher, and that directly touch our most primitive fears. The fear of loss, abandonment, being helpless at someone else's mercy, or deadly threats. Reality and delusion flow into each other, and the trust in reality is increasingly destroyed. However, the white light penetrating out from inside the pentagram, see it? hints at the ability of the mind to accept the fright and transform even the tragedies of life into a fruitful learning process. Here's the good part. Energetically, 
The defeat leads to knowledge in a deeper sense. We do not suffer because of a desire to do so, but rather need suffering and defeat as a necessary experience in order to grow by overcoming it. The desire for knowledge is the wish for redemption. This car can be seen as the consequences of an attitude that can that has been too peaceful, whereby the defeat is the price of an exaggerated avoidance of conflicts. The intellect has been enfeebled by sentiment. The defeat is due to passivism. On the inner level, this card, carrying defeat within itself, is the key to encountering our destiny. It represents the breakdown of the old image of the world on our way to inner knowledge. The defeat is a necessary prerequisite for achieving a greater truth. It promises the reward that lies only in defeat. A reward in defeat. Get that? <laughs> the instinct is passive endurance of the painfulness of a negative experience. The goal is a recognition of one's limits. The light is insight into the correlations leads to intentions of transformation. The shadow is harm, evil, or a turn for the worst. And the quality is calm. It's drawn or referred to. Is insight into necessity of giving aggressive impulses an appropriate form of expression before it's too late. To me, this is like a super powerful card that really explains a lot to me in my own life and in what's happening with rebellion, revolution, what's happening in Paris, what's happening on the streets in so many places. Because I know that I avoid conflict and I have avoided conflict in the past, and I am a bit of a pacifist, and I want peace and love and harmony. And I think so many of us, especially, you know, on a spiritual path, do. And, and we have all these good intentions. And there's kind of an innocent, naive, you know, why isn't everybody just, why can't we all get along? And da 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 da, da. And we don't want to argue. We don't want to raise our voices. And we don't want to piss people off. And we don't want to da 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 and sometimes then, you know, we retreat and we, and we go within and we avoid this conflict, right? And what happens? You get taken advantage of. You become a victim. You get, uh, you know, manipulated and you get exploited. And this is happening on a large, 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 large scale right now. <laughs> 
the globalists are taking over. And so, so many people, like I say, the quality of life is degenerating for so many people. And this is, as long as there is an avoidance of and not standing up, Chiron and Aries, the sun coming around to Chiron, this is going to continue there's going to be this crisis around, am I able to stand up and assert myself, speak for myself, own my desires and my wants and needs as being justified? Mars moving through cancer now. These are my emotional needs for a home, for nurturing, for food, for caring. Okay, And even cancer, uh, the fourth house rules retirement. Funny that they're you know they're even rebelling about retirement now as Mars moves through Cancer. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. Astrology is like so right there. <laughs> oh my God! So yeah, you know this this mantra is <clears throat> once the truth has been revealed, it's time for me to act, asserting what. I know to be true, not waffling or turning my back. I know we don't want to be judgmental. You know, there's, you know, big thing. Oh, I feel judged. Oh, you're judging me. Oh, da, 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 da. You know what? This is the is this eternal battle between swords and torches, right? You know the the way the the teachings of the Bhagavad Gita moving through, and it's interesting how it said at this stage of evolution. Not to say there are not other stages, higher stages. Not to say that there's not a future coming when it won't be as polarized where we will return from polarization to a higher unity. But for now, okay, you know, temporarily, as the cell splits, <laughs> there it is polarized, and there is a right and wrong, and it is binary, <laughs> okay, and it is just this way or that. And you either, you know, take your left or you take a right, and, and this is the time. So, you know, standing up for what is right can be different for different people. But when there is an agreement and when there is a consensus between the majority and perhaps the vast majority of people that are waking up, that are seeing the underlying truth, which is this Venus Uranus, lightning bolts of awareness, okay? It's the aha moments revealing what has been hidden. This is a time of revelation. Venus Uranus is revelation. The truth shall be revealed and the truth shall set you free. Ow! All right, enough is enough. <laughs> One more time, man. Oh, yeah. 
Once the truth has been revealed, it's time for me to act. Yeah? Asserting what I know to be right and true. Not waffling or turning back. May you go deep within. This Taurus, the truth lies within. Venus, Taurus, my values, yeah? And I awaken to a new set of values and a new way of looking at the world and relationships and money and survival and my sexuality. All these are realms of deep revelation for us. Then may you have the power to bring those new values to assert what you have found to be right for yourself. May you do that in your partnerships and relationships. And lastly, to the world at large. May you donate to a cause or get out on the street or sign some petition or whatever, you know, for the good of the greater whole. Namaste. Aloha. So much love. Thank you, sir. Okay, I'm looking at the full moon chart. Yeah, Libra full moon. Yeah, and it's uh, it's about 1 a.m. Eastern time zone on the 6th. So it's late on Wednesday night. So and the effects, we'll start feeling the effects as soon as the moon gets into Libra, basically. So certainly by by Tuesday, we need two day. We need two days to get through get through Virgo. Uh, moon's in uh, late Leo tonight, twenty six, right. and. So it's got to get all the way through Virgo. And uh, now this full moon, this full moon is opposite Sun conjunct Jupiter. All right. Jupiter's at uh, 21 Aries and the, and the full moon's at uh, seven, 17 Aries. All right. So that, that's so close together. And then Chiron is still at... Uh, 16 Aries, so full moon is just going to highlight and intensify this combination of energies we've been living with here for the last more than a week now. (laughs) 
Yeah, we made it through this far. We'll get through uh, the rest. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm surprised there hasn't been any volcanic eruptions. Oh, I read somewhere that Yellowstone was having small rumblings in the, in the last 24 hours. Mm-mm. Yeah. You see, you got, not only do you have the, uh, the effects of the, of the, the solar energy and the Jupiterian energy on little old planet Earth, right? Yeah. You got Saturn, you know, about 45 degrees away from that, and that's a major uh, gravitational pull. So the, the you know, it's Earth change. Earth changes. You know, it's climate it's, disruption. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, so that's. But by the time we by the time we get to the uh, the full moon, Venus will be at 25, so it'll it'll be through uh, dancing with Uranus. That'll be over with. But Pluto's going to be, you know, squaring Mercury, and you know that messes with people's thinking. Yeah, you know, people aren't thinking very clear anyway. But you know, it makes it worse. You know, talk about talk about torches and swords, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Give me a big, powerful flashlight. You know the kind of firefighters uh, carry. Oh, yeah, that's good. You know, one was one great, and and you know that's basically Mars will be Mars will be trying Saturn. That's kind of a cross a cross thing, and Pluto will be trine Venus. So you got we got two trines, but we got we got uh, we got Saturn square Venus, along with Neptune. Yeah, I'm not going to count that. That's not close enough to call it call it cookies. All right, that's it. Okay. It's just it's just gonna get it's just gonna stay intense <coughs> and it's gonna be maximum intensity uh Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. It's not gonna be easy for the less evolved if you're high enough in your evolutionary adventure then none of this is bothering you at all. Mm-hmm. No bother at all. When we get when we get to next weekend on the eighth, the moon will be in Scorpio. So Friday Friday and Saturday the moon will be in in Scorpio. Yeah, and it'll be opposite well see then it'll be opposite uh when it gets into Scorpio, the first thing it's gonna do is be be on the south node and then it's going to be opposite Mercury, which will be at eight Taurus by that time. Okay, and then it'll be opposite Uranus when it gets to seventeen Scorpio, and then it'll be opposite Venus when it gets to twenty twenty eight Scorpio. 
So, you know, we're, first we're going to do, you know, Moon and Libra opposite Aries, and we're going to go right into Moon and Scorpio opposite Taurus, and it's going to stay all messed up and crazy and nutty for days and days and days, and I can't do anything about it. That's like Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter Sunday you're talking about, sir. Is, is Easter on the 8th? It's on the 9th. Uh, the 8th is Holy Saturday. Oh, okay, yeah, I'll be, oh, uh, this would be great for all the, all the churches. Oh, God. Fiery sermons. <laughs> yeah, show now. All right, that's enough right. for me. Oh, I'm done, I'm done and heading for bed. <laughs> okay, we're going to see what Tanya Gabrielle has to say while you get into your bed. Yeah, all right. Namaste. Namaste, Namaste. Richard. See you next week. Namaste. forecast on the Libra full moon. This is Tanya Gabrielle, wealth astrologist, and in this podcast, we look at an upcoming event in the astrology and numerology to give us insights so that we are equipped with wisdom and the ability to move through the energy in the highest vibrational way possible. So the Libra full moon is Incredible. It's the seventh consecutive full moon at 16 degrees. That in itself is amazing, and I'll go into that in a moment. First, let's give the date. It's on April 6th, of course, 2023, at 5.34 a.m. That's universal time, 12.34 a.m. Eastern New York, 9.34 p.m. Pacific time, and that would be April 5th. So in Pacific mountain and central as well as hawaii the full moon will be on april 5th libra is all about peace harmony balance relationships especially intimate one-on-one business and personal relationships creativity love romance dating cooperation advising so two people together And so every Libra full moon gives us an opportunity to put ourselves into other people's shoes and understand where they are coming from. And this full moon in Libra is going to help you be a lot more conscious and present in your relationships because as you understand each other more deeply, including how we may unconsciously project some of our unresolved fears onto others, that's going to be really important. At the same time, because we have a stellium in Aries, the sun is opposite the moon in Libra to create the full moon, but the sun has two uh, accompanists per se. Uh, We have Chiron, very close conjunction to the sun. They're only 15 minutes apart. And then we have Jupiter, the planet of joy, which is very fortunate. So we have a lot of Aries energy in this Libra full moon and Aries is very singular, very very much the forward momentum, 
these are my ideas and I'd like to implement them and no waste of time in doing that. So with this full moon in Libra, you can see more clearly where you're out of balance so that you can course correct and regain your equilibrium. And that gives you a lot of courage and it creates a lot of healing and it gives you a lot of joy because of the stellium of Chiron healing joy, Jupiter and Aries with the sun in Aries, which gives you the courage. So that is all very, very good news. And it makes it more intense as well, as does the degree number, 16 degrees. So as I was saying, this is the seventh consecutive full moon at 16 degrees since the Aries full moon in October of 2022. And of course, it's Aries. There we go again. You know, the sun is in Aries for this full moon. And that was the first full moon in October where we had 16 degrees and 16 reduces to seven. One plus six equals seven. 2023 is a seven universal year. So this is really big. It really emphasizes this number. And seven is a number of bringing heaven to earth. Seven is the horizontal line coming to a diagonal line. So feeling heaven in your heart as opposed to a separate heaven that you need to make sure you get into. And so this is acknowledging that you're always connected to your heart. You're listening and that listening connects you and you then through that connection feel the joy of heaven in your heart because that's where the source of love is from. And that heaven is created through meditation and seven is intimately connected to meditation as well as intuition. 16 uses intuition to bypass challenges, unexpected challenges. Seven uses meditation to just be in a place of serenity and bliss and be able to receive inspiration, intuitive downloads. Could be a discovery, right? Seven is connected to science as well. So because of the research aspect. So there's a deep connection here to listening. And what seven then says, any seven activation is you need to be out in nature. If you can move away from technology as much as possible to actually appreciate the beauty out there of nature. And when we look then also at the fact that Jupiter is conjunct the sun and opposite the moon, Jupiter wants you to be in a place of happiness. Jupiter is all about optimism and growth. It's a spiritual planet because it's also about hope and faith. And so you feel this sense of fulfillment and connection to source through joy. And so finding those elements in your life that feel generous and relaxed and allow you to be very open to share so that you communicate with your heart and soul and being so aware of the importance of gratitude, which Jupiter is connected to. So it's an important time during this Libra full moon conjunct Jupiter and sun to make sure you have a gratitude meditation that you say out loud so that your cells can hear the sound before you go to sleep right before, and then right as you wake up in the morning. And when you give this gratitude, 
it's an instant way to move out of feeling separate or frustrated or angry and move into an instant sense of being recognized at soul level, which is the balance and the harmony of Libra. So there's no separation. So it's really a magnificent opportunity because also Jupiter is bringing that gratitude in. Now, April in 2023 is an 11 universal month, and this full moon happens on April 6th, 5th, depending on where you live. But 11 reduces to 2. 1 plus 1 equals 2. And 2 is the number of balance, just like Libra. And 2 is the number that governs our century, the 2000s, and also our decade, 2020, which is, many would say, the most important decade of the century. And so the 2020s and the 2000s are in line with the Libra balance piece, bringing things into harmony message. It's loud, it's clear, because the 11 is also accentuating it. So Libra is the balances. 11 is about being balanced. We have the two ones that are completely opening the gateway into the present moment which allows you to be in balance. And so Libra is very attuned to listening. Libra liberates when you listen and are in acceptance of what it is that you discover through listening. It's not possible to love or feel at peace without listening and acceptance. Accepting life as it is, accepting people as they are, accepting yourself as you are is the key to inner peace. Not accepting what is real will close up your heart since the heart is the doorway to love and peace and acceptance and you're shutting those qualities out. So there's no other way but acceptance to open that door, that 11 gateway or the doorway into love. So when you accept, peace comes and love can flow again. And that's where the courage appears as well. And you just feel free. And Aries, where the sun is, is all about that courage and that freedom to create. Now, here's a really cool thing. The ruling planets of Libra and Aries, where the moon and sun are, are Venus for Libra and Mars for Aries. And Venus is currently in its own sign of Taurus and Mars just left Gemini and is in Cancer. So we have the sign of the mother, Mars is in Cancer, and Venus, the divine feminine in its own home sign of Taurus, activating the divine feminine and mother energy in a big way for all of us. So this Libra full moon is really asking us to nurture ourselves. And that means watching the energy that you're immersing yourself in. You're very sensitive to vibration and frequency from others, from media, from your environment, from sounds, from smells, from anything that you partake in, whether it's visually all the five senses and your sixth sense, right? So for Venus and Mars to be in these divine feminine placements at the moment that the two signs that they rule are in a full moon about balance and peace, it is merging 
those energies, the Venus, Mars energy, the divine feminine and sacred masculine within our hearts. And this is so important because in our culture, we've had a dominance of one or the other. And in history, thousands of years, right? And of course, the patriarchy has been more dominant and that is now coming into balance. And I've created a free masterclass that touches on the importance of Venus and Mars, the divine feminine and sacred masculine, and how the elements that comprise Venus and Mars are so important to understand. So we cover the five-pointed star of Venus, why that's so important, because five is the pivot number, the middle single digit, the 13 phases of Venus, which is so important, the number 13, which has been delegated to a negative symbolism for so long and why it's such a powerful number, the letters V and M, the secret meaning of those letters for Venus and Mars, the amazing connection to the origins of the Mayan calendar, and also why we are moving from aggressiveness to assertiveness and what that all means for Mars. So you're going to learn about all these cosmic changes that are unfolding for humanity now that are symbolized by these two planets. So it's not to be missed and it's free and you can watch it at venusmarscode.com. So have an amazing Libra full moon, a wonderful week. And uh, enjoy these energies coming into balance in your own life. Definitely listen and accept and be in a place of non-judgment. Doesn't mean you're not discerning. It just means you're not separating your heart from others. So I wish you the most beautiful Libra full moon. And I will see you in next week's Star Codes podcast. Lots of love. women are from Venus story but um, it's more than that yes so let's have a little chat about the life the universe and everything at our conference call and Rama will give us the number uh, 720-716-7301 and the pin code is 353 863 pound. Oh, thank you. Thank you, everyone. And so we'll see you there again. 720-716-7301 and the PIN code 353-863-POUND. All right. Hosanna, Hosanna. Let's go to the break. Thank you, everyone. We'll be right back here at BBS Radio, the best radio there is. One hour. In one hour, the top of the next hour.
Okay. Start now. See you on the conference. Oh, that was wow. a song about Doran. Um, he was one of the original dwarf, dwarf kings that built the huge uh, palaces and halls that the dwarves lived in, in in the mountains in Lord of the Rings. Very magical folks. They're all here. You just got to ask them to come in. That that really, um, that really became part of everybody that was in that production's lives for six years. Yeah. Everybody moved to New Zealand and they lived there together to produce that series. Um, it's kind of time, isn't it? It I think is. That, uh, Padme was telling uh, us that we might want to know what's going on here with Hillary Clinton and uh, that uh, what what are we waiting for in terms of holding... Okay accountability for that uh, I can put it just in one words it's called evil yeah. and Bill Clinton uh, he collaborated mm-hmm. and uh, she's a DuPont ultimately and uh I was just going to say that that goes to the deepest levels. Mm. Um, Holding people accountable who sit in the big chair, as you would, um, it's more than that. You know, what what you could say about the evil part of how it gets orchestrated behind the scenes. What I could say is that because we're in such auspicious times, um, evil is canceled, to put it simply. Yeah. Yes, it has to be, has to be brought to the front line, so it has to be just dealt with. And I know it's been a, quite a dance to, um, to deal with that kind of evil and not precipitate more in in the population. Uh, ignorance is not bliss, isn't that one of the lines? Yeah. And um, I think it's time for the Galactics to do something here, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... We we shall proceed here. Rama's going to play something called the Tarot Keys and Modern Psychology. Yes. And uh, how can we synthesize the wisdom of the Tarot cards with Western psychology? Clinical psychologist Art Rosengarten, Ph.D., shares his decades of research into tarot cards brought on by his combined interests of Eastern spirituality, 
Western philosophy and Jungian psychology. Learn how concepts separated by vast distances and time actually fuse together to form a magical system of divination or keys we can all utilize to access the subconscious rainbow realms. And this is with George Nury as the host, Art Rosengarten. And this is a PhD. 47 minutes. Let's get started here. Well, welcome to Beyond Belief. You know, every once in a while in your life comes an individual who has a profound effect on yourself, such as the case with Dr. Art Rosengarten a psychotherapist and tarot expert. He has been studying and reading the tarot cards for the past 40 years and has taught, researched, lectured, and written books on the tarot, as well as published his own tarot deck, which is absolutely fascinating. Art, welcome to Beyond Belief. Thank you, George. Nice to be here. How have you been? I've been wonderful. These tarot cards, when you first introduced them to me about 30 years ago, can't believe it's been that long. (laughs) <laughs> you taught me a lot. Good. Well, you know, the the tarot is a wonderful teacher of us all. And um, one of the great early tarot, I guess, metaphysical scholars of the 19th century said that tarot is a book that informs by making one think. True. And I would add... True. It informs by making one think and also intuit because it really is a tool that opens up intuition. How far back does the tarot card go? Uh, about 600, 700 years. Uh, first made its uh, presence in uh, Renaissance Italy. And um, as far as where it originally comes from, it remains a mystery uh, it definitely has roots in ancient uh, Western mystery schools. And but I, I think the first designer of tarot, which is a big question in the tarot community, I think it all goes back to the deep human imagination. It came Absolutely. out of somebody's um, collective unconscious. Was tarot once originally like a parlor game? Well, um, yes, in, in fact, originally it was used in the, uh, in the court as a parlor game and as kind of an interesting, uh, uh, set of cards that the, uh, nobility liked to play with. It didn't really become more of a metaphysical tool, right? Uh, for about several hundred years when it moved to France and the French saw a tremendous uh, metaphysical layers of meaning in the uh, tarot deck. How many cards in a deck are? 78 cards uh, now. And it, think of it as um, two decks. There's the minor arcana, which is like playing 
cards, you know, standard playing cards, four suits and court cards. In the tarot, there are an additional court card, the knights. So instead of 52 cards, it's 56. Then there's an additional 22 cards, which are the higher keys. And these are, we could think of as the um, universal archetypes that are in the deep psyche. Does every card have its own meaning or is it done with a combination of cards? Every card has its own discrete, uh, non-redundant meaning. So there is some overlap, and so, but each card has its own spectrum of possibility. Like the death card, for example, when you pull that, does that mean the person's going to die? No. Um, it, it means that um, death is part of the universal reality of, of life and death. And sure. death can, can, represent, can be understood on many levels. Death could represent uh, change, metamorphosis, transformation dissolution, the end of a cycle, for instance, or physical death. It depends on the context. Now, a lot of times with tarot, and this is what I've learned from you, uh, it has a profound effect on people. But in many cases, you pick the card for them, especially when we do radio shows. And then in person, they pick their own card. That's right. Is there a difference there? That's a good question. Um, my experience is not really. Um, it's almost secondary. However, in person, when uh, I, I allow a person to select their own cards, they tend to take greater ownership of the reading and can't kind of point their fingers and say, you know, you picked the card. You did it. Yeah, you did it. So, but ultimately it, it's irrelevant in my opinion, who picks the cards. Interesting. Let's mm-hmm. uh, look at some pictures of tarot cards and you can explain to us what we're looking at. What is this? Mm-hmm. Well, um, on the right there, you see, um, a, the high priestess is a tarot card from the Aquarian tarot. Now, uh, you understand that there are oh, maybe six or seven hundred different published tarot decks which display uh, different artists' interpretations and executions of these symbols, but it's, there's only one tarot. There, there is one tarot, but many different artistic renditions of the versions of them. Tarot cards are essentially oracles. If you were to ask some a great wise person, say Carl Jung, you know, why does tarot why does tarot work? Why does the I Ching, the Chinese Book of Changes, right. why does it work? He said, Well, it works because it's an oracle. And what oracles do psychologically is they translate a an, a, a problem or a question into a dream image into a symbol in a dream language. So they take it out of kind of the ordinary reality and they 
move it into more of an imaginal realm. Um, they take the thingness out of it and turn it into a symbol. They also um, point to the unseen, the things that we are outside of our field of awareness. They show possibilities um, which are kind of filtered out in our, you know, our thinking. Do you have a favorite tarot card? Well, I have several. I have several, and um, uh, it's hard to pick just one, and it depends on the deck. But I think um, there, the card that I think is uh, I'm really drawn to, as you asked me this question, is the temperance card because it's about blending opposites in a very creative way it's like working with opposites and feeling the synergy between opposites what is the hermit card because you like that too uh, yeah well the hermit is the number nine is key nine nine is a very special number in the tarot the hermit today we would think of the hermit as representing uh, individuation or self-realization. And it's, it has a sense of being very determined and tenacious at, you know, climbing that mountaintop to, you know, realization without caring too much about what other people think. Well, let's look at what Teresa Bullard thinks and get me your reaction to what she says. Okay. So next we come on the hero's journey to meet the hermit. And this is our guide that helps to shine a light upon our path and illuminate the way. This guide may take on the form of another person who embodies wisdom and offers us some sage advice, or it may be our own inner teacher or higher self that we meet through deep meditation and time of solitude. The hermit teaches us that by going inward and knowing ourselves, we can come to know the source and from there understand the universe. The hermetic principle of correspondence tells us as the inner, so the outer. Now the numerology associated with the hermit is number nine. And nine is the end of the numerical series of one to nine. So nine is the culmination of everything that has gone on before it. It's the completion of a cycle. We're coming to the end of one stage, the descent, and we're about to begin a new stage at the turning point, which is then followed by an ascension. And so nine represents the conclusion and it ties together all the different key elements, the lessons, the insights that have been gained from the previous cycle. Now, with this ending, there are some weighty aspects that come with nine. And these are balanced, though, by the fool, which is zero, which is the gateway to any new cycle. And that zero represents the youthful appreciation for life. And it never grows old. But the hermit, on the other hand, is the end. It's like the ancient of days. It's the part of us that's experienced and wizened. And it's the aspects of our consciousness that can be very old and yet very wise. He is the culmination of all the fool's experiences in the first nine steps of this journey. Now, what did you think of what she just said? Very, very well stated. Uh, I agree. agree with everything she said. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Tarot cards. 
I've got a friend of mine in St. Louis. She just started taking up the tarot card as readings. And she does a little YouTube channel. And she shuffles the deck and picks the card that pops out of the deck. <laughs> it's kind of weird. But can anybody learn this? Um, anybody can learn it. But it requires serious study and practice and a teacher. Uh, there's a tendency to kind of freelance. You know, people have a lot of, you know, uh, ideas and they may be intuitive and they may um, kind of jump in without getting enough, I think, of the proper training and study of tarot. But anybody can can do, can study and learn. It takes, you know, when I was a graduate student in psychology, one of the tools that required time to learn was the Rorschach test, right? right. And just to, to master uh, giving a Rorschach and interpreting it, it really would take about a, a, at least a term of, of graduate school to really practice and know it. I think if a person put that kind of focus on a, on the tarot, they w- could learn the they tarot in about four months. Maybe. That's not bad. Mm-hmm. But they need a teacher like you are to tell them the difference between what's right and what's wrong. Absolutely. Uh, they They need a qualified teacher. You know, there's... A difference between a tarotist and a psychic reader, for instance. Right. And uh, a true tarotist is not necessarily psychic. They're intuitive, but they're more diviners than psychic readers. They believe in the process of divination. And, and interpretation. And interpretation. Um now, psychic readers, some are brilliant psychics. They, they don't necessarily know the tarot very well, but they can use it as a springboard. They look at some details in a card and that opens a lot of, uh, you know, psychic associations for them, but they don't necessarily know the deck of tarot the way a, a, a tarotist might. Art, what is vision logic? Vision logic is, um, it's, it's the next level of consciousness above normal thinking, um, which uh, occurs when a person does a lot of intuitive work. They may be in therapy. They may be following their dreams. They may do things like this. Right. And there's a shift in the way uh, we think where we, ordinary thinking um, starts moving into seeing visually ideas. Exactly. Let's and, take a look at this vision logic mm-hmm. still, and you can uh, highlight it for us. Mm-hmm. So when when a person shifts into vision logic, um, s- synchronistic things happen all the time. You know, there's always synchronicity going on because they're looking for you know things co-arising together, things that gathered together um it is uh, uh it opens up the intuitive which is um you know I- I- intuition is the perception that sees uh possibilities in the present moment and so there's almost an organic natural uh kind of evolution in consciousness to this next stage a vision logic where we become much more intuitive and the 
visual sense uh, kind of supersedes the kind of cognitive, logical way that we tend to process information. What got you interested in tarot cards? Well, I was in graduate school at the Institute of Asian Studies in San Francisco and studying uh, Buddhist and Jungian psychology. And I took a, a weekend workshop on the tarot cards taught by a philosophy professor of Indian philosophy. Just because? Because it seemed really interesting. How do Western tarot cards fit into a kind of Eastern uh, thinking and uh, Jungian thinking? And it was fascinating seeing these cards and these pictures were actually uh, illustrating what different levels of, of psychological and spiritual experience that we read about and talk about. They were like beautiful markers of uh, psychological experience. And so I, I got very excited about it and uh, started studying it in depth and ended up writing my, my doctoral dissertation on the tarot in comparison to dream analysis and projective storytelling, which is a, the thematic apperception test. It's another psychological, well-known psychological tool to see if now tarot cards, the tarot reading is, is total magic. I mean, it's, uh, it's happening by a random shuffling of it's the cards. Spontaneity to it. Spontaneity else. and, and could a technique like this be at least as consistent and valid, reliable and valid as some of these other more accepted psychological methods and tools? So it's a very elaborate, interesting study. And, um, yes, in fact, I, I, I saw that the tarot readings could be on the same footing as, say, dream analysis. The difference right. being that it came into being really in a totally um, a-causal, you would say magical source. It's fascinating. Fascinating. When you used to pick on the radio, I think you picked three cards yes. per, per person, right? Yeah. And you use them all or you just pick one of the three? No, uh, I, I would, you know, I, I would shuffle, spread. I, I pick all three cards and I'd read them in a spread, very short, quick spread. There, normally when I do a full reading, if somebody contacts me, I'll do an eleven card reading, and that takes about an hour. Ah. But you know, for in that context, a three card reading or even a five card reading, um, which is a little bit more, can be done in about five five minutes. What is the rainbow realm of consciousness? Sir? Well, no, rain, I call it rainbow realm because like a rainbow, which is, you know, just kind of appears and it's serene and it's uh, colorful and it's uh, somewhat magical and it can be seen by multiple observers and then it just dissolves and disappears. I think that's kind of what a tarot reading is. It's like out of nothing all of a sudden these cards appear and we have this experience that can be very powerful, but it's, it's very uh, transitional. It's very temporary. And then it kind of is over and it dissolves. And so I, I, I think the realm of say divination is a rainbow realm. Consciousness plays a part of this too, doesn't it? 
Well, of course. Um, this is, I mean, everything is consciousness. Are there various stages of consciousness with this? Well, I, I think uh, tools like the tarot um, shift us out of our normal kind of dualistic way of thinking and normal, you know, adult thinking. And like I was saying, we, we start moving into more intuitive process, perception through vision logic, which is a doorway to higher levels of consciousness. Well, all these higher realms of consciousness from the yogic perspective is important. There are seven dimensions of consciousness which are known as Sapata Bhumika. Seven dimensions of consciousness. When consciousness shifts from one dimension to the other dimension, there's an in-between point, a twilight zone. That space is known as Satori, which means glimpse of the truth. Before the sun rises, you see the rays. The sun is not out yet, but you see the rays. That is known as Satori. First is self-realization, and then comes cosmic realization, Brahmagyan, universal realization. There is dynamism happening. There is creativity happening in your consciousness, but it is not through thought, because it is not the human mind which is creating. It is a global conscious mind, what we call the mind of God, which is ready to manifest that. So through the meditation, you start listening to God, for the lack of a better word, because God ultimately is a word. There is ultimately no being who is sitting there saying, I am God, because that would be very egotistical, you see. <laughs> so that being, that which cannot be destroyed, that which cannot be named, that which cannot be defined, that which is ultimately un understandable, to that I bow. One of the things that the sages of the Indian traditions, of the yogic traditions, of the Buddhist traditions, and indeed of Christian mysticism, Jewish mysticism, they all paint a picture of these different realms, and they call them angelic realms or subtle realms or God realms. And they're realms that we enter as our consciousness becomes more and more subtle. You start having access to what we call Satchit Ananda. More and more access to sat, brilliance, chit, consciousness, ananda, bliss. From there, purpose, natural purpose arises. You don't need to fight or struggle for it. You see, it is inclusive. It is serviceful naturally. It will uplift you and it will uplift anybody it touches. Does that echo some of the things Absolutely. you teach? Absolutely. Um, now, what I like about the tarot is the tarot is not, a direct ticket to, you know, the non-dual ultimate state of advanced layers of consciousness. Right. It's a transitional phase from ordinary everyday thinking to beginning on the path to shift the way we perceive. And uh, the tarot operates in, in a way that opens our intuition and our imagination. And uh, I think that's what it's very important in our in our culture right now. You know, it's not just a, a a jump to the to the top of the mountain. We need to transition, trans, uh, tr transform our way of processing to begin to 
uh, be more spiritual. And mm-hmm. the tarot is a good transition place. What is it about the tarot cards that make things so accurate? Well, I think it's the, the process of divination. One is um, we start uh, with a motivation to know more than we know. That's a great motivation. Then the process of preparing for a reading in a way creates an altered state of consciousness. Just uh, shuffling the cards and selecting starts to shift the way we normally think. So, And then we're asked when you come to a tarot reading to uh, suspend disbelief for the moment. And let's see what the tarot oracle shows us. All of these preliminaries in a way are setting the table. Right. For synchronicities to, to occur and to have impact. And once we then apply what I call, uh, George, the prime directive of all tarot card reading. And the prime directive is the card is always right. It is, isn't it? It's always right. And it's up to us to shift our thinking until we can feel where it's what it's saying, where it is right. It's kind of a shift in our normal way of, of linear way of thinking. The co- We accept um, a, as given that there are no accidents. This card is there for us now. and We need to embrace it and see what our associations, what we can learn from it. How many different possibilities are there with all the cards of events? Well, a, t- a, a full tarot card reading, say, of, of 10 cards, 11 cards, to, is um, such a rare event that for it, that those cards to come, fall in the same positions, again, exactly in the same positions, the odds um, by chance of that happening are in the trillions to one. Wow. In the trillions to one. So it's like a snowflake. A tarot card reading is a rare event that has its own natural beauty and symmetry and uniqueness. And so that's why they're so fascinating. We've got to still hear Art, I want you to see and tell us what we're looking at here. Mm-hmm. Do, these, do these echo most of the cards that are in a tarot deck? Yeah, the, the, yeah, this is, the, you know, the Rider Waite uh, was published in 1909 by Arthur Waite, the great English uh, occultist and, and scholar. And this deck, the Rider Waite, has become the standard uh, tarot deck of the modern age. Okay. Um, and interestingly enough, George, the images here were all done by a young American artist. Waite was British. But a, a young American artist named um, uh, uh, Pamela Coleman Smith, who's at 22, she was brought to London because she was like a surreal artist. She had a imaginal artist. And she drew these images, which uh, most serious tarotists today still use the Rider Waite because it's, it's a perfect tarot deck. What brought the tarot card into the modern age? I think when... It moved to France in Eliphas Levy, 
or Levi, was um, one of the great champions of the tarot cards. Um, it got um, picked up uh, in Europe by intellectuals who were really interested in uh, Western metaphysics. And a lot, it drew a lot of the great intellectuals, uh, when it, particularly when it moved to England, like George Bernard Shaw and Aleister Crowley and people like that. And uh, it, it, it kind of drew a lot of people at the turn of the uh, uh, 20th century uh, in the beginning who became very fascinated with that kind of theosophy and spiritualism and mm-hmm. these types of movements. And from there, in the 20th century, in it kind of migrated to the U.S. in the 60s. Right. And um, there, the great uh, relevance of uh, Jungian and humanistic psychology started in the 60s, basically, saw a natural, uh, you know, resonance with the tarot deck. And so, and that's when I learned the tarot. Um, so it, it kind of took a more of a psychological turn, um, kind of a, a psycho-spiritual turn in the mid, you know, starting in the 60s un, until now. Tarot seems to be very interested these days. It seems to be on the uptick. Is that true? I think uh, popular culture today is now, you know, it's a whole new world with this younger generation. And I think there are segments that are now bringing it into, you know, the information age. Though um, I, I'm i not clear that it's on, on the uptick. I think it, there's a kind of a, uh, kind of a dumbed down popularization of the tarot, but serious study of uh, the tarot. Um, it remains to be seen if the younger generations are going to take it on the way, uh, say, our generation did. Well, Gaia News went out to find out that question. Okay. Tarot and Oracle decks for divination are the best sellers. U.S. Game Systems, a leading publisher of tarot cards, tells the Financial Times they've had to double their print runs in the past year because they sell out so fast. It's not just tarot. The New York Times reports data from Yelp showing searches for supernatural readings more than doubled in April. Why are so many people turning to these methods now? Mitch Horowitz, author of The Seeker's Guide to the Secret Teachings of All Ages, explains. People are interested because there's truth in these things. They discover truth in these things, just like they discover truth in therapy and in philosophy and in spirituality. So people gravitate to things where there's some sense of discovery. Throughout history, people have sought their own path to self-discovery and healing, especially during times of uncertainty. It's important to keep in mind that the occult and the esoteric are evergreens. They're a permanent fixture of, of our culture and our society. There does seem to be an uptick of interest during periods of crisis. For example, during the Civil War, there was an uptick of interest in spiritualism. The same was true during World War One, During World War II, uh, sales of the Ouija board doubled. So when people are anxious, they seek to avail themselves of insight, whether it's spiritual or therapeutic or occult in nature. 
The act of tarot reading is the ultimate do-it-yourself entry into the esoteric teachings. Some believe there is a form of channeled energy from the cards. I perform tarot readings myself, mostly in private, and I ask myself the question, is there anything here? Is this just a Rorschach? Is this just a random draw? And I think there's a possibility that certain divinatory pictogrammatic tools like tarot or the I Ching, they may represent a kind of frozen snapshot in time that gives us a sense of everything that's going on all around us at a given moment. If one accepts that time itself, linear time, is really just an illusion, we've been able to prove that to ourselves in various ways. And hence, tarot seems to give us a broader perspective on what's going on uh, than we normally have access to. Pretty dramatic, isn't well, it? Well, well said. I, I agree with a lot of what he said. Good guy. Um, you know, one one thing he he talked about is the Rorschach. Mentioning like, is this just an ink blot that we project whatever we, we <clears throat> want to project or see in it? And I, I was I would say that a tarot card is uh, uh, different than a Rorschach because. It does have a projective level, and that's the first level. I'll, you know, I'll show a card and I'll say, well, what's this card saying to you? What comes up for you? What do you see in this card? But the tarot also has a, a second level, and that is it has meaning from its own side. So you might say, uh, well, I think this card is, you know, all about what I'm doing here and, and mm-hmm. what I'm thinking here. And I'll, and I'll say, okay, that's important, and, and we can talk more about that. Let me tell you a little bit about what tarot that this tarot card means from its own side right. in terms of, you know, say 500 years of scholarship and study by the leading commentators and scholars of the tarot. And then together we will kind of try to find, uh, a, a, you know, a click is what I call it, saying, oh, OK, now I I know where that's at for me. No, I'm a, I'm a psychologist. I, I that helps you. It it helps me personally, but I've always been about, hey, this is a tool that's that professional psychologists and social workers and therapists and psychiatrists ought to avail themselves of. And here we get into a little bit more controversy because you know the medical establishment has their you know their own kind of lock on. You know uh, what they what, what they see as acceptable, valid, ethical practices. So they misunderstand how the tarot might be used as a supplemental tool in a wide range of therapeutic tools. For uh, for instance, they may do dream work. The tarot is maybe more effective than dream work. They, there's a lot of tools in psychotherapy that are ex- accepted, but when we when we come to these tarot cards, the tarot carries a lot of shadow content. Right, and and so that's kind of I've been uh, kind of in the on the edge of trying to take out you know the the woo woo kind of quality of it and say, look, the, this is about symbols and synchronicity. And tarot cards tend to show the bigger picture. And that's what my patients uh, basically say. But they have to be used skillfully um, within the context of therapy. That's that's my uh, kind of orientation to it. How does tarot 
tie into divination? Well, that um, divination is the uh, method that that sets a tarot reading up. That's what that's what a tarot reading is. Divination is um, blind selection. It's the preparation of um, a reading that kind of sets up the mood. Then there's blind selection from a, a, a large set of unknowns. And then there is, um, uh, you know, supreme uh, focus on what arises momentarily in the present moment in a card and the um, invitation to associate to it mm-hmm. and to feel and to take a look at what that is saying to you right now. So that's how, you know, tarot readings are divinations. Carl Jung, the psychiatrist, dealt with tarot? Interesting. Carl Jung was really very involved with the I Ching, the Chinese book divinatory tool. He only makes one mention in his collected works of the tarot because he never really got around to it because he was doing so many things. But what Jung says in his writings is um, it seems that the um, uh, the tarot deck captures the uh, archetypes of transformation. And I think that's how Jung would see it, that the symbols of the major arcana in particular mm-hmm. are a special set of universal archetypal realities that we all have. And they're a special set of archetypes of transformation of to higher human consciousness. So those um, hierarchies are really images of um, higher potentialities of the human mind. What about intuition? Where does that come in? Intuition is the function that allows us uh, spontaneously to perceive possibilities in the present moment. And when you enter into a divinatory process, it invites intuition. It, the um, imagery is the language of intuition. Images, pictures. When we relate directly to a picture and we apprehend, which means we relate to it without interpreting it. We just kind of feel it until we get a click. Ah, then we can offer an interpretation. That is actually the vehicle to um, the intuitive. I want you to do a reading for me, Art, and through the magic of television, we will make your tarot cards appear. You ready? I am. One, two, three. You're going to give me a reading. All right. Let's say, what do we do? Okay, so now here we have two decks. This is my deck, Tarot of Nine Paths. I use this for deeper, more spiritual questions. Okay. This is the Rider Waite deck, the full 78 cards of the Rider Waite, which we talked about. This we do for more what we might call uh, domestic questions about your life, Mm -hmm. what to do, what's happening in the world. So I would ask you, do you have a question, George? All right. A life question? Um, it, it can be a, a, 
a, a domestic or an essential deeper question. It can be about you personally or it can be about anything else. Well, let's talk. Let's let's do one about this country, the United States. Very good. People seem to be sad, depressed, angry. Will we get out of that mess? Mm-hmm. Great question. I would say let's let's use this deck, and we're gonna we'll do the three card reading. Okay, okay. Um, so I'm going to ask you when I'm going to give you the instruction of um, selecting the cards. You're going to pull it and not turn it over. You're just going to hand it to me. Down. And down. Okay. So okay. the first card, we're talking about America. Okay. Now, this card is what the way it appears now. Okay. We'll put that right here. Okay. And the next card is what's really going on. There you go. Okay. And then the third card is what we need now. Very good. Now, I'm going to remove this other deck so we can now. You want these shuffled together? Can I... Yeah, you, we can remove that, too. We'll just look at these three cards, okay? And um, America, right? One, two, three. And so... The first deck card that we looked at, that we chose for this is the way America appears now in terms of what's going on with our time. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so the card that we got, George, is the lovers. Now, that seems counterintuitive in a, in a way, yeah, really? which, which is an agent of union. Okay. Now, the way I would interpret that, given the question and given what we're talking about, is the union, the American union right now is um, got a real problem. Right. Got a real problem. And America, in principle, was formed, we could say, on the principle of the lovers, which is a union of opposites and inclusion. in a way, I think that's in our constitution. That's in our basis. So now you ask the question, what's going on with America? And it's saying, well, it appears that the issue of the union of the nation is what's going on. Split apart. It's falling apart. But what's, that's how it appears. Now, what's really going on right now? The magician. <laughs> Okay, which is an agent of a sleight intention. of hand is happening. Was that a sleight of hand is happening? No, not sleight of hand in tarot. The magician is about um, visualization, focus, intention, and um, you know my my belief is that um, that's that's part of the problem is that we. We America is is not united in its intention. We don't know where what we're shooting for in a united way, and so we can't use the magician where, where there's so much right. talent in this country in potential to create new things to magically bring about the types of radical changes I think 
are called for right now um, because we're divided. And so I think uh, what's really going on is we could say the um, we're needing to use our creative magician to solve the really challenging problems that are probably are related to we're not united, but we're based on united. Our constitution is about uh, one nation and it's and it's polarized tremendously. Mm-hmm. And this the polarization is blocking our ability to use our imagination, our visualization, our intention of the magician to really deal with the serious issues that we have now in our final card. That's how I would work with these, these, these questions, these cards. So now the final position here is what we need now. And here, this is the judgment card awakening. And it's right. It's an, it's an agent of awakening. Now is the time, the call, the final judgment, the, you know, the decision, the decision. We, we need to kind of wake up now and act as one nation. Or maybe a fourth card will tell us that. Why don't we pick from this deck? For the fourth card. I'm going to let you pick it, George. Or. Or the one card. One card. Put it right in front of you. Yep. The chariot. Okay. What does that mean? The chariot is the quest. The quest. And the challenge. And the chariot travels across the skies, across a wide expanse, bringing teachings of higher wisdom. The chariot uh, is carrying the Holy Grail in the chariot. So there's hope for us. I think the, the higher teachings, the higher wisdom, which is always about love, it's, it's always about higher universal love, which unites the whole world, there, there is hope for that message to um, arise, to manifest. To grow. Without it, uh, there's a lot of hopelessness. We need something that large and deep uh, because the polarization, the lack of union mm-hmm. um, is um, blocking our ability for the kind of creative problem solving of the magician. And that's what we need. We need to use our, our uh, you know, we don't say our magical powers to solve major problems. Um, and by, I'm not talking magical problems. Using creative problem solving, visualizing. Art, how do people get a hold of you? You can go to my website, moonlightcounseling.com. Simple. Simple. And they can uh, set up a reading with me or a counseling session, whatever they like. 
Thanks for being on Beyond Belief. Pleasure, pleasure seeing Always you. a pleasure seeing you. The tarot card. They determine your future. Thanks for watching Beyond Belief. Oh, we can't hear you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. All right. Uh, before we go on, thank you, Doug. Um, um, what we want to say here is that um, the Tarot... Uh, um, it has to do with something that Jennifer uh, Jennifer uh, Caroline's guest Jennifer Ruth Russell Jennifer Ruth Russell said and uh, what she said is that Get that. Here it is. What she said is that uh, Mother Mary said to her in her heart, I am the high archangel presence, unicorn master. And the unicorn is that single-mindedness. Um... And I think he was saying something about that in his talk about the card. And um, so I think as a unicorn master that the representation there is um, open-heartedness to all things. And I was going to say, too, that um, Lady Master Ma'at has that, too, because we're talking about uh, bringing in the future self of Mother, in this case, Sekhmet. And that also is where the heart, where all sectors of all things meet in the heart of all that is. I really like that one. Uh, mm-hmm. really like that one. Um, so uh, we're going to read a little bit about Ma'at, but let's do that at toward the end. And I just apologize that if I was consternated about reading about um, what... Robin LaPlante was going to have to say because um, the printer was funny and um, it wasn't any, it, it's like a hundred million percent improved uh, than, than before and I wanted to 
not miss getting it in, and I got a little bit excited. But um, I'm just going to say that that's Lady Master uh, of Balance. And that was in the astrology, too, today. That um, bring a balance between the divine sacred masculine and the divine sacred feminine. All of those things, there's a thread, and I, I am so excited about this. The thread keeps on developing. And uh, so let's do this one next, Rama. Mm. Uh, unacknowledged special access programs. Okay. You said that thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Uh, it's with Emery Smith and Richard Doty. Why are extraterrestrial species helping humanity? From top secret documents of the CIA to events such as the Kingdom Kingman incident. Learn why retired Air Force OSI agents Richard Doty speculates that various ETs, such as the Pleiadians, are guiding our evolution, sharing details about unacknowledged special access programs, uh, US, USAP, what's that, Ram, is that? Uh, Unacknowledged special access programs, right? Yeah. Recovered ET craft and defense advanced research projects agency DARPA. Dottie says, or Dottie says, Richard Dottie says, ETs are purposefully assisting us in advancing our technology and our understanding. This is 33 minutes, and so let's listen. Cosmic Disclosure, we're with Richard Doty, a retired special agent who served in the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. Richard was intimately involved with UFO ET-related intelligence. Today, we speak about what is going on with the government and disclosure. Richard, welcome to the show. Thank you, Emery. Good to be here. What do you know about the classified portion of the UP report that was shared with some senators and congressmen? Well, there's select groups of researchers out there who've gotten together and they're, some of them are quasi-connected uh, to the government. And they're being supportive of the congressional, both the House side and the Senate side, in the investigation and future disclosure of information pertaining to extraterrestrial UFO, UAP information. Now, this report was accomplished by a number of different people, both from within and from outside the government. So they had help. They had a lot of help, people gathering information, old reports, and I'll, I'll talk about that here in a minute, and trying to put it all together and make a sensible disclosure at some point 
And how they did this is they went, they went out and, and talked and spoke with uh, intelligence officers like myself. And lo and behold, they had some of our old reports. And ironically, the reports were still redacted, yeah. which was amazed me as I'm trying to explain this report to a, a, a government official, but he's looking at a redacted report. A different one. Now, mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I can tell him what I know about the report because I was authored. It was my report. I authored the report and what I could tell him over the phone. So anyways, we got together in person and we shared everything we, we could could share with him regarding these reports. There was just not me. There were many other intelligence officers, both from Officer Naval Intelligence, uh, from Air Force Intelligence, from Defense Intelligence Agency, from the Central Intelligence Agency, case officer reports, CIA reports wow. that went back as far as back in the 1970s that were experiencing contacts inside Laos about these strange beings that were being encountered by local villagers who were then reported to the paramilitary case officer, the CIA guy. Such now, a massive conglomerate to control all that. Plus, as you said, the different agents and officers, what about ones that are not around anymore? Who can actually talk about that? That's right, because a lot of these case officers, paramilitary case officers, intelligence officers, OSI agents, mm-hmm. they're gone. They, they died. So they're not around. The reports are still there. And ironically, they won't, the Air Force Office of Special Investigations or even the CIA won't declassify. They're holding on to it. And there's probably some reasons why that I, I'm not aware of. And so they're trying to push into this report everything that makes sense where the public can make sense of it and accept it. Now that in itself is a major problem. Yeah. Because you're trying to satisfy society that has so many different <laughs> likes and dislikes, and especially nowadays. Sure. I mean, nobody can agree on mo- almost anything. Not even Congress can 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 agree on anything, uh, let alone the American people who the government wants to give them disclosure. So I think the rational way that they decided to do this was start historically speaking. So. They decided we'll go back to that point in history where we, the Earth, first realized that we might be visited by extraterrestrials. And of course, the incident over Washington by Arnold, who saw these things flying that he called flying saucers, is before Roswell, slightly before him. And then the Roswell incident happened. And a lot of the information about the Roswell incident the Roswell and Corona crash is known to the public. In fact, a select number of people within the government that's involved in this disclosure mm-hmm. actually saw this film. Right. They sat down and it was shown to them. Now, the original film was 32 minutes. This film uh, was recorded by a non-professional Photographer, an army officer, was a lieutenant. He wasn't trained in photography. Right. It was 32 minutes. They cut out 15 minutes because that 15 minutes that they cut out was nothing more than views of the ground, right. earth, the sky. That's good uh, to know for the audience. So later on when it's available, 
It's not something they're hiding. You know, exactly. Right. So when they cut it down to the rubble portions of it, it was 17 minutes. And that shows inside of the tent, the, um, the navigational controls, the hand controls, the communications device, uh, the ET bodies, a lot of this has already been leaked out. It's already on, had been on the internet years ago. In fact, one particular piece of it showing the inside of the tent and President Truman was leaked by, by Stan Friedman. Somebody gave him that part of the portion of the film. But the pictures of the, the, the bodies of the, of the extraterrestrials, the one live one sitting next to a rock, that's all in there. So they are choosing at their own discretion a timeline of, of specifics that can be, I'll say, proven. That's the plan. Okay. Okay. What the eventual disclosure is, we don't know. But the full consensus of everyone that I've ever spoken to, one particular senator uh, who's prominent prominent in this, he's saying that the best place to start is Roswell. Right. Now, I'm sure they're going to talk about the Kingman incident because that's a prominent incident that, that is – there's a lot of evidence that the Kingman incident and others, crash sites – in Nevada, crash sites in Arizona, crash sites in Wyoming, uh, crash site in Montana. Uh, these crashes, uh, there's a well-documented cases. Wendell Stevens, Lieutenant Colonel Wendell Stevens retired, uh, was on the first crash recovery team, the, the down aircraft recovery team. He documented so many different things that now the government has. Unfortunately, Wendell's passed away. And even somebody that could have supported that, Robert Dean, his sidekick, is also passed away. So we're losing a lot of research. Right. There. Yeah. And so we have the reports. We have the documentation that the Air Force or the, the Space Command has somewhat released. But then again, it hasn't been. It's still redacted. How many of these reports do you believe are going to be added to this timeline? And also the timeline itself, what's going to be the latest um, that they're going to put on that timeline from today? That's a good question. <laughs> I wish I knew. I'm sure it's in there. I wish I could, you know, disclose the entire classified, everything that's in that, that I know of. And then I don't know it all. Obviously, I don't know everything. Uh, but there's a lot of information about current events that, that might come into play. For instance, uh, one of the things that I've, talked about on this program on Cosmic Disclosure is what the DIA, Defense Intelligence Agency, uh, disclosed regarding known ET races. And there are five of them that I talk about. I did programming right. about it. Yeah. But now they're talking about seven. There's two extras. I don't know about those two. I never was briefed into them. But sometime or somehow between 19... 85, 86 time frame and 2023, two more extraterrestrial races are known to have been in contact with us, United States government, at least Earth. I'm not saying maybe our government, maybe some other government that we know of. So now there's seven. Mm. Now I know there's people out there growing. Will, will jump up and yell and scream that there's thousands of races and well, I know now of seven <laughs> and, and that's, I, hopefully they're going to disclose that. And that's, I don't know how they're going to do that because it's going to be a, um, s- somehow they're, they're going to have to do this in a way that is acceptable. 
to, to right. the people. Sure. Uh, because there's, there could be panic. There could be, yeah. I mean, it's a lot of information. And, and plus the religious aspects of it. They have to think about that. And yes. I'm sure they have people within the Vatican and other, I, in fact, I know they do have religious people that are working on this. I mean, I'm not working on it with them, but I know that they're there. And so I just assume that there must be figured out, okay, if you're going to tell us that there's seven extraterrestrial races that the Earth has had contact with, how's the public going to react to this? That's a good question. The five that I've spoken about, and then you have these other two races. One is humanoid, apparently come from the Pleiades, and they look human. They look exactly like a human. They have long hair, and their ears are different somehow, and and I don't I, I don't know exactly how. And the, the seventh one is a small and robust, brown-skinned, hardened-skinned, in hardened features. Uh, so it's still skin. skin. It's not like a like an insectoid hard um, layer. No, as like I understand, it's just yeah. hardened. Okay. And a different texture, as if I think the person that was explaining this to me said, as if they came from a planet that had a a rough uh, atmosphere mm-hmm. uh, that and maybe uh, a brighter sun that and they're somehow protected their skin and that. That's why their skin is hardened. That, that's, that's what was explained to me. I haven't seen actual pictures of them. Now, as I understand that we might already, there's already a lot of evidence from the past that we've, 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 we've known about these two other uh, races. I didn't, I didn't know about them. I've been, I've never uh, heard about those. I've, I've heard about the, the uh, humanoids, the, the blonde haired, I mean, but they could have been uh, um, mixed up with some, one of the other five races. Okay, yes. So is the release by the government entity, whichever entity is going to be, whether it's going to be a congressional one or a military one, whether you're going to include these two or describe exactly who they are, where they come from, that's the question I, I wish I could answer. I wish I, could, I wish I had the answers right now. With the mention of these two new species, have you heard anything about their intentions, their benevolence? They're all, they're both benevolent. They're non-hostile and they have contributed to our technology. And who are they working told. with, with that then? I would think DIA, right. but, uh, or DARPA or an entity within DARPA. I mean, DARPA is an organization that contracts things out, but they do have a secret branch. They just, it's just, you can look it up. It's X. No, there's no explanation of what it is. And that's, I think, the ET portion. There's some maybe connections between maybe ambassadors from an ET race that comes here and works in that particular arena to try to advance our technology from their technology or, or allow us to understand their technology. Of course, as, as I said earlier, you know, they have different science and different math and they, they come from different planets. They did probably have different elements. Uh, not all our elements, probably most of our uh, out of periodic table of 118 or whatever it is now. Uh, but I'm sure they probably have others and they've, they probably developed, and I know this, they developed, developed ways to combine different elements in ways we can't today. We can't uh, combine one particular element with another. They have methods to do that. 
And if you can do that, and there's scientists out there that know this, if you can advance uh, our understanding of the elements, such as argon gas is the most plentiful gas that we have, uh, how you can c- combine that with another gas and make something that uh, they can make that can propel something, we can't yet. So these are the things that I think they're probably trying to help us. And we probably have um, ambassadors there and they have ambassadors here. Everyone's getting trained. Everybody's getting trained. Back to the two types of species, does the government actually refer to them as Pleiadians? Yes, the government classifies the one or the sixth group as Pleiadians. As I understand, we had a Pleiadian craft in in captivity at Area 51. Now, I don't know when we got it, it, but it was some years ago, probably during the time I was at Area 51 or before that. Maybe we found it at the crash site. I don't, I don't know that. You've seen that documentation. Yeah, I saw that. We have one. Now, jump ahead. Now we have someone, some, this, the, the species, the Palladians. We have the craft. We can't understand it. Now we have them here to explain that to us. At least try to assist us in the understanding of their technology and how we can reverse engineer it or, or even, even use it in our benefit. Not only are they helping us in technology, understanding technology, they want us to understand why they are like us mm-hmm. because they're, they look human. Right. They, they're human looking entities. And I think, although I don't know this right now, but I think they're providing us with information that we could maybe check their DNA and, and so forth and so on, medically speaking. But I'm sure that's the next stage if they haven't already done that. Yeah, to see the lineage possibly, you know, if we are associated with them or vice versa. While mentioning these species, what's the population of them? Is there one, two, is there 10,000 of these um, beings here? That's a good question. I ask uh, my my source uh, in, during a conference call. Many people ask the same question, uh, and it wasn't answered. They're here. They right. are here. Meaning, I, I would interpret that to mean more than one mm-hmm. are here uh, assisting on, on planet Earth. I don't know where they live. I don't know if they're they're living in the an outer atmosphere or they travel back and forth. Maybe they have a bungalow out at Area 51 or some other place. I, I, and and that, I'm not joking about that. Maybe they have facilities for these ET races to live here. Right. I mean, we know, I know that at one point in, in, when I was at Area 51 in the 80s, we had a containment facility called S2 Annex, which was northwest of Pepo's Lake, and they had some entities there. Now, one of the things that was asked during this uh, uh, conference call by somebody other than me um, was what's common among all the seven entities that have visited Earth or that we have had contact with. And the one common, one common thing is they all require water. Water is the universal needs for the universe. Every interesting. Yes. So yeah. yeah. 
So every planet has some form of water, uh, whether it's uh, the same concentration that our, ours is, uh, which there's some conjecture. I know the five other races of one particular arc, the archaeoids, uh, their they their water is a, a bit different. They had they had uh, maybe three uh, parts hydrogen or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. But even the one uh, particular species that required a little bit of methane to breathe, they still had water. Right. So th- I thought that was ironic that, that we do have a commonality among the, the, my, at least the seven that we know of, uh, and that's water. Is there any commonality with DNA of these species and human DNA? I believe there is, but I don't have the uh, scientific background, nor did I have any clearance to understand it. Now, speaking amongst intelligence officers uh, around the coffee pot, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, and, and even in the conference rooms that we're talking, that subject is constantly being brought up. What's the commonality of DNA? Are we connected in any way to any of these seven that we know of? And there is an answer to that, but unfortunately, I don't know it. We do know that every one of the species, or I should say the five species that I knew about had DNA, but their DNA strands, and I don't understand DNA. So there's something that's different as untrained uh, intelligence officers, one talking to another, not being scientific, uh, somebody said the strands are different. They have DNA, but their strands are different than ours. Now, I think one of the things that we really have to look at is the Pleiades, the blondes. They look so human. They must have something extremely similar to ours. And I, I, I can't wait to find out. Yeah, it only makes sense. And back in the 90s and the projects, we did notice that extraterrestrials had DNA, uh, human DNA, and humans had certain percentages of extraterrestrial DNA and you know that was way back then so today I'm sure they have special teams just for that and still searching well of course this brings up another uh, area I don't know if we want to go into that is what we know about humans walking this earth with alien DNA which we I mean that's the whole new arena now right and that we know that there's some people unbeknownst to them, have alien DNA. Correct. And that's been proven. I've I've been in cases where this has happened, Mm -hmm. that a person being tested for something uh, is found to have known DNA. Now, the question there is, I'm sure the viewers are going to say, well, what are you talking about known DNA? Do I have it? We know what alien DNA is. We know. We know it. Because we had them, we had five species. We we know what their DNA is. So and and over the years, there's been genetic scientists and others that have delved into this and have done so much research. There's there was countless number of DARPA projects uh, relating to this. And so we went out and started testing people. And one of the things that we know that is being done is military recruits when they're going through basic training, they get inoculated. One of the things that they do when they're given these inoculations is they take something from every single one of the recruits. Absolutely. And they're testing it. And what are they testing for? 
They're testing DNA. Now, every military uh, recruit now gets a DNA test besides right. that. But they're looking at one particular thing. They're looking at is there a particular brand, band or whatever DNA. I'm, I'm layman talking about DNA. Something that could identify them as alien. They're trying to track that lineage and find out who belongs to those first families. Exactly. So we're, I mean, it's been spoken about in books and, and, and by scientists that we are star people. Our bodies, everything in our bodies is from the stars. I mean, this planet, Earth is made from the stars, made from things from all over. This Earth during its early uh, uh, days, billions of years ago, was bombarded with uh, things from other parts of the universe. And then we're developed. We are developed from here. Now, there's also this theory among some military scientists, and not just military, there's civilian scientists, but I don't even know what the military portion of this. I know the military scientists have a, have an idea, a theory, I should say a theory, that human beings were planted here. Now, were they planted here by the Pleiadians, the Ebens? We don't know. Rather than we being developed from uh, the apes and, and, right. and going through that evolutionary process, um, they think based on DNA, based on a, another, many other things that we were placed here. But there's some, and I, I know that other groups, uh, some scientists that I, I have very, very good friends with, Dr. Putoff and others, that believe that uh, maybe the ape species was somehow manipulated. So the evolutionary process of humans went through them and it was manipulated by an extraterrestrial race. Now, how do we explain, this is a question that I have. Okay. How do we explain that there's people out there, just normal, everyday people walking around, a, a, a secretary in an office, a, a, a garbage collector, or any, any human being, and t- when they're tested, they have alien DNA. How do we explain that? How, how do we explain? Where, where does it come from? Does that mean that they do, were developed through a, a hybrid process? Or Right, exactly. A multitude of species maybe possibly could have kept, you know, making different hybridization programs. So let's say we started out as, you know, one segment of the DNA and then we got cross-matched with another hybridization program and then another species came to upgrade us and then another one came. So there is a possibility. It's a multitude of different species is what I'm getting at. That answers it. Yeah, that answers that. Could very well be that that's what these scientists are talking about is why. I mean, you can test 50 people and they're all having plain human, human DNA and you go over here and, and test these other 50 and they, some of them have alien or they all have alien DNA. They have some kind of band or whatever. Yeah, the testing is very specific. I'm glad you brought that up for the viewers because you just can't go get tested to see if you're an extraterrestrial or how much of that genetic composition you have. These are classified genetic programs that the government controls. So you can't, you know, use one of these online services to, you know, 
like many people do to find out, you know, what their lineage <laughs> comes from. It doesn't pick up on that. But all those services do report to uh, the governments. And I think maybe I, I, I understated this. You just can't go out and get a DNA test and figure it was alien. That can't happen. There's specific tests that are done, done by the government in a particular way in specialized laboratories that are protected by the United States government. And only the, the DNA testing uh, on a particular person where they're looking for a possible alien uh, a strand or band can be done by the government laboratory. It can't be done by a civilian laboratory because there's specific ways to do it. But what they can find out, as I understand, is they can determine, okay, they tested you and you have alien DNA. Okay, next question is which one, which specific species do you have? And as I understand, they can uh, distinguish which one uh, is more prevalent. Now, I don't know the answer to that, but I know that they can determine which of the species that we know about. Now, there's there's seven. Uh, back when I was around uh, in government service, only, only five. But they could determine which ones, because we've done right. so many tests, we have, have advanced mm-hmm. uh, uh, this uh, process uh, in studying GNA technology so much, specifically in the area of finding the, the alien DNA, that now we can distinguish mm-hmm. which band of DNA you have that's alien, which, yeah. whether it's from an even or an acaloid or haploid. Or right. A good point that you made to me earlier um, that we talked about is actually you have your own frequency thumbprint. And we can just touch a little bit on that because that's how they're doing it now. It's not so much they even need the DNA, but that DNA has holds its own frequency, which you already know. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about that if you want, that our own frequency has been put in a database to follow us or to uh, heal us. Many different things they use that for. A fascinating area that we're going to open right now is individual frequencies. Right. One of the things that the government has tested, DARPA had a project some years ago, and I was involved in it, in studying uh, frequencies, human frequencies. And they determined that every single human has a different frequency, a generator, a different frequency. What DARPA was in, more interested in is how do we manipulate those frequencies? Okay. And, and most of DARPA's initial research, once they found out that everybody had a different frequency, was determine how those frequencies can be manipulated right. in the form of military. Now, uh, if we're going to uh, attack an opposing army, Russian soldiers are out there. We know they all have different frequencies. How do we jam those frequencies? And that's what DARPA's uh, project was. And I don't know what the final outcome, because it was over years and years of research. But one of the things that they did find out, DARPA did find out, scientists, was your your frequency can be manipulated. If we do certain things with your your frequency, it can make you act differently, can make you sick, or it can make you heal, or it can make a lot of different things happen. And, and I know you know all about this, and you know more medically speaking about the fr- manipulation of the frequency, what it does, but I know DARPA had that project 
and and they experimented with it. And how I know so much about it is I was a guinea pig. Mm. I was one of the ones that they determined. I volunteered, signed papers away, and they were manipulating my frequency. Not they didn't ever harm me in any way, uh, but they made me uh, think. Now, one particular case, I was sitting in a chair in a, in a closed, in a capsulated uh, environment where no other outside frequencies or radio signals could get in. And they were pinpointing, they were sending a signal to my body. And I had to be completely nude. I can add in no clothes on or anything, which was a little uncomfortable. And when they did this, they were jamming me with different frequencies. They would ask me, okay, what do you smell? What do you taste? What are you thinking? And I was, I was thinking, they hit me with something, I was thinking of pine trees. They would hit me something, I was tr- thinking of smelling roses. Uh, you know, things like that. So they could manipulate. And then they, they did one particular one that made me, m- visions came to my eyes of these trees being blown around like I was in a, a forest with heavy winds. Uh, so, that's something that they did never harm me in any way. I was always examined before and after, but that's one of the ways. Now there were others involved in this program and they did a lot other different types and also animals were involved. They determined that animals had frequencies and they, and the, unfortunately I should say, uh, some of the more harming, uh, tests were done on animals, uh, determine how well they could accept higher frequencies that might, might have uh, disrupted their minds or, or things like that, which they never did to humans. What do you feel is the big push with Congress and the Senate and getting disclosure out right now? Well, as we all know, Congress, uh, both the Republicans and Democrats, agreed on a, a defense budget. And in that defense budget was a Whistleblower Protection Act and a Disclosure Act and a procedure to collect information on UFOs, UAPs. So there's procedures there set in place. First time in history that this has happened. There's so many people, even uh, uh, the, the most hardened, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, uh, both in the House and the Senate, that want disclosure. I hear it. I've, I've spoken to senators I've spoken to uh, members of Congress, and they want disclosure, but they want it in a logical and orderly way. And that's what they're working on. And I hope that at some point in the very near future, that disclosure will happen. I hope so, too, Rick. And I'm looking forward to that. Rick, I want to thank you for being on the show. You're very welcome, Emery. It's great being here. I'm Emery Smith, and this is Cosmic Disclosure. Until next time. It's not a figment of our imagination anymore, everybody. So many visitations. There's another one about the Andromedans here, but... I think we're going to go and have some music time. Uh, and then we can read about Ma'at at the end. Mm-hmm. 
and so where dost thou go? Hmm. Uh, there she goes. All right, so let's just tune in here. I missed about the first 15 or 20 minutes of this, so we're just going to start where it's at. And here comes James Taylor. This is about an hour and 10-minute production, everybody. So, again, it's the um, Joni Mitchell uh, and the Library of Commerce Gershwin Prize for for popular song was awarded to her for 2023. And so this is the full presentation of that. So here we go. Gonna see the full tide dip, might even kiss the sunset kid. California coming in the home. Thank you. 
I'm absolutely thrilled to be invited to take part in this very special celebration for Joni Mitchell. And though I'd heard about the Library of Congress, I'd never actually been here before. So what a revelation it's been to visit this incredible building, and more importantly, to witness the extraordinary artifacts that are here. There are over 173 million items with manuscripts, musical scores, and historic documents that are housed here or in many other buildings throughout the DC area. Among them are George Gershwin's original score for Rhapsody in Blue, Ella Fitzgerald's original arrangement for a tisket a tasket, an actual lock of Beethoven's hair, the Star Spangled Banner broadside, published two days after it was written, and Coming up to the present day, for all you Lizzo fans, the James Madison crystal flute she played on her recent visit to the library. And as I found out, there are around 75 new rhythmic songs and my own solo songs registered and housed within these or other buildings that make up the Library of Congress. Best of all, this building is open to the public. The reading room downstairs is one of the most impressive literary centres I've ever seen. I only wish I had more time to get to know it. So, Joni, the real joy for me is being here to honour and celebrate your glorious legacy of music and art. Visiting the Library of Congress is an added privilege that I will also never forget. Please welcome Brandy Carlisle, Lucius, and Solis. All of Joni's proper disciples know that in her own words, she sings her sorrow and paints her joy. But what strikes me about the song I'm about to sing is that it won't point us in the direction of sorrow or joy, but only to truth. And I would argue even maybe prophecy. This is a latter-day Joni Mitchell song, my favorite Joni Mitchell song. And tonight, as we reflect on the entire arc of Joni's singular career in visual art, words, and music, this particular song shows us that she is as much a truth teller, as much of a prophet now as she's ever been. This is Shine. Let your light shine. Oh, let your light shine. 
Thank mm-hmm. you. 
lucky our whole family did. Again, congratulations on making an award that I thought was pretty cool, even cooler. Please welcome Graham Nash. I met Joan in Ottawa in 1967. She took me to her room <laughs> and played me probably over a dozen of the most incredible songs I'd ever heard in my life. As you know, she suffered a brain aneurysm a few years ago, but resilience is the right word for Joni. She made it through a lot of stuff. Um, let's give a shout out to Brandy Carlisle for bringing Joni up. A song of John's called The Case of You. Touching souls. 
And it was only the second time that a jazz album had ever won that award. But, as both Joni and I have said over the years, you can try and put us in those boxes that award shows have created. But we're going to break out of them as fast as you can put us in. And no one has proven that more than Joni Mitchell.
Johnny, how you doing, sweetheart? Smokey Robinson here. I want to congratulate you for getting the Goshen Award. That's such an honor. As a songwriter, I, I mean, it's such an honor. When I got it, I just cannot tell you how flattered I am to be even mentioned in the same breath as the Goshen's. So I know you feel the same way, honey, and you deserve it. It's all what we'll do for you. You're one of our greatest songwriters ever. Enjoy the night and have a wonderful time. God bless you. Love you. Please welcome two-time Grammy Award winner, Diana Crawl. It's such an honor to be here this evening. Joni, I love you so much. And to be present, get to play together again with so many great artists and listen to each other. And uh, Joni, this song means so much to me as I listen to the album For the Roses. Um, because where you wrote the song, uh, you reference nature in a way that is very unique and beautiful. So... And 
Say congratulations as your next door neighbor. Uh, you totally deserve this. <laughs> Long overdue, but my dear, congratulations. Enjoy this moment. Uh, I love you as I told you the last time I saw you and every time I see you. I love you to death. Thank you for your talent and thank you for your friendship and more importantly, your humanity. You're a smoking child. Love you to death. God bless you. The songs of Joni Mitchell, like a woman, speak to innocence and experience, success and failure, overcoming odds, falling short. Eight years ago this month, all of these qualities became part of Joni's life when she suffered a brain aneurysm that left her in a coma. And when she emerged, she was unable to walk or talk. But just as she had with her polio experience back in the 60s, she fought back. So much so that last summer... She walked on stage at the Newport Folk Festival and performed 13 songs. She showed the world that it was not done with Joni Mitchell. And she showed the world that she was not done with us. All of us on stage here tonight just couldn't let the evening pass without recognition of Joni's courage, her determination, her spirit, will, and grit. She is and will always be the embodiment of the words of her beloved song. I've looked at life from both sides now, from win and lose and still somehow. It's life's illusions I recall. I really don't know life at all, but the search goes on. To help 
present the Library of Congress Gershwin Prize for Popular Song. Please welcome the Honorable Kevin McCarthy, Speaker of the House, United States House of Representatives. Please welcome the Honorable Patty Murray, President Pro Tem, United States Senate. Please welcome the Honorable Amy Klobuchar, Chairwoman, Committee on Rules and Administration, United States Senate. Please welcome the Honorable Jack Reed, Chairman, Committee on Appropriations, Subcommittee on the Legislative Branch, United States Senate. Please welcome the Honorable Susan Collins, Vice Chair, Committee on Appropriations, United States Senate. Please welcome the Honorable Brian Skyle, Chairman, Committee on House Administration, United States House of Representatives. Please welcome the Chairman of the Library of Congress, James Madison Council, Mr. David Amundenstein. Please welcome Librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden. This has been such a memorable evening, and it's about to get even better. The Gershwin Prize for Popular Song is the nation's highest award for influence, impact, and achievement in popular music. The prize honors artists whose contribution to the American songbook exemplify the excellence associated with George and Ira Gershwin. I think you'll agree that this year's honoree epitomizes their legacy. Joni Mitchell's music hits you straight to your heart, down to your soul. You can say she has truly helped all of us look at both sides now. So, on behalf of the Library of Congress, members of Congress, and a very, very grateful nation, it is my honor to award the 2023 Gershwin Prize for Popular Song to the legendary singer-songwriter, icon, idol, Joni Mitchell.
new friends, old friends. It, it's just uh, kind of thrilling. <laughs> Thank you all for coming. <laughs> Would you honor us with a song? Yeah, I am. Um...
This is a really good sign, and it's about time now. 
I heard Padme, it is about time. And we shall mm. hold accountable. All, all that which is needed. And it does point out the evil that Hillary Clinton has represented. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, you might call her, and this is not small, it's the Whore of Babylon is what it's called. And uh, it's time. It's really time. And so I want to read this because Lady Master Ma'at, she who was here the before the gods were here, her future self, Ma'at, comes. And what she represents is Mother Sekhmet's future self in all of us, reflecting that divine mother goddess coming through all of us. And Joni Mitchell has made that so from the 60s to the moment, and she will continue. May we all live long and prosper. So this is called, this is Robin LaPlante. Life is for the living. Don't waste it, conforming to what others think you should do. Live your life exactly how you were intended to live it. No regrets. The new moon of March began the hero's journey. Utilized the whole month since already the 1st of April, so I'm still reading it because it's significant what we went through. Utilize this month's full moon to gather more illumination and clarity that you will use to nurture your intentions on the new moon solar eclipse later in the month. This is a step-by-step process. We need to start slowly so we can pace ourselves as we head up the mountain trail. April will be another intense month of celestial support as we will be tested to not to not be pulled back into old ways. So we will turn this corner here. So this is, um, and Tanya Gabrielle spoke of this day, so this is going to elaborate on the full moon, Libra full moon dedicated to Ma'at, April 6, 2023. A Libra full moon highlights areas of our lives where we need to find balance. Potent energy of clarity is found this night in decision making as we take the time to listen to our heart and step away from the worrisome chatter of the ego mind. In this seven year, a Libra full moon can help us see more clearly what we are walking away from as we focus on what we are walking toward. Libra is the sign of relationships collaboration, and balance. 
the tightest aspect. This whoops. Okay. This full moon will make is an opposition to Chiron, the wounded healer. Out of balance, Libra energy can get so focused on others that we forget to take care of and tend to the self. Even more shadow, Libra, can believe that taking care of the self is selfish. So, this Libra full moon and Chiron are highlighting an important teaching. The most important relationship you have is the one you have with yourselves. When self-love and self-respect are at the foundation of the relationship you have with yourself, it immediately transforms all relationships you are in. And the relationships where love and respect aren't at the center will be easier to spot, while the relationships that do have these components at their heart will shine even more brightly. The Egyptian goddess Ma'at is a powerful presence to call upon when seeking balance. We can balance our heart and our head by becoming clear on what brings us simplicity and joy. Ma'at is an ancient Egyptian goddess, worshipped for her ability to bring a sense of order to chaos. As a seven-year there will be chaos. I choose to see chaos as moving potential for anything I wish to create. The Egyptians believed that the universe functioned with predictability and regularity. The cycles of the universe always remained constant both morally and physically. The universe was in perfect balance. Ma'at was known as the Egyptian goddess of truth, justice, morality, and balance. She sat in judgment over the souls of the dead in the judgment, in the judgment hall of Osiris, where the dead person's heart was placed on a scale, balanced by the feather of Ma'at. As the goddess of truth, Ma'at is the one who always helps us to see the big picture by seeing with non-judgmental eyes. Ma'at is the aspect of the goddess that helps us find our center through truth. Truth is not to be confused with facts. Facts are the details of the event or the situation. The truth lies behind the facts 
and at times may even seem contradictory. Ma'at helps us to live our truth and not the belief systems based on other people's opinions and various experiences that we have. When we are faced with situations that appear to be major challenges, we often view the situation with false and limiting beliefs. Ma'at requires us to evaluate the truth to determine its validity or embrace a new understanding, understanding, overstanding of truth. She asks us to discard the limiting thought, I can't, and step fully into the truth that I can, offering for April to assist in working with the goddess Ma'at. Known as the goddess of truth, justice, and order, the Egyptian goddess who created order from chaos. In this role of the crone, her wisdom acquired from life experiences can assist us in seeing things with different eyes. She is the wise one to call upon, to assure victory and justice in all aspects of your life. A powerful force when you find yourself more in your head filled with with worry and negative thoughts. From the chaos of fear, illusion, judgment, and anger, Ma'at reminds us of balance honoring both the male and female nature within. How you are able to influence the lives of others depends upon this balance. We each create our own circle and are responsible for what we allow into our sacred space. We want and we must remember that our circle will touch many other circles, not just with our words and our deeds, rather also with our thoughts and emotions. Place on your wrists and rub together, breathing in the beautiful combination of pure essential oils known to restore balance and quiet the mind of worry and doubt. Place on the crown chakra and heart. This oil enhances breath work and meditation. So there's an oil that has been created here by Robin LaPlante, I'm assuming. And so um, I just wanted to share this. I, I think that, you know, Mother Sekhmet's has always been about the earth medicine. Um, she only incarnated into a physical body only once. And that was about 13,000 B.C. Mm-hmm. Out then, Ronald. Yeah. Yeah. 
And um, yes, fierce, fierceness is not violence, and so important. And um, we must hold this uh, in completion process. We must hold accountable all the actions. There's um, a necessity in order to bring in the new dispensation. We must do this. And how we do it is really important. And Hillary Clinton has represented, as I said earlier, the whore of Babylon in the sense that she spearheaded child trafficking all over the world. And that's the most obscene crime against humanity I can imagine. And so, um, I think I'm going to take this talking stick and pass it to my, my cohort in uh, bringing in the teachings of the ancient Mayan calendar to us for all these years. And maybe, Rainbird, you might want to share how those teachings might help us to bring this balance that we're coming into and taking responsibility for completing right now. And I'm going to pass this talking stick to you. Here it comes. Okay, I got it. All right. Yeah. Yeah, well, it's definitely one way to walk through those rhythms and, and, and be in touch. We're in the wave of the, of, of Ben right now, which is the Skywalker. And that's, that's learning. <laughs> that's, that's a real path of going to the edge and taking that leap. So I think it's a good portal for us to be in right now. And, uh, yeah, we're, we finish it up on Saturday of next week. So we're really in it, uh, about the middle of it right now. And so I think I'm really familiar with it because it's, uh, it's the wave of my galactic signature. So whenever you check out what your galactic signature are, you always look to see what, well, what wave am I in? You know, what did I come into this world in? And so I have it in my bones. It's my bone memory. <laughs> so I'm grateful. I'm grateful for those teachings of that Mayan calendar. And Pukuvotan is to Asheville it, the one lifetime that he had here on the planet was to bring that calendar to us. So it has a lot of significance for right now. Yeah. Be clear and follow through is the guidance for this wave. So that's the guidance I, I give tonight. Thank you for that invita- invitation to do that and thank you for tonight. It was beautiful. My power came back on just a few minutes ago. <laughs> so it got quiet because my, my neighbors have a generator and it kind of sounds like a truck stop <laughs> when it's usually very quiet up here. But there was nothing quiet about that windstorm. 
it also stopped. And it's just, it was amazing to get to the other side of all that wind. It was constant for hours and hours and hours. Very powerful winds of change. And I'm grateful for those winds of change. Moving that energy out of it. Making something else come in. So anyway, again, lots of gratitude for tonight. And I pass the stalking stick over to you, Rama. And Rama, you brought some wisdom from... Tell us where. This is Rumi. Uh, Spring. Spring. All right. Here we go. Same time. And yes, we are in the completion stage. Let it begin with me, this peace on earth. And so we bid you uh, sweet dreams and uh, a good evening, everyone. <laughs> Sat Nam. Sat Nam Ji. Thirteen thank yous, honey in the heart. No evil. Live long and prosper. Aloha, everyone. Until we meet again. Aloha. Namaste.